Hello. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Mike. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us a little later on in the show, which has not started yet. This is still pre-show stuff. Having my cup of coffee. Can you believe Joe Rogan? Some clips surfaced where he used the N-word like 32 times on his podcast and then said something about a room full of a theater filled with African-Americans. It was like, I don't even want to repeat it. Anyway, he, uh, he apologized and said he hopes it serves as a teachable moment. Yes, we finally need a teachable moment about the N-word. Teach us, Joe. Teach us, Joe Rogan. About Should we use the N-word? I don't know. Teach us, Joe. They've, they've gone through your podcast and they found you using the N-word 32 times so far and a Planet of the Apes reference. Teach us, Joe Rogan, about the N-word. I don't know. Should we should we say it, Joe Rogan? Teach us. Hundred million dollars. And, and yes, it does get under my craw that he makes a hundred million dollars because he's not spreading the wealth. He's not creating jobs. He says he doesn't hire any bookers. He does it all by himself. And this is what greed gets you because you have a hundred million dollars, Joe. Spend a couple of million to hire somebody to scrub your podcasts clean. Hire somebody to go through your podcasts and make sure they got rid of all the episodes where you dropped the the N-bomb and made Planet of the Apes references. Uh, doesn't cost that much to scrub your podcast clean. But apparently the people who are upset with Joe Rogan for making a Planet of the Apes joke or, you know, mad at him because he used the N-word at least 30 times. We're the haters. I was looking at Twitter. We're the haters for saying Joe Rogan <laughs> shouldn't be using the N, shouldn't be getting away with using the N-word or making Planet of the Apes references. But we're the haters. Haters got to hate. It's an interesting world we live in. But it's a teachable moment. Let's uh, let's learn from Joe Rogan whether or not we should use the N word because it's 2022, and a lot of Americans just don't know whether or not the N word is bad or good. No, you know. So we need Joe Rogan to teach us. That's what he said. It's a teachable moment. Show is about to start. Welcome. Now it's starting. Welcome to the mop up for February 7th, 2022. I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 17 degrees and wet. Ottawa, Canada's capital, is under siege this week. The mayor has declared a state of emergency as we enter the 11th day of the Freedom Convoy, where truckers have converged to protest the vaccine mandate. See, we not only have idiots in America, they're all over the place. And uh, it's nice to see that Canada can be just as stupid as we are. Truck convoys have also gathered in provincial capitals 
and brought traffic to a halt. The demonstrations were triggered by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's demand that truckers returning from the United States show proof of vaccination. And it's not just truckers, of course, as more Canadians have shown up to support them in Ottawa, calling for an end to mask mandates, more civilians have joined them. It's called the Freedom Convoy, and it seems to have been organized by center-right politicians from the newly formed Maverick Party, which wants to separate Canada's three Western provinces from the rest of the country. This falls into a pattern. We, we are seeing secessionists who are anti-vaxxers, which is why there are reports of some of these protesters waving the Confederate flag. Wherever the Confederate flag is, the Nazi flag is sure to follow, and it has. We've also seen the Nazi flag in Ottawa because the flags of secessionists, Nazis, and anti-vaxxers are all cut from the same cloth. Now, Canada has about 300,000 truckers, which is why Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has referred to these truckers as a fringe minority, and so far, he has refused to meet with them. Close to 80% of Canadians are fully vaccinated, despite the problematic rollout they had last year with the COVID-19 vaccine. And 90% of Canadian truckers are fully vaccinated. The latest polling shows that two thirds of Canadians say they don't agree with the truckers who for the past 12, uh, 12 days, 11 days, th the numbers have dwindled. It started off, I think about 8,000 people were in Ottawa when it first started, now it's down to 5,000 uh, this past weekend. Now, truckers are important, and I want to talk about Teamsters and truckers, because truckers are some of the most informed citizens in the world. I have tremendous respect for truckers and Teamsters. They go for long stretches of time listening to books on tape, podcasts, and they are the eyes and ears of the nation. Most importantly, they control our economy. As Jimmy Hoffa, the former head of the Teamsters, would often remind everyone, if you eat, if you take a medicine, if you have a roof over your head, a trucker delivered it. Because nothing, and I mean nothing, happens without truckers. Teamsters are very important. Truckers are very important. Investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch back in 1974 was working for the New York Times and he got his hands on CIA documents showing that the American government spent close to $8 million providing strike benefits and other financial support so unions would help undermine then uh, president of Chile, Salvador Allende, the Marxist who Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon wanted dead and they got their wish. They wanted Allende dead. They orchestrated a coup and uh, Allende was killed. The, the official party line is he committed suicide. He died uh, during the coup. It started with a 26-day trucker strike in the fall of 1972 that was funded by Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, and the CIA. They wanted to undermine Salvador Allende, so they orchestrated a 26-day trucker strike 
In the fall of 1972, they brought the Chilean economy to a screeching halt, and that set the stage for the CIA-orchestrated coup that overthrew Allende. Nixon, Kissinger, the CIA understands the power of the Teamsters, and Nixon especially wanted the Teamsters on his side. He was endorsed by the Teamsters when he ran against Kennedy in 1960. At the end of 1971, Nixon pardoned Jimmy Hoffa, the president of the Teamsters who was serving time for jury tampering and wire fraud, thanks to Bobby Kennedy and the Kennedys going after Jimmy Hoffa. That's why the Teamsters got into bed with Nixon. And Nixon wanted to get into, into bed with the Teamsters. Uh, the Kennedys probably blew it going after Jimmy Hoffa when uh, he was attorney general. And before that, Bobby Kennedy tried to get Hoffa locked up. He didn't like Hoffa. Hoffa was bankrolling. And this is important. We're going to talk about the power of unions and how important pension funds are. Hoffa was bankrolling the mob's investment in Las Vegas with the Teamsters pension fund, right? You join the Teamsters and whoever hires you pays you, but has to contribute to your pension fund, your retirement, and that cash built up. And Jimmy Hoffa used that cash. He lent it to the mafia. They were the, the Teamsters were the lenders of last resort when it came to the mafia. And this is one of the reasons the Kennedys were assassinated. I, I don't want to get into that, but the Teamsters wanted the Kennedys dead because the mafia wanted the Kennedys dead because the Kennedys didn't provide air support in the Bay of Pigs when the mafia and the CIA worked in tandem to overthrow Castro and restore mob control of the casinos in Havana. Imagine Las Vegas being Cuba and it's mob run, and you have a president who promised uh, to give Las Vegas back to the mafia, and he fails to do it, they're going to assassinate you. They are. So uh, Kennedy's went after the Teamsters probably because corporate America loathed Jimmy Hoffa. They loathed the Teamsters. They feared the Teamsters because... The Teamsters were just as corrupt, just as mobbed up as corporate America. The difference is the Teamsters spread it around and corporate America kept it all for themselves. So corporate America has always hated the Teamsters and they feared the Teamsters because the Teamsters can shut the economy down. So by the time Hoffa was dead, the Teamsters were reorganizing. They were getting decentralized by the new president, Frank Fitzsimmons, and the Justice Department uh, eventually put the entire union under a consent decree. And this set the stage for exactly what corporate America wanted, massive deregulation of the trucking industry that started in the late 70s and is continuing today. Hoffa's son is now running the Teamsters, and they are now back in bed with the Democrats. The Republicans have shown themselves to be anti-union. The Teamsters supported Biden in 2020. The Democrats need the Teamsters. 
we need the Teamsters. Truckers are very, very important. I believe a a powerful Teamsters union uh, could destroy Amazon. We need the Teamsters. Unfortunately, truckers no longer speak as one voice. The Teamsters don't control the road. And our Justice Department has succeeded in making sure organized crime no longer has access to the Teamsters pension fund. Well, actually, that's not true. Organized crime does have access and control of the Teamsters pension funds. Organized crime has control of all our pension funds. But instead of uh, the five families controlling our pension funds, it's the five banks. It's Goldman Sachs. It's Bank of America. It's those mobsters, the, the, the children of the five families went into banking because in the end, the mafia really was about cleaning up dirty money. So now they're all bankers. The Teamsters pension fund was stripped of all its power. Exactly, exactly what corporate America wanted. The Teamsters had a massive pension, lots of cash there, and they became the lender of last resort to the mob. Imagine laws on the books now or a labor department run by a labor leader, not Marty Walsh, the former mayor of Boston, but a real labor leader running the labor department. Imagine a, 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 a president in a cabinet that insists unions wield power with their pension funds the same way Jimmy Hoffa did in the late 50s and early 60s. Now, I'm not saying the Teamsters should be handing their pension over to the mafia, but they should be hands-on when it comes to investing, especially investing in the corporations the truckers are driving for. That's how you get a seat at the table. I've talked about this before. In Germany, 40% of the board of directors of every corporation have to be workers. Well, if the unions invested in the corporations they their rank and file work for, they would have to get a seat at the table. But these days, the unions turned their pensions over to money managers who turned the funds over to hedge funds. And unions are referred to now as institutional investors. And they they don't trust themselves with the money. So they hand it over to charlatans, hedge fund managers, investment firms who never beat the market because it's impossible to beat the market. They charge some of these hedge funds charge as much as 30 percent off all the profits. And then they take two to three percent off the top. So even if a hedge fund gets lucky one year and does outperform the market, by the time the hedge fund manager is busy taking his cut, the, the pension funds have underperformed the market. So imagine if the unions were activist investors who told the rank and file where their pension fund was being invested, we would be able to demand a seat at the corporate table and demand that more and more corporations become union signatories. Because whatever we're doing now is not working. Union membership is down in America. 250,000 fewer union members in 2021 than there were in 2020. We've talked about this. We keep being told that it's the golden age for, for union organizing. So far, 
to Starbucks in Buffalo. You want clout? You want corporations to sign union contracts? You do what Jimmy Hoffa did. You use your pension as a weapon. There are $36 trillion in America's pension funds. That's a lot of clout. That's a lot of money. $36 trillion in America's pension funds. You invest in-house. You invest in-house. Start buying stock in Amazon and force them to become union signatories. Ask Warren Buffett. Ask people who understand investing. They will tell you that not a single money manager can outperform the market. And yet, if you belong to a union, your pension is being invested by a money manager who can't uh, outperform the market. Pensions should be in index funds, bond funds. That's it. It's not complicated. And a lot of that money should be in uh, the companies that the rank and file work for. The entire investment model on Wall Street is fraud. And while we're being ripped off, they are investing in corporations that weaken unions, that weaken labor in this country. Whether you like it or not, money is speech. How you spend your money, how your union invests its money is more important than political clout. In fact, that's what gives you political clout. There are $36 trillion in America's pension funds. That's a lot of speech for workers. So I hope the Teamsters get stronger. I hope we start electing politicians who want to enable the Teamsters because we need the Teamsters. We share the road with trucks and corporate America wants unmanned trucks. That's where we're heading with this, self-driving trucks. Do you wanna share the road with unmanned trucks? That not only spells doom for the Teamsters, it spells doom for anybody who uses the roads which have been built by your tax dollars. When we lose the Teamsters, when we lose the truckers, we lose a lot of potential political clout. The Biden administration and the Democrats should be propping up the Teamsters. Truckers should be the fifth column taking on corporate greed. The truckers, I believe more than any other group, have the power to turn this country around. You win the truckers, you win the truckers, all of Wall Street falls in line because they can shut this economy down. But of course, we need leadership in Washington. You need a Senate and a Congress led by activists who know the power of the Teamsters. Now, it also involves brute force and muscles. You know, Donald Trump has his enforcers. We saw them on January 6th. He has threatened to use his muscle. Like Putin, Trump and the Republicans, they have their bikers, their thugs, their gun-toting deplorables who use intimidation and the threat of another insurrection. Whether or not you think that's fair, that's realpolitik. That's, that's the truth. Like it or not, muscle 
in politics counts. Karl von Clausewitz was a Prussian military theorist from the 19th century. I have no idea who Karl von Clausewitz was, but he did say war is simply the continuation of political intercourse with the addition of other means. He's saying war is politics by other means. And that's what Trump understood. That's what Trump understands. That's what this current iteration of the Republican Party understands. If you want to stay in the GOP, you understand that there is no platform, there's no policy other than the threat of violence carried out by extrajudicial, self-deputized thugs. That is the Republican Party. They stand for nothing other than intimidation, owning the libs and violence. That's what we are up against here in America, where might, might makes right. That's what Trump and this current Republican Party wants. And to counteract this, the Democrats need their own muscle as well. Our muscle is the law. But as Andrew Jackson said to the Supreme Court Justice, you made your decision, now go enforce it. The law must be enforced. And how do you enforce the law? Well, you need muscle. So we need the Teamsters. We need the Teamsters because they can shut the roads down. And we need the cops. We need the cops. We need to make guns a cop issue. We need to divide the NRA from the police. The police have, have been bought. The unions have been bought by the National Rifle Association. We need to divide and conquer. There was a time when Bill Clinton was able to pass an assault weapons ban because he had the nation's police chiefs behind him. Well, Wayne LaPierre, the NRA got busy and they started paying off the police unions and they started hiring cops to teach gun safety. And all of a sudden we see the cops terrified of getting shot, but the problem isn't guns. They're not, they're not blaming the guns anymore. They're blaming uh, permissive district attorneys who are too soft on crime. We need to divide the NRA from the cops. We need to sell the assault weapons ban the way Clinton did as a way to protect cops. Now, I know a lot of Americans, a lot of liberals, a lot of lefties don't like the cops, but this is politics and the cops know that you hate them because we keep asking them to stop killing unarmed black men. But, but to avoid a bloody revolution, a bloody civil war, the Democrats, the left needs the cops on their side. The same way we need the truckers. We cannot allow the cops and the truckers to fall prey to the politics of fear and hate that is peddled by the Republican Party. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that most Americans don't trust Trump or the, G or the GOP. The problem is too many cops do. And uh, so cops are not afraid of a, a right-wing authoritarian. It means more business for the cops. 
I believe we have to win over the cops. I believe truckers are the first line in defense of all our institutions from labor to democracy. When the truckers go on strike, they will bring the government and Wall Street to its knees. Truckers, Teamsters, we see it up in Ottawa. Most truckers in Canada don't agree with what's going on in Ottawa. Truckers, Teamsters are our lifeblood. They listen to talk radio, satellite radio, books on tape and podcasts. They are a captive audience. They are thinking. They're on the wide open road and they're thinking. And we cannot allow them to fall prey to the right wing propaganda machine. That's why the right wing propaganda machine controls all the radio here in America. They know that people like truckers have the time to listen and to think and they have muscle and anybody who's behind the wheel of a truck or a car is angry. It's very easy to get drivers revved up and angry. The right wing propaganda machine picked up on that. And that's why you only hear bigots and racists on AM talk radio. I don't know what the polling is, but truckers have to be turned into leftists. Uh, but I, I wonder what the left in its current form has to offer truckers. I don't think the truck stops uh, should be filled with copies of Marx. Uh, I don't think that cuts it. I think it requires grassroots organizing. It requires CDs of lectures by Howard Zinn, lectures by Bernie, by activists who explain how truckers are exploited by Wall Street, how a trucker's real enemy is the corporation they're driving for. We need to reach out to Teamsters around America, truckers, anyone behind a car or a truck, and explain to these people that union members, Teamsters, are often tricked. They, they, they join a union, they support their own union, but at the same time, they're tricked to voting for politicians who hate unions. We need to do outreach and court the truckers, court the Uber drivers and explain to them that no truck should be on the road unless there's a union driver behind the wheel. And we need to convince these truckers that you can't have strong unions unless you have a strong government. Let me repeat that. This is really important. You can't have strong unions unless you have a strong government. Big government means big unions. Truckers are loners, but they also understand the need for others. It's a hyper individualism that can only be achieved unless someone is watching your back. Climate change is real and a trucker knows that. Road conditions have never been more treacherous because of climate change. We can't sit back and allow truckers to be fed a steady diet of right-wing propaganda where flag and country and hatred 
for the cancel culture becomes more important than our own physical safety and financial security. But when you listen to radio, when you listen to podcasts, you are tricked into voting against your own best interests. I am not trying to crap on Biden and the Democrats. I, I'm really trying not to. But what we need are fewer uh, Harvard grads running the Democratic Party. We need uh, more uh, truckers running for office. Men and women who didn't go to college. We need politicians who can not only talk to truckers, but are truckers. We need democratic organizers who never went to college, don't want to go to college. This is why we lose in the swing states, in the Rust Belt. You have uh, children of privilege who tend to be white, knocking on doors, telling uh, lower middle class people how to vote in their own uh, best interest. People see right through them. Uh, we need uh, democratic organizers who can knock on the doors of sleeper cabs, who can hang out at truck stops and give out free literature, free CDs of politicians talking about how unions built this country, how corporate America is destroying it through greed, and why truckers are so necessary for our economic liberty. Truckers just don't deliver everything we use. They spread ideas. And again, I don't want to attack the Democrats, but the people running this party they look down on truckers. They look down on people who don't go to college. They look down on people who actually work for a living. They don't connect with truckers. That's why our party can't win in, in the Rust Belt. The people who run the Democratic Party think a hedge fund manager who steals money from his clients, whose entire career is predicated on a lie the Democrats think a money manager is more respectable than that woman who makes sure a ventilator gets from Long Beach, California to Nebraska. You look at these truckers in Ottawa and a lot of them are misbehaving, storming homeless shelters for food, pissing on World War II memorials, shouting racial epithets. And of course, along with that comes spouting anti-government propaganda. Well, where do you think they get these ideas from? Where do you think these truckers learn to hate their government? These truckers are fed a steady diet of anti-government propaganda sprinkled with veiled racism and anti-intellectualism. By whom? Who is doing this? Who benefits when you have powerful working class truckers hating their government. Who benefits from that? The corporate CIA, the CIO, the corporate CEOs and the CIA, which used the truckers uh, in Chile. The corporate CIA, CEOs, CIAs, uh, the financiers, they want truckers to be anti-government. The corporate CEOs want 
Teamsters to hate their government because the CEOs knows that there are no unions without a strong government standing up for the unions. No government, no unions, period. You cannot have a union movement in America without a strong government. So they feed us and the truckers this anti-government propaganda which divides and conquers. If you get the working class, which needs unions to hate government, then we vote against our own self-interest. We have people who hate the government more than they love a livable wage. Corporations have an agenda. It's anti-union. It's anti-government. Corporations want the roads deregulated. They want to put any kind of truck with as many wheels as they want on the road. And they want truckers driving with no federally mandated sleep breaks. They don't want those trucks inspected. They also don't want the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, the evil NLRB, overseeing union elections because the corporations want to hold those elections themselves so they can fix them. And of course, ultimately, the corporations want to replace the drivers with automatic, automated trucks. That's their end game. Corporate America's end game, Jeff Bezos's end game, is to get rid of the person behind the wheel. But government, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Highway Safety, government regulators, as long as we still have government, is uh, trying to prevent that. So corporations get inside the heads of drivers through right-wing propaganda and convince them that it's the government that is depriving them of all their freedom their freedom. It's the government that is robbing us of our freedom. And so we see anti-vaxxers, we see Teamsters in Ottawa throughout Canada taking on the government. Well, who benefits from people demanding an end to this mask mandate? Who, who benefits from it? Corporate America, your oppressor benefits by our getting worked up over vaccine mandates and masked mandates, because this is an opportunity for corporate America, for the ruling elite to convince ordinary working Americans, ordinary working Canadians, truck drivers, that the government is intrusive. That's what they love to sell to the working class, that your government is in Intrusive. The government is not intrusive. It can barely get you to pay your taxes. But Wall Street wants you to think the government is constantly grabbing too much power. Where? Where is their power? This is what Republicans with the corporate controlled right wants to convince the vast majority of voters that the government won't leave you alone. But it's really hard to prove that, that when government for the last 
40 years, it's been pretty much stripped of all its power. It's pretty hard to claim that the government is intrusive when we have no government left. Uh, so the right is jumping on this pandemic as an opportunity to train Americans to fear government. Because when people fear government, they are distracted from their real enemy, corporate America, the richest 1%, Wall Street. Don't fear us, fear your government. They're the ones who are ruining your life, the government officials. It's the mask mandate that is depriving you of your freedom. Not the lack of real wage growth since 1975. That's not, that's not depriving you of your freedom or your inability to afford a house, your inability to afford the rent on an apartment. That has nothing to do with your freedom. That's not what's keeping you from being free. It's the government making you wear a mask. And if they if they can make you wear a mask, then uh, what else can they make you do? And that's where that's where it starts getting really crazy. That's why we're seeing so much crazy shit. The right, the propaganda machine has turned something like 30 to 40 percent of America into lunatics illogical, irrational lunatics, because you really can't convince Americans that the government is your enemy and, and corporation. You can't convince someone that the government is your enemy and corporations aren't unless you just throw so much dirt into people's eyes that they, they can't even think straight. And that's what's happening. We have a lunatic right. They're no longer fringe. It's an entire party that just believes complete and utter bullshit because you cannot make a convincing case against the government without uh, lying, distorting and making people go crazy. Uh, so they go with anti-vax. They tell you, you know, don't trust the CDC. Don't trust your doctors, and then it's guns. You know, got to get guns. The government wants your guns. The government is coming for your guns, right? And you know, guns are our last defense against the police. This is what Republican politicians, elected politicians, insist on: that jackbooted thugs are going to be kicking down your door to take away your guns. And we need guns to protect ourselves from the government. And yet the right wing loves the people who would be kicking down their doors. That's the insanity of it all. The, 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 the jackbooted thugs, the police are coming for your guns, but we love the police uh, because the police will always work for the right wing. Uh, and that's the insanity of Republican logic. There is no logic. It's insanity. You must convince voters that the police are coming for your guns, but we love the police and uh, it's getting harder and harder to buy a gun, even though it's getting easier and easier to buy a gun. There isn't a single piece of gun control legislation 
getting passed since the Clinton administration. There are more guns being sold now than ever before. Gun ownership is higher than ever. The Second Amendment has become a third rail in politics. Both parties would never dream of introducing gun control legislation. More and more states are permitting concealed carry. And yet more and more Americans are getting convinced that the government is coming for your guns. The government has never been more pro-gun. In, in the history of America, we've never had a more pro-gun government. And yet, when you ask the right what their biggest fear is, the government wants to take away our guns. This is insanity. It's beyond stupidity. It's insanity, and it's been foisted upon us by a right-wing propaganda machine that is making about 40% of this country clinically insane, imaginary enemies. The right, Trump, his supporters, the Republican Party, has nothing but imaginary enemies. They do have an enemy who's real, and that's the richest 1%. But the richest 1% has this propaganda machine that invents imaginary enemies. Uh, it's, you know, it's the government. That's your enemy. They're, they're forcing you to get vaccinated so they can plant a chip inside of you. Of course, this is all insane. Ivermectin is insane. Being an anti-vaxxer is insane. But insanity is the only way you can convince a large segment of the population that Donald Trump is a successful billionaire who loves America. There's no other way to get people to believe this shit. So when I see the truckers in Ottawa, I see allies. I see smart people, not the ones in Ottawa who are protesting uh, the, the vaccines. And But I know the truckers are smart. And we need to reach out. We on the left need to reach out to everybody behind the wheel of a truck or a car that it was the government that built those roads they're driving on, that it's the government that maintains those roads. It's the government that regulates the trucks and the truckers to make sure those roads are safe. It's the government that protects your union. If you're lucky enough to be a member of a union, it's the government and only the government that can protect your union from corporate greed to ensure the pension is there when you need it. And most importantly, it is the government that makes sure that your union has enough to provide you with health care because the corporation you're trucking for, the corporation you're driving for, like Uber or Lyft, that corporation doesn't care if you live or die. We need to remind truckers and drivers that they don't exist. Their union doesn't exist. Their kids don't get educated without a strong and powerful government because we need a strong and powerful government to stand up to the violent thugs. The violent thugs who work in the corporate suites or for the corporate suites.
because it is the bullies, the people with the money, the people who hire the muscle, who have unlimited resources. They can finance all the right-wing charlatans they need to trick your mind into believing the institutions that are there to protect you are your enemy when they're anything but. And that includes the police. We, I'm not pro, I, I think we need to defund the police uh, and retrain them, but uh, I, I do believe we need police. I think we just need to be arresting more white collar criminals than low hanging fruit, people of color standing on the corner uh, selling Lucy's. Uh, there is a lopsided distribution of wealth and power in America because the people who are hoarding all the wealth and power have brainwashed too many Americans to identify with their oppressors. You should not be rooting for Elon Musk. He hates unions. That's why he's moving all his manufacturing to Texas. He is being sued for racial discrimination, sexual harassment. Elon Musk is not a hero. He is a pig. There is nothing good about Elon Musk. Jeff Bezos hates you. He hates unions. He hates drivers. He makes his drivers pee in empty Gatorade bottles and videotapes them while they're doing it to make sure they're not taking any time off. He is not your hero. The oil companies are not to be respected. They're to be destroyed. ExxonMobil is killing our planet and along the way, making it more dangerous to drive a truck. Look at the ice storms last week. If you're a trucker who's listening to me right now, who do you think is responsible for those ice storms? ExxonMobil. And who's responsible for making sure you don't crash? Your government. It's your government that pours the salt on the ice, which ends up poisoning our drinking water. But it's the government that's saving you from the devastations of climate change caused by ExxonMobil. But if, you, if you're fed the steady diet of corporate-owned media distracting and dividing, you will not focus on your real enemy. Your real enemy is Wall Street. Your real enemy is anyone, anyone who is worth a billion dollars. Very simple rule. You're worth a billion dollars. You're evil. People say to me, well, you're only going after Joe R Rogan because uh, he makes a hundred million dollars. Exactly. Exactly. Why is Joe Rogan getting a hundred million dollars and not hiring somebody to scrub the N word from all his podcasts? It's corporate greed. He wouldn't even pay for somebody. He was going over to Spotify and he couldn't even part with a million dollars to hire some people to go through his podcasts. Just you know, any time I say the N word, just, you know, bleep it. Or uh, anytime I do a Planet of the Apes thing about Harlem, you know, bleep it. Wouldn't even spend the money 
a part of his $100 million on that. When, you, when you're making that kind of money, uh, it's simultaneously greedy, corrupt, and ultimately stupid. So the corporate-owned media distracts and divides. They will find anything to go, well, what about? Right. It's, it's what about what, what, you're, you're coming after Wall Street. What about what about Neil Young is going after Joe Rogan? Well, what about what Neil Young said 50 years ago about gay people? Jo what about Joni Mitchell? She wore blackface once. Uh, it's always what about something else? When uh, when, in fact, it's corporate greed that's to blame for most of our ills. They'll throw critical race theory at us now. It doesn't even exist. Critical race is, is just pure fiction. But here's what the what corporate America understands. And I cannot I cannot push this hard enough. The the power of hate. If you want to change the world, our side, the left, has to tap into the power of hatred, not the power of love, the power of hatred. It is so much more powerful a political tool, teaching people to hate the right people, teaching people to hate Elon Musk, to hate Jeff Bezos. We need to train Americans to hate Stephen Schwartzman, the head of Blackstone, to hate these hedge fund managers, know their names, hate them openly, look for any reason to lock them up. The same way so many people on the right look for any reason to lock up a person of color, we need a government that is looking for any reason to lock up a hedge fund manager. I believe in law and order. We have 2.5 million people behind bars. They're just the wrong people. It's just the wrong people. They, they, the right wing manipulates us through hatred, but they want us to hate everyone but the richest 1%, critical race theory. Uh, it, this is the oldest trick in the book, critical race theory. Hatred is such a powerful political tool, especially veiled racism. The idea that people of color, blacks, uh, the great, great, great grandchildren of slaves are going to make your child feel guilty over slavery. That is distracting uh, white people who work for a living and it gets them riled up. This is what they're venting on instead of how shitty they're treated at work, how shitty they're treated by their government. Critical race theory. That's it. That's that's why your child is getting a bad education. It's not because the richest one percent won't pay their fair share of taxes. It's critical race theory. It allows marginalized white people to think that they're protecting their family. When in fact, deep down, they know jobs are disappearing, wages can't keep up with inflation. But instead of blaming Wall Street for their financial precarity, they are taught to hate big government for forcing schools to teach their children to hate themselves over slavery or masks.
really. That, that's the problem facing ordinary Americans, critical race theory, or mask mandates. This is how they have tricked something like 30 to 40% of Americans into deflecting their, their hatred away from Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and anybody who owns an NFL team. So this brings me to Joe Rogan. Uh, Joe has the most downloaded podcast in the world, and he's he's making $100 million off Spotify. Full disclosure, yes, obviously I'm jealous. He's more charismatic. He's smarter. He understands how to attract an audience. He's more successful. But, but he's also incredibly dangerous because he's a liar. He presents himself as all things to all people. He brings a kind of jujitsu mixed martial arts to the way he presents himself. And this is what Trump did. Uh, up until Trump's inauguration, people I really respected said things like, you know, he's really a Democrat. This is what Joe Rogan does and, and Trump does it. And, you know, Bill O'Reilly, a lot of people do this where they present themselves as all things to all people. They're very slippery. But if you really pay attention to them, you know that they're borderline fascists. And this is we saw this with Trump. People who were, you know, supposedly really smart said things like Trump's he's a liberal. You can't. You can't make it in Manhattan unless you're a liberal. He's a liberal. He's a, he's a pacifist. He was against the war in Iraq, which, of course, is a lie. He supported it, but he insisted that he was against the war in Iraq. He just lies the way Joe Rogan lies. And we were told that, you know, how could Trump be anti-Semitic? His daughter married a Jew. How, how can he be anti-gay? He's from Manhattan. He said everything to everyone, but in the end, Donald Trump was a pathological lying fascist. And I think Joe Rogan is not even close to doing what Trump did, but he's just as slippery, just as oleaginous. He says whatever he has to say to, to mask his right wing agenda. Uh, you know, you can be in, 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 in America where nobody fact checks. Donald Trump can try to ban Muslims from entering this country and still say, I'm the least racist president this country has ever had. You are all things to all people in public, but then you get the person alone and it's N-word this, Planet of the Apes that, beak-nosed, greedy Jews. But to the public, you're all things to everyone. I mean, if you say the N-word that many times publicly, it's the plan and that Planet of the Apes reference, what are you saying when the microphones aren't hot? And I'm being told I'm a hater for calling Joe Rogan out. Like, people gotta hate, gotta hate, yes. You use the N-word 32 times that we know of, and, and I take exception to that, and I'm the hater. You know, Bill O'Reilly played this game uh, that Joe Rogan is playing. Dennis Miller used to play it. I want to hear from all sides. That's the game they play. I'm an independent. 
This is this is Fox News. They'll often put a, a lefty on their network to make it look like they want to hear all sides. And that's what Rogan does. He wants to hear all sides. And he says things like he would have voted for Bernie, which I do believe. I think he would have voted for Bernie, but he ended up voting for Trump. He's very oleaginous. He calls himself a lefty the same way Dennis Miller insisted he was a lefty. This is the old trick. You know, I agree with the left on almost everything except fascism. You know, I am I am lefty. I believe in same sex marriage. I, I believe uh, drugs should be legal. I believe I'm, I'm pro choice. I just happen to believe in martial law and that the workers of the world should get, uh, you know, should bear, bear subsist, barely subsistent wages. Uh, because this country uh, lacks critical thinking, we tend to take the charlatans at face value. Tucker Carlson will often say, you would be surprised by how much I agree with the left except on little things like white supremacy. Uh, here's what we need to understand about agreeing and disagreeing. Uh, most Americans agree on everything except the really big things like religion or uh, how big our government should be and uh, whether or not we should have unions and whether or not the oil company should be put out of business uh, for to make the uh, planet safe from climate change. Most people agree on practically everything except whether or not health care should be free. There are only a couple of big, important issues that uh, we disagree on, and it's the only things we should be talking about. All this other stuff is noise. And it, it's dirt in our eyes where we can't figure out where anybody is coming from. Where do you stand on unions? Where do you stand on free health care, free college tuition? Where do you stand on putting ExxonMobil out of business? The rest of, you know, the rest of the stuff is just a distraction. Anybody can pay lip service to any idea. We've seen this in election after election. Every Democrat paid lip service to the idea of free health care for all Americans until it came to finding out what their their version of Medicare for all is. Uh, in the end, it comes down to pieces of legislation. Are you for it or are you against it? Uh, the, the slippery ones the slippery ones talk issues, but never solutions. That's why Kirsten Cinema can say, I support voting rights, but this bill, this isn't it. That's slippery Joe Rogan thinking. We must pass a bipartisan voting bill. This is what Kirsten Cinema says. We must reach across the aisle and make common ground with the people who are trying to make it impossible for people of color to vote. We need we need to get the Republicans who don't want us to vote to back a bill. 
And if we can't do that, I won't support any bill, which means you don't support voting rights. All you do is support lip service to voting rights. People who present themselves as all things to all people are very dangerous and you ha they're, they're slippery and you have to pin them down and say, who are you and what do you believe? The Nazis were national socialists. They were all things to all people. They were nationalists, which means they were militaristic, proud of their Prussian heritage. They were anti-immigrant and they were the complete opposite. Socialists who believed in the universality of labor and power that should devolve to the masses instead of uh, to the, the rich. And, and it's a trick. Hitler, Hitler's a socialist? He called himself a socialist? No. He says he's a socialist, but he's a fascist. The Nazis were the fascist party. But most people take other people at face value. And you call yourself a national socialist. Well, why is he calling himself a socialist? Because uh, he's trying to trick you. Can't take people's word. You can't take people at face value. Don't accept something. Just because somebody says they're a lefty, make them prove it. So Joe Rogan, again, I'm the hater. I know people are going to say, well, Feldman's really hating on Joe Rogan. I'm the one who takes exception to the use of the N-word 32 times that we know of. But I'm the hater for pointing that out. He has a very long show. And he says he says a lot of things. And people who defend him. I get emails. They say, you, you're criticizing Joe Rogan because you've never listened to him. Well, I have listened enough to know that he says a lot of things. And most of what he says about the vaccines, most of what he says is the, the, the vaccines are not safe. He refused at first to say whether or not he was vaccinated. And then he finally admitted that he wasn't. He spreads the gospel of ivermectin and he amplifies the voices of crackpots like Jordan Peterson or Candace Owens, as well as doctors, medical doctors who claim the vaccine is dangerous. He might say he tries to present both sides, but it is tilted towards anti-vax, anti anti-mask, and it gets people killed. What, what I find truly abhorrent about Joe Rogan is he gets called out and apologizes, but then goes back to his old ways. About, you know, six, seven months ago, he told people under the age of 30 not to get vaccinated. He said, I apologize. I'm just a comedian. And then he, he knows, he's really smart. He knows that people will forget and he just keeps spreading the ivermectin gospel. He said on January 12th, 2022, this is, this is what Jon Stewart pointed out as though this is an example of Joe being an honest interlocutor. Jon Stewart, another one. Uh, on uh, January 12th, 2022, Rogan, 
claimed that the risk of myocarditis among vaccinated 12 to 17 year olds was higher than the risk associated with catching COVID, right? His guest corrected him. They looked it up, so he backed down. But if there's no guest to correct him, he keeps spreading misinformation. He has guests who insist ivermectin can drive COVID, quote, into into extinction. That's really dangerous, and there's nobody correcting it. Uh, Rogan has called the vaccines, quote, unproven gene therapy. On December 24th, 2021, this is less than two months ago, right? December 24th, 2021. After all the criticism he has received, he said, quote, I'm not gonna get vaccinated. I have antibodies. It doesn't make any sense. And uh, when he gets called on it, he insists he's just trying to present all sides or I'll do better. And then he just always goes back to saying what he always says, telling people not to get vaccinated, telling people the vaccines are dangerous. Just the mere sowing of seeds of doubt about mRNA vaccines uh, is dangerous. And bringing on one anti-vaxxer after another, that's not presenting both sides. That is amplifying dangerous ideas to close to 12 million listeners. And yes, I, I'm not saying to cancel him. I'm not. If you want to listen to him, go ahead. Why does Joe Rogan do it? Well, there's an audience for it. Also, he's a founder, I think, I may be wrong, of Onnit, O-N-N-I-T, which sells immunity boosters and brain supplements. I, I've looked into this. I'm pretty sure that Joe Rogan makes money selling immunity boosters and brain supplements like Alex Jones. He seems to be pushing alternatives to big pharma. He is pushing something called total human optimization through exercise, eating well, and please buy my nutritional supplements. Now, I don't know how much he makes pushing this stuff. Uh, And I'm sure he means it when he says, Don't trust the CDC. Don't trust Big Pharma. But he also profits off people not getting vaccinated and instead buying his immunity boosters. Look, I don't trust Big Pharma. I don't trust the CDC. But I really don't trust someone who is best friends with Alex Jones. I also don't trust anyone who has built his entire career around mixed martial arts and enjoys watching people getting kicked until they're bloody in the face and enjoying that. I don't know when that became acceptable. Have you seen mixed martial arts? When did that, when did we decide that was okay to go mainstream? I don't trust big pharma. I don't trust uh, doctors, but I really don't trust autodidacts like Joe Rogan, who has not been trained by institutions of higher learning to differentiate between doctors and hucksters. 
if I have to choose, I'm going to go with the doctor and not Joe Rogan or Alex Jones or some comedian he has on uh, his show. Again, I, I don't want to be uh, an elitist. I have huge problems with higher education. I have a huge problem with the AMA and the CDC and Big Pharma. But when I get sick, I'm going to my doctor, not the guy lifting weights next to me in the gym. I have a doctor. Is he perfect? No. But he's smarter than Joe Rogan. Now, the only people uh, who complain about Joe Rogan, I'm told, are the ones who don't listen to him. I get constant emails. Why are you going after Joe Rogan? You're jealous. You're a hater. And you obviously don't listen to him. Well, you listen to him. To, to, to the people who listen to him, you listen to him. That means you heard all those episodes where he dropped the N-word. You heard those episodes where he did the Planet of the Apes joke. Uh, and you still listen to him? I'm sorry. You know, uh, I, I don't listen to him. But if you heard that and you're okay with that, okay. Now, should he be permitted to say those things? Absolutely. And everybody says things. Everybody says things. Not everybody says them when the microphone is hot, but even things slip out. People should be allowed uh, to say things and make mistakes. Uh, I don't know if saying the N-word 32 times is a teachable moment for America. I think we've all learned by now that there's you don't say it. Uh, I'm I not saying he should. It's not up to me to decide what happens to Joe Rogan. Uh, and sure, he should be allowed to reach 12 million people. We're going to come up by the by summer. A million Americans will have died from covid. How do we get people to get vaccinated? Joe Rogan isn't helping any. Are any of those deaths on Joe Rogan's hands? If 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 somebody listening to Joe Rogan decides not to get vaccinated. And we know that if you're in the ICU right now from COVID, it's because you're not vaccinated primarily. Is that Joe Rogan's fault? Partly, partly. I uh, I don't know how to correct bad speech. Uh, John Stewart, who is wrong about everything, he, John Stewart is like Ben Affleck. It's like he, it's like the mind of an eighth grader, and on the surface, all the solutions sound perfectly reasonable, but they're like a, a millimeter deep in in thought. Uh, he says uh, we should engage. He says the solution is to engage with Joe Rogan uh, because nobody has a more open mind than Jon Stewart. Nobody accepts criticism better than the union busting Jon Stewart. You can always argue with Jon Stewart because it's all about engaging. It's about hearing the other side. 
as the head of the Writers Guild told me, nobody talked to him with as much vitriol as Jon Stewart did when he was fighting the writers from going union. But John uh, says the solution to bad speech is we engage. How do you engage with Joe Rogan? Well, you speak to his manager. I want to speak to his manager. One of the ways to engage is to tell Spotify that I'm going to stream my music someplace else. But John Stewart, no, 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 you can't do that. Don't, don't, that's canceling him. Don't do that. How else do we engage with Joe Rogan, John Stewart? Some of us don't have a television show on Apple. How do you prevent Joe Rogan from amplifying the voices of anti-vaxxers? I'm not saying Spotify should remove them, not at all. But Spotify is all in on Joe Rogan. He's got a $100 million exclusivity deal with Spotify. No other podcaster has that. He is the face of Spotify when it comes to their podcast their podcast business. Joe Rogan is the face of Spotify. You can only hear him on Spotify. That's why they pay him $100 million. We are in the age of branding, where corporations tell us their story, what their values are. Well, Spotify's story is we're all in on Joe Rogan, $100 million to be his sole platform. So John Stewart says, engage with Joe Rogan. Uh, I don't engage with anti-vaxxers. I don't support them. And I don't support people who give anti-vaxxers a platform. You can't win a debate with an ignorant lunatic. So I don't support Spotify. I'm not giving them my money. I switched. I think my podcast might still be on Spotify, but I don't make money or pay the money. Uh, I should probably pull my podcast from Spotify, but it doesn't matter. My podcast is a <clears throat> is a gnat. I can't engage with uh, Joe Rogan, who has 12 million followers. Other than not giving Spotify my money, that's how you engage. That's not cancel culture. That's not censorship. Money is speech. How you spend it is speech. And how you don't spend it is also speech. Uh, to those of you who think the people who are criticizing Joe Rogan, who don't want to pay a company to promote, to amplify the voices of anti-vaxxers, to, to suggest that that's uh, cancel culture or freedom of speech. You should stop listening to Joe Rogan, maybe listen to some more intelligent people who can explain to you what freedom of speech means. Bad speech drowns out good speech because bad speech is corporate owned speech. Good speech doesn't have the same amplitude, the same access to the masses as bad speech. Good anti-corporate speech 
cannot be found on commercial radio in America, not even on NPR. You cannot find anybody who is anti-corporate, anti-1%, who is being amplified by Spotify, iTunes, Amazon's music streaming, uh, Sirius. The only good speech is anti-corporate speech. It's not being amplified. It's drowned out by the bad speech. It always has been. It always has been. You can't hear good anti-corporate speech on CNN or MSNBC because they're pro-corporate. They do attack Joe Rogan to their credit, but, but you're not going to hear good speech in America, good speech that speaks for the 99% that says the most important issue facing this country is free health care, free tuition, housing for anybody who can't afford it, food for anybody who can't afford it, an end to these wars, to cutting our military budget in half. That's good speech. You cannot hear that anywhere. So don't tell me the way to deal with bad speech is to give Joe Rogan engagement. I'm not saying censorship because the people who speak, who put out good speak speech are being censored. You don't hear good speech in this country. Amy Goodman, I think, you know, Ralph Nader. What do they have in terms of uh, the network, the support? from all these amplifiers of sound. You don't hear them. So let Spotify keep Joe Rogan. I don't care, but I'm not giving them my money because we just passed 900,000 dead Americans. 900,000 dead Americans from COVID. And if you're in an ICU because of COVID, it's because you're unvaccinated. If you're taking ivermectin instead of getting vaccinated, there's a good chance you're going to die and spread it to others. And most importantly, this is a virus that is constantly mutating. We are learning about COVID as it progresses. Sometimes monoclonal antibodies work, sometimes they don't. We need to depend on the latest science, not a comedian who's hawking alpha brain supplements. To those of you who insist we need to hear both sides, I say there are not two sides to every story. There aren't. And if you say we need to hear both sides, then insist that we hear real good speech, speech that speaks for the 99% that explains how Medicare for all would actually work, that attacks Wall Street for its greed and crime, its criminal intent, that, that reveals who's for unions, who's against them. You can't even get anybody in the media to call Jon Stewart out for being a union buster. How, how is that? How does good speech Get uh, how does good speech get heard in this country when most Americans don't know that John Stewart fought the uh, the unions?
engaging. It's not so easy to get good speech out. And this gets back to the use of the N-word. Uh, Joe Rogan using the N-word, what, 32 times that we know of? Uh, when you present, so you claim, both sides to every story, it doesn't surprise me that you're uh, using the N-word. Uh, if Joe Rogan believes we need to hear both sides of the vaccine debate, uh, well, I think he should grow a set of balls that haven't been shriveled by steroids and interview a Holocaust denier. If everything needs to be on the table to be discussed, Joe Rogan should have someone on who promotes the idea that people of color are not as smart as white Anglo-Saxons, because there are also plenty of scientists out there who have Excel spreadsheets to prove that the Holocaust didn't happen or the numbers were exaggerated. They have Excel spreadsheets to prove that certain people of color have lower IQs than certain Anglo-Saxons. Why not have them on your show. If everything is up for grabs, Joe Rogan, why don't you do that? He's not going to do that because uh, he believes in uh, catering to an audience that won't get him canceled. The minute he tried that, he'd get he'd get removed. Uh, the thing to remember is anti-vaxxers, most of them are anti-government. And some, not all, are, are racist. Uh, that's why we see the Confederate flag and the Nazi flag this weekend in Ottawa, the truckers. A lot of anti-vaxxers are racist. I'm not saying all anti-vaxxers are racist, but it doesn't surprise me that Joe Rogan uh, used the N-word 32 times that we know of on his show and didn't bother to take it down. Because anti-government ideologues, who they're anti-vaxxers, they're also anti-government, they have their roots in racism. Racists post-war and court turned on the government. If you're a racist, you are anti-government because it was the government that forced the racists to go to school with people of color. It was the government that integrated the workplace, demanded that colleges accept people of color. It was the government that demanded people of color could own or rent a home wherever they wanted and they could eat at the same lunch counter. You cannot separate hatred of government from racism. If you are a racist, you hate the government. I'm not saying that all anti-vaxxers are racist, but they are anti-government. So it doesn't surprise me when Joe Rogan's show uh, got caught with 32 N-words that we know of. And the Planet of the Apes thing, which was just, you know, 
hey, everybody makes mistakes. They do. Uh, just not 32 of the same mistakes that we know of. Uh, you cannot separate hatred of government from racism. And you cannot separate anti-vaxxers from hatred of government. And I believe many anti-vaxxers, not all of them, are racists. Ronald Reagan, we know this, began his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, where civil rights activists were famously slaughtered by the KKK. He was attacking government. He ran against government because he couldn't run against black people. It was 1980. You can't do that anymore. So you run against government. The term big government has been weaponized by racists and by corporate America to get bigots to hate government. The racists in America have been trained to believe that it's the government that is giving jobs to people of color, giving our tax dollars to people of color. And if you have enough people who believe people of color are getting all our tax dollars, they won't notice corporate America swooping in and really taking all our tax dollars. Again, I believe most anti-vaxxers, when they're not trying to sell you their immunity boosters, are promoting anti-government propaganda that is rooted in post-Warren court libertarianism that hates a strong federal government because a strong federal government imposes integration, affirmative action, and quotas. I believe most vaxxers, anti-vaxxers, are more than just anti-science. They are anti-government, and anti-government is anti-lift, anti-liberal, anti-enlightenment. Anti-government is a shorthand for get the people out of my business. Don't dictate my behavior, especially when it comes to how I refer to black people, especially when it comes to who my kids go to school with and who I must hire. It's all part of the same fabric. Anti-government, anti-vax, anti-black, anti-Mexican, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim. When you fear the government, you fear the people. And uh, this is what Wall Street has succeeded. This is what the financiers have succeeded in doing to a large swath of ignorant Americans. They've trained them to hate the wrong people and hate the government. When you have people in their cars listening to podcasts and radio shows, they are ripe for the picking. And this is a great opportunity for the left to somehow get them. Anger, anger. Joe Rogan is an angry guy. Mixed martial arts, that's anger. The right wing has owns talk radio. They are angry. The Democrats, the left, must, must show anger. They must demonize. They must scapegoat. We need to name names over and over. When the right says Jews will not replace us, we say Jeff 
Bezos is replacing you, not the Jews. When the right says Mexicans are stealing our jobs, we say, no, it's the Walton family. Your enemy isn't your neighbor. It's not the same sex couple who wants to wants you to make them a wedding cake or the teacher who wants your child to learn about the middle passage. Your enemy is Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Schwartzman from the Blackstone Group, Sergey Brin, Jamie Dimon, Larry Page, Larry Ellison, Warren Buffett, and David Rubenstein. Those are your enemies. Those are the demons. Those are the people you need to hate. Those are your enemies. Learn their names. These are the people who cause homelessness, starvation, illiteracy, hunger, medical debt, it's all caused by Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Schwartzman, Sergey Brin, Jamie Dimon, Larry Page, Larry Ellison, Warren Buffett, and David Rubenstein. Learn their names, repeat them. It's not people of color. It's not your government. It's the people who have taken over our government. Those are the people you should demonize. Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Schwartzman, Sergey Brin, Jamie Dimon, Larry Page, Larry Ellison, Warren Buffett, and David Rubenstein. Everybody else is just noise. They're not worthy of contempt. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Bell Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Hey, Liam McEnany, your friend David told me about how you thought you had to pass gas on the number four bus, but it turned out to be more than gas. Man, Liam McEnany, that has to be tough. Wearing white shorts on a Manhattan scorcher smack dab in the middle of rush hour with your girlfriend standing right next to you. I feel you, Liam McEnany. I really do. But it's a reminder of how precarious life is. One moment you think you're taking your lady downtown to your favorite Korean barbecue, 
And suddenly, one blast out of your leaky balloon knot, and poof, everything changes in a second. Poof. It's all over. Poof. Ronnie Bilge, dripping down your legs, Liam McEnany. You look for your girlfriend. Poof. She's gone. In the blink of a balloon knot. Won't even return your phone calls. I feel for you, Liam McEnany. Reminds me of 9-11. Beautiful fall day. I was planning a walk in the park with my second wife, Judith Nathan, who turned out to be a voracious harpy. And the next thing you know, well, I don't have to tell you what happened that day. It's all in my book, Leadership. I guess the point is, Liam McEnany, never take anything for granted. Cherish each moment. You never know. You just never know. One day you're with a woman who you can't figure out where you end and she begins. And then poof, intestinal air completely betrays you by turning solid. Poof, she's gone. Poof, all that's left is a memory. Okay, take care, Liam McEnany. And next time you're riding the bus in white shorts, remember to exercise constant vigilance because things don't always turn out the way you planned. Bye, Liam McEnany. You sound like someone I would like to get to know. Nine eleven. Ah, that is uh, that is Robert Smigel, the genius, the world's greatest comedy writer. Robert Smigel doing the voice of Rudy Giuliani. We did a fake cameo featuring Rudy Giuliani. Well, you're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. I'd like to introduce our next guest. He is the host of the This Is Revolution podcast. Please welcome Jason Miles. Hello, Jason. Oh, there you go. There you um, go. I don't know how to use Zoom because I've never liked it. And so my background is going to be green because oh. I have a green screen. So you win that. this time, Feldman. You <laughs> win this time. But rest assured, vengeance shall be mine. Jason is a musician and a video essayist. 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 Yeah, essayist. That sounds cool. Who is from Oakland and now right. is living right. down in Mexico, doing your show out of Mexico. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about the revolution. How, how do you define a revolution? And what you just, you, you just came out blazing with the tough questions. Yes. Huh? You don't want to hear about my mother? Uh, <laughs> why do you have to bring your mother into this? <laughs> Um, I mean, that's a difficult question um, at this time. I mean, the to be honest, the name from the show came from a, a lyric in, in a song. The show was originally called Sound Waves. Um, I'll, I'll have to kind of preface my revolutionary thought by kind of telling you the genesis of the show. I lived at a music rehearsal recording studio in West Oakland, California. Right. And uh, in this studio were generations of musicians, producers, stagehands. Um, 
and living there, I got to know them pretty well. And I wanted to call them the show sound waves. Cause you know, was the name of the studio I lived in. Um, if you're familiar with boots, Riley's, uh, sorry to bother you. He actually filmed a lot of that there, built out a lot of the sets there. Um, so there was a lot that was always going on and I figured I'd have this show to do when I wasn't touring where I could literally interview my friends. Mm-hmm. Um, COVID changed that. I <laughs> 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 made it a little more serious than I wanted it to be. And so the show stopped having any sort of musical influence other than me creating the music for the show and was just me talking about a lot of the things that I was seeing on the road for the last like seven years. And in 2012, it had gotten really difficult to tour, uh, especially domestically uh, as a black person, because there was a lot of Obama pushback in 2012. Oh yeah. The second election really marked. and, And in my opinion, again, traveling around, I'm not a big, musician so i can't like fly into new york city and chicago so i have to literally play every little town in between california to, so, to new york so you're saying that that obama did not usher in a post racial society that we didn't get beyond race actually we revealed how entrenched racism is i'll complicate the narrative good Before Obama, I worked in the Gulf of Mexico on oil rigs. And And then you got fired. You were working at the Horizon BP rig in the Gulf of Mexico. In all all seriousness, I worked across the water from it. And and they won't hire you anymore just because of a a 90-day leakage. I I used to, sad story, I used to chop her in with those guys. Really? I was, yeah, we took the same helipad, and they were they were across the water. That thing was massive. It looked like a city in the sea. Right. Massive. Um, that was so like was what? Really, that was like was really 2010, wasn't it? Were you just? It was 2010 when that thing went down. I wasn't there when it went yeah. down. Of course, I was I was back home. Um, and I only did that work because I worked in in the real estate finance business. And that went under in 07 for me more so. Well, than hang on for one second. Uh-huh. So you worked in finance, uh-huh. then you worked. On then I lost oil, everything. And then you worked I, on an oil rig. I decided that that was probably a good decision. You're the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't work inside, you'll never know. I agree with you. I actually you, you, first first of all for revolutions to work you always have to have class traders first and foremost right yes um and you kind of have to understand the inner workings of of power I agree with you 100% um and working in finance as I got older cuz I said I did it so young I was about 21 so as I got older I was like this is really gross um we are financially illiterate in America. We don't understand what they're doing to us. I don't understand how the Fed works. I don't think Jerome Powell understands how the <laughs> Fed works. Until it's, Yeah. And the sad part is, I mean, th- that's that to me is kind of a surface to a deeper discussion. Right. You know, if we, as, as we move further and further away from me defining revolution in one cute catchphrase but it's so i'll tell you with, what my definition of revolution sure. is 
my definition of revolution is the government becomes partners with corporate America. Mm -hmm. That we just start buying up shares. We we start buying up like five percent of corporations that we either uh, bail out or uh, they get some of our patents, some of our research. We own. We're, we be, we partner up with the oppressor, and that's that to me is a peaceful transition to socialism. Are you are you talking about the the world we're in right now, where we're <laughs> buying into the to the the corporate oligarchy? Well, we but the government owns it. Like the 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 where the, like social security is invested, mm -hmm. not through Wall Street. We just buy up. We we buy some stock in some of these companies that are too powerful and then break them up that to me is a, a more peaceful uh, i don't know I, I, first and foremost i think any sort of revolution has to come from here right we have to first and foremost educate ourselves and really understand how the mechanisms of, of power are working to to keep us down keep us oppressed i think that's first and foremost right. and everyone's political awareness or education comes at different points in their lives. Some people are, you know, red diaper babies, right. like my my good friend, uh, Toure Reed, <laughs> whose dad is Adolph Reed, whose grandpappy is Adolph Reed Sr. Right. You know, he's from a long line of, of, of educated Marxists. So he's going to have a very different trajectory than myself and even my co-host, who is, who's got me by, by six or seven years. He's, he's 53, like eight years. And and even and even his political education comes differently. And he is uh, his his uh, uncles studied in the Soviet Union. He's a he's a black man of Haitian descent who had uncles that went to the Soviet Union to study because you know the Communist Party opened up uh, educational avenues that right. the United States did not have. And one of his uncles still lives there. You know. So let's talk about. California. I used to live in Oakland. I used to live in San Francisco. I prefer. Yeah, yeah I, I Oakland is a uh, God's country. San Francisco, not so much. California, you on this is revolution. Talk about AB one four zero zero. Yeah. Explain to us. This is beyond the pale here. I mean, it's just it's it's how is it possible? What, what kind, first of all, what is it and what kind of power do the mm -hmm. Democrats have in California right now? Well, right. It all depends on what kind of Democrats you're talking about. Are you talking about progressive Democrats? Not much. Progressives right. in general, not much power. And again, I think that's part of the understanding of where power works, how it works. So this this isn't the first time that a single payer bill has come up and 2017 a single-payer bill came up and also didn't get voted on and it was shot down because of the who's going to pay for it excuse me uh rhetoric and jerry brown at the time was like yeah yeah, yeah. we don't know who's going to pay for it so so f it we don't need to bring this right. bill up it's going to get shot down anyway so gavin newsom has you know his uh coalition council on how you're going to pay for single payer health care right and not even working with those people um 
working with the California Nurses Association, which is, you know, huge, huge proponents of single payer. They've been consistently on the front lines of trying to get uh, single payer. Um, a state, state assemblyman out of San Jose and some other uh, California assemblymen put together this AB 1400 bill, which was going to institute a new wealth tax. Now, there was conservative pushback, and there were people within the Democratic Party that were like, we're not going to. We're not going to vote on this. And the, the progressives in the party were like really big about wanting to call out who wasn't going to vote on it. And the, the gentleman, I can't think of his name right now. It's like, I'll, I'll say it wrong. So I won't say it. I know he's a state assemblyman out right. of San Jose, um, which was also shocked me because that's coming out of Silicon Valley. And for that to come out of Silicon Valley, that let me think that that the big tech was giving it some sort of pass because maybe they're like, look, that's one less bill we have to pay if the state covers it. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can even be part of this big change because ultimately, and in non-geared DOS writes about this, you know, oh, so well and winners take all. I think a lot of the big tech oligarchs want to be stewards of change, but on their dime and it's usually not good right. <laughs> the way they want to do it and what they right. want to do, but they do want to make the world a better place. Right. As long as they don't have to sacrifice anything and can oh, make yeah. and make money making it a better place. In a very Randian sense, they want yeah. to make the world a better place. Let's, let's right. say that let's, let's throw that caveat in right. a Randian sense, nine Randian sense. <laughs> and, and, and so that's, it's coming out of San Jose that this, this bill is coming up and he doesn't vote on it. January 31st, I'm watching everything I could possibly watch here in Mexico. I got my VPN on on my computer right. so I can see if anything happens. And finally he releases a statement and says, well, we're not going to bring it to a floor vote because, and he even says, he goes, I knew that it would hurt my, Democratic Party members if we brought this to a floor vote. So once again, it gets silenced. What was interesting to me about the whole thing, why I even wanted to do a show on it, in the small left sphere that we exist in, Medicare for all becomes a, a big time talking point for a lot of people that do what we do on various levels. And for a lot of politicians that want to have some sort of um, even progressive gravi gravi progressive gravitas, they'll say they support Medicare for all. Chantel Brown, the woman that uh, defeated Nina Turner, mm -hmm. um, the corporate Democrat defeating Nina Turner in Ohio is now saying that she's on board with Medicare for all. You can say it and you know it's going to get shot down. So it doesn't really matter what you right. say. But here we had an opportunity to really get some sort of push and it was radio silence. Right. I, I, I used the little money I have to pay for the LA Times, so they covered it about as well as I saw it covered. I didn't even see it covered that, that well in the San Francisco Chronicle, which made me really sad. But as a whole, this podcast sphere and this Twitterverse that we exist in, no one really talked about the AB 1400. Right. And as a lot of the air got sucked out of, of, right. of left media during the force to vote. And I, I know we don't really have to talk about that, but just, just bringing it up. Um, that actually was a strategy that would have made sense in this particular case, because we're talking about 
a state matter, right? Federal matter. So there's not right, right. So for the state assemblyman not to bring it up for a floor vote is pretty problematic because we really don't know who was against it. So there's people like we should primary this person. It's like "Mm, maybe. You know, maybe that's a strategy, but that takes a lot of energy. You could work with the Nurses Association and, you know, try to get a bigger grassroots movement because, again, it was so quiet. So we were talking about you you came to office hours and I hope you come back about some kind of network of like minded podcasts amplifying each other's voices. We don't have the same clout that somebody i was talking about joe rogan earlier Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't reach 12 million people good speech exists but it's hard to find Mm -hmm. especially good speech that exposes the corruption of california state democrats who claim they're all in on medicare for all except actually passing some kind of legislation that would provide it. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. The the podcast universe on the left probably I, I don't know. I, I you said this at office hours Friday. I know we barely touched on this because California is only the fifth largest economy in the world. <laughs> so why would we want to talk? Are you, are you not? Are you in California still? Are you? Uh, I'm in Manhattan now. Okay, you're you're in New York. Yeah. Um, if if you think about, if I, I mentioned this on on the um, on the office hours, and, and thank you, uh, Rodrigo and M2 yes. for inviting me. Thank you, David, for thank you for on the office hours. So I call it the feedback loop of futility. <laughs> um, and and what happens is. Uh, because we're not reaching a local base like we would if we had a radio show. Right. We were, and, and I know you do do radio, but I think the radio, even the radio you do, isn't it? Uh, it's is it's it, KPFK. Uh, well, I, with the Ralph Nader show, it's yeah. syndicated. Syndicated. Uh, that's the word yeah, I'm looking yeah, for. Yeah. So you're still going out to, to, to different markets. Right. But because. The well, internet- I mean, it's, it's Ralph Nader and he doesn't reach one-twelfth of what Joe Rogan is. Oh, no. You know. Well, he's not talking about, you know, silly shit for yeah. clicks. Go ahead. You know, I'm sorry. Nader, I, seatbelt right. guy. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but, but if, if you think about it, because we reach a global audience and the American audience consumes so much of this types of type of media, you have people from all over the world that focus on parliamentary American politics. People in Canada talk about American politics more than their own. And we've done probably seven or eight shows on Canadian politics. Sometimes I'll be honest with you because I hate the fact that all these guys try to spend so much time in a market that's not their own in a country that's not their own because that's where the views are. Nobody gives nobody gave a shit about residential schools until mm-hmm. it became an American news story. No one gives a shit about Justin Trudeau 
until it becomes an American news story. So the fact that the American as a whole politic is what we focus on and federal politics and never state politics, because again, your market's all over the place. I only have 8,000 subscribers on my little bitty channel, right? Right. All eight ain't in Oakland, even though it's a city of a million people. Right. So we cover a lot of different different things, but I do try because I did actually work with the unhoused um, and live amongst them. I do try to, to focus on a lot of the local politics of where I'm from, because I do think it does help a broader audience understand how to organize and bigger than that, how to get involved yeah. from big cities to small cities. And, and right. we also deal with local politics in places like Springfield, Missouri, because again, the small town, we were also reaching quote unquote flyover country. So how do you organize not in melting pots or major metropolitan areas, or how do you organize with people that may be racist? Right. You know, so trying to amplify those voices for us is, is really important, but you're going to, you're going to lose a lot of clicks in that. You're going to lose a lot of views in that because we're, we're not always covering whatever's important, but that's the feedback loop of futility. It starts with something like, well, I think this politician's shitty. Okay. And then the next person's either contrary to you, or there's other people smaller than you. And, and the first, the first comment does, I need to, to say this. the first comment has to come from a large voice, right? A mm-hmm. larger voice in this small world. So if David Feldman says, I think AOC sucks. And then the contrarian comes in and says, David Feldman doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. Right. Then all the people that jump in on the contrary, and then all the people that want to get the David Feldman clicks to jump on and they defend you because they hope, well, maybe if I defend David Feldman, then I can be on his show. Right. And then your, your quote by the, by the next day, you're like, damn, that video got a right. 20,000 more views than usual. Right. <laughs> right. And then you see, so all of a sudden now you're seeing all the people that told you to fuck off. And now you're angry. It becomes a story. It becomes news. It becomes important. Because the people also commenting, because the the a and, and I don't I don't know AOC, but but the but the people that say the AOC sucks thing now there's all these commenters they're part of the loop as well. Everyone is getting something. You're getting views. The underlings are getting more views because now they can can uh, can tag you on it. Um, the people that are commenting on it are getting the dopamine rush for the likes and the retweets. Everybody's winning. You just can't get enough of you. Right. Right. And we just keep going around and around. And, and ultimately and we're losing in the end. We're, lo- we're all losing. We're losing. Right. Because because when you look at what the right is doing and again, why I do enjoy talking to people all over the country, they're literally organizing. They're literally getting into the local levels, levers of power. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the school boards. When Steve Bannon goes, hey. This is the plan. We're going to get into the school boards. We're going to get into the election committees. We're going to run the elections. We're... And what's happening? What is the scuttlebutt? Who listening to this show right now is dealing with uh, a, a school board that wants to rush kids back to school, not wear masks, take out 
quote unquote critical race theory or, or, uh, you know, learning about slavery or what did the, what did the governor of, uh, was it Texas say? I don't want anyone white to feel bad. <laughs> but it was Texas or Florida. It was one of those states where you're just like, Jesus yeah. Christ. So getting getting inside these local lever, levers of power, and because that's where you actually can move. Instead of constantly focusing and quote unquote critiquing and bitching at kind of powerless individuals. And each other. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you. One of the things we're trying to do here on the show, we, for example, Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings is going to be on. I think she might be coming up in the next few minutes. Besides being a physicist and an amazing artist, she is also a parks commissioner for Aurora, Illinois. She ran, Bernie said run, and she ran and got elected. To me, when she describes what's going on in Aurora, she might as well be describing what's going on in my neighborhood. It's as relevant as a, to me, it's like a sitcom about a small town. And I'm fascinated by, by anybody who is elected to any office and is making change. It's not everything has to be, as you said, on this grand federal level, uh, the real honesty, the real work is getting done on the granular level. The market forces dictate that we focus on the, the federal government because you want to read, you want to appeal to a larger audience and they've stripped the media. There, there's nobody covering Sacramento anymore. No. There are no local newspapers, local television, local radio doesn't have news they they bundle their news with other news stations the and, consolidation of 1994 right yeah deregulation and, um, and venture you, capital you, now I, I think it's is it alden capital it's a hedge fund that's buying up all the newspapers stripping them of their assets yeah. and there, there was an interesting documentary that was done that kind of based that that buyout in uh vegas and showing how destroying the Vegas newspaper, they destroyed a lot of the reporting on corruption that was done with casino owners. And I think when we think of Vegas, we constantly think of, you know, old Vegas and the mob who, mm -hmm. you know, hasn't really had a, a strong foot in that town in quite some time. You know, corporations have been in Vegas since, uh, oh God, what was his name? The crazy guy that had the syphilis on the top of the, oh God, flew the airplanes, Leonardo. Oh, Howard Hughes. Yeah. Since Howard Hughes came in there and 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 kind of changed the scene, so you know, it's sad. It's a sad day when that happens, and I think we're 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 starting to see it on our end. But I don't think people really know how to feel about it because no one wants to talk about something until it becomes a problem, right? Right. And I, I myself, and my co-host, and actually pretty much all four of us that are, are really deep deeply involved with the show um want to talk about more things that matter because we want to see a real vibrant left not just angry leftists right right well you'll come back this is great yeah how are things in mexico tonight before i say goodbye um i haven't left my house in three days as i've been trying to do this video essay that i'm almost done with it should be up by six 
Um, I know the feeling. It's about, uh, if I can give a quick plug. Yes, please. It's it's called Cosby Ain't Yo Daddy, and it's about parasocial relationships. Wow. Um, And uh, and the the lie of racial uplift um, politics. Right. People can see this where is this part of the, this is revolution podcast on youtube mm-hmm. and you've oh, seen yeah. you've seen kamau bell's showtime special on Cosby. yelled at it the whole time called to ray read up at like three in the morning yelling at, on, on the phone to him i was furious at it okay we need to i i i don't want to get into an argument with you i think it's an amazing documentary didn't like it you didn't like it Okay, next week. You wanted out. I wanted. I wanted to finish this before three. You have no idea how hard I was working to finish this because I wanted you to check it out. How, so w- give us the the web address so we can check sure. it out. YouTube.com backslash this is Revolution Podcast. This is Jason Miles. He will be back next week. He is the host, the co-host of This Is Revolution. Thank you so much, Jason. To be continued. Thank you, Mr. Feldman. Thank, Thank you, David. You. Sorry. That's right. David. It's, it's, Take care. Mr. Mr. Feldman is my mother's name or something. I don't know. How <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. Thank He's you. Up. We will be right back. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com <laughs> I'm a porcine gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetite's rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. suspicious please pardon me if i'm somewhat repetitious like a hand in a glove i'm a pig for love yeah i'm a pig for love He's a pig for love. He's a pig for love.
Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinell. He'll be joining us a little later on. Joining us is, I hope I'm pronouncing your name. I have a problem with pronouncing names, so I'm going to screw this up. But let's see if I get it right. Junaid Ahmed? 100%. I got it Junaid right. Junaid Ahmed, yes. Junaid Ahmed is running for Illinois' 8th congressional seat, and he wants to put power back into our hands and get corporations and special interests out of our government. He is for Medicare for All. Please go to... Let's give out your website. Junaid uh, for Congress. Sorry. Yeah, junaidforcongress.com uh, and donate. Give him money, please. He's endorsed by Mary Ann Cummings. Is she here? Did, did Professor Mary Ann come? Uh, let me just see. Yes. Oh, do you want to join in the inquisition, the questioning? Why not? Thank you. Also joining us is the Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, a Parks Commissioner, an elected Parks Commissioner for Aurora, Illinois, Professor Mary Ann Cummings. Now, where is the 8th District, Junaid? So it is the, the northwest part of Chicago. Uh, actually, this time, I believe we have a few, a very few houses in the city of Chicago. So just west of O'Hare, Starks, Rosemont. And so it's northwest suburbs of Chicago. Who is the current representative? Uh, it's uh, Raja Krishnamurti. And that would be a Democrat. That is a Democrat. He is uh, a Democrat who takes a lot of money from corporate. Um, what is what is his tax. last name? Krishnamurti, K-R-I-S-H. And, a. and where does he stand on Medicare for all? He does not support Medicare for all. It took, it took us a couple of years to figure that out. Uh, we were kind of, you know, uh, simple, honest people at the time, I guess. And we just wanted to, we supported him. Oh, by the way, we did support him because we thought he was for it. But right. um, he, he is not. We got a very clear answer recently. So what does it say about Democrats in Illinois? I believe he won his last election with 73% of the vote. So this is a pretty, this is a safe seat, right? Yes, it is. It is a deep blue district. Yes. Is it safe because... It is beyond safe. What, what does that say about the voters in the, the 8th district? Are they represented by Krishnamurti? Do they want Medicare for all? Or, or does he reflect what they want? No, he does not reflect what they want. A majority of the Democratic voters uh, support Medicare for all. And, you know, he's done an amazing job of creating that impression and aura about himself that he does. He is a progressive and he does support Medicare for all. He has been on MSNBC, CNN, you name it. 
Uh, and and as a matter of fact, I'll share a story that happened about last week, which is uh, you know kind of eye opening for us to be very honest. We knew it, but to the extent it came about, uh, one of our um, uh, volunteers, uh, Nancy, was knocking doors, and one person um, started uh, responding back that uh, Raja Krishnamurti actually supports Medicare for all, and Nancy tried to convince her that he actually does not, you know. And it, it took her a while to support that. So he has created that false impression of being a progressive. Uh, so yes, the district supports him. A lot of people think he is a progressive, but in reality, uh, he, he is not. And he's, he's not representing them. He's a graduate of Harvard Law School. Yes, sir. Have you tried running against him based just on that? Shouldn't, shouldn't <laughs> he be? I'm being serious. Shouldn't a candidate have to defend the fact that it, that he graduated from Harvard Law School. Why is that a positive? No, no, great question. There are a lot of reasons uh, we, we ran against him. Uh, he definitely creates, uh, carries a pedigree. Uh, Harvard, uh, Harvard being just uh, one of the many where he, he kind of built up a career and it's for himself. Going back to early 2000s, he worked in certain different administrations. And uh, th there's a lot. There's a lot that goes in here. Um, you know, for, that gives his reason. Fundamentally, he is not representing the people. He is representing the corporations he's taking a heck of a lot of money from. That's the bottom right. line. Right. What is the makeup of your district? Have they, has it been gerrymandered? Because I know there are a lot of districts that are shifting. There are a lot of incumbents running against each other. Has this district been yes. redrawn? It, it has been redrawn. So uh, the the District uh, 6 um, was taken away um, and it's a new District 6. So District 6 um, Representative Murray Newman is now running against uh, Sean Caston. So that's just south of us. But this district here is about, I would say, geographically about 30 to 40 percent is new turf, which is which is where, uh, you know, it's, it's brand new area. Uh, the people in in the district uh, a lot of these areas like if you go as you go uh, further away from schaumburg schaumburg is supposed to, uh, you know kind of sounds his um, base he's, he's got very weak support you talk to 10 people five people haven't heard his name the other four has heard heard his name but care less about him right. and all they have six hours eight hours of canvassing you'll probably find one or two people who may say oh yeah i support him and that too because he supports medicare for all <laughs> Right. You have a, a large Latino population in, yes, your, in your district. 24%. But they seem to be doing, the, the district is doing well in terms of health insurance. A lot of, it's, it's a... Well, one in 10 people in our district have absolutely no health insurance. Even that false notion of everybody is covered. I'll, I'll just share, yeah. and this is, this is something I can sh share tons of stories as we're uh, meeting people. I'll show you my own story. I thought I had the best insurance out there. Uh, I pay about 25,000 uh, uh, almost in, in health coverage, in premiums. When for your family, son, uh, for your family. For, my, for, the, for the family, family of, you know, my, my wife and a few, four beautiful kids. And when my son had to be in the hospital for a couple of days, uh, so a couple of years ago, um, and uh, the bill we got was about $10,000. I was like, 
this is the first time ever that I remember I'm using health insurance, uh, as you know, since we had our kids and this, what's going on here? And, and that's when I realized that if somebody, you know, an average person in the district making 60, 70,000 a year, it's just gonna go bankrupt with that kind of bill. And, and when, we, when we challenged our, our representative uh, as to, hey, why, why we, we supported you because we thought you support Medicare for all. And why do you not support it? And his response is, uh, oh, people in my district uh, do not really support Medicare for all. They want their private health insurance. I was like, how many people are you talking to? Just your top-down donors doesn't make your district, sir. It's the bottom-up that you need to talk to, and you're missing an action. And that's the reason for you to go back in now. I'm going to ask Professor Marianne to join in in a second. What are they going to do? What is the Democratic Party going to do? The idea of branding a candidate, it, it no longer holds up. We, we, it, it used to be good enough to say, I support Medicare for all. But because of social media, it's too easy to catch them in their lies they're going to have to start running authentic candidates if they want to. They can keep the DCCC can keep you from getting the nomination. But when it comes to the general election, if they keep running liars, they are going to keep they're going to the Democrats are going to lose there. It's indefensible. Uh, what what how do they counter that how does a corporate if you were a corporate democrat can you protect your turf or no right no and and, and i believe this is where uh, you'd be you'd be amazed uh, david when we are walking the streets the amount of support that we are getting from people when we just talk about our, our platform we don't have to go deep just talk about the fundamentals of what we are standing up for and, and just give some practice for the current representation. The support is unbelievable, mm -hmm. except a few, um, you know, the, 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 the hardcore Democratic Party loyals, if you want to call it, they don't want to go in under any circumstance against an incumbent. A majority of the people are excited for this race. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I will tell you, we have so far raised uh, close to 700,000, 100% of it. 100% of it coming uh, from uh, from people, grassroots, just people like you and I contributing because we are not taking a, a dime from corporate PACs. And, and so that tells you, that tells you the amount of support we're quickly building uh, in this campaign. The, my new obsession is cutting through clutter and focusing, that you have to stand for one, maybe two things. I noticed, you're leading with Medicare for all. I agree with you 100%. I think we dilute the message when we try to be all things to all people. Why do you lead with Medicare for all with all the problems facing America? Evictions, shortage of housing, food stamps, education. Why, why is it? And I agree with you. Why Medicare for all? See, all of those things that you just mentioned are absolutely important. And, and there is, there is uh, you know, a lot of things about my activism that focuses on a lot of those different things. But let me tell you why 
why I kind of took Medicare for all, because I, I'll take you back a few years to, to set the stage for this, right? We, um, you know, I traveled for business quite a bit. And I realized very quickly, I, we hear it all the time these days, but back in the day, I'm talking about 2012, 2013, 14, um, I kind of saw that every other developed nation has healthcare as a basic human right. You're the only nation who does not. So it was in the back of my mind. And fast forward to 2015, when I, when I heard Bernie Sanders talking about these things, I immediately jumped on board that, yes, we are going to have to support him for that reason. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, we supported Raja Krishnamurti for the same reasons, because we thought he was for it. And if we do not have a healthy nation, an educated nation, we are not going to accomplish anything else. If people, you know, half a million people go bankrupt because of medical bills, in the world's richest nation, unacceptable. So we had to pick one signature issue that would be Medicare for all, even though we stand for a lot of other good things, like you know, publicly funded college education and public universities, uh, homelessness and all that. That's absolutely critical. We have policies around it. I focus on it. But Medicare for all is something that is very dear to my heart. And I realized that when I got hit with that as, you know, bill of right. close to 10,000, I want to save the rest of the country from that. Uh, these are the two questions I ask. Can uh, I ask all the candidates, can we have Medicare for all, but still have health insurance companies? See, then it, it uh, see if you do that, the issue that would create is it would create a two-class system. Then, you know, you go with your uh, health insurance and you find your spot in the top paying hospitals. And then everybody else with Medicare will have to go. I think that's the fundamental problem with, with that. I think what we're going to have to do is, is move towards a single payer mm-hmm. uh, Medicare for all. So everybody gets that as a basic human right, not just in word as we get it today. Like everybody, you know, apparently has access to healthcare, but what kind of healthcare? What is that realistic healthcare? And can you get elected demonizing the health insurance companies? My complaint with our side is we don't know how to scapegoat. We don't know how to get people angry. We, we appeal to people's brains instead of their bile. I think bile is really important. Yes, yes, I, I, I do. I do agree. It is very important. And, and you know, demonizing is, is, is one aspect of it. But if you if you just focus on the issue, right, and by definition, all these healthcare, you know, the insurance companies go out of business. That's the bottom line. That's a fact. Now, the simple question that came to my mind, and I'm pretty sure everybody else would be thinking, especially if somebody is working in that industry, is what happens, right? What happens to the livelihood of all those people? In this day and age, a big majority of the people who work in, in, in insurance companies have skills that can be utilized elsewhere. And if they do not, they can be trained. They can be trained to get uh, you know, respectable jobs elsewhere. So we're not talking about you shut down today and tomorrow single payer comes in. It could be a two year, it could be a five year, it could be a three year, I don't know. Uh, a, a good progress that we can have a, a respectable transition for these people to move from their existing jobs to the new jobs. Right. I'm going to ask you one more question. I, if I were running for office, I would name them, you know, Karen Lynch is the CEO of uh, Aetna. I would 
demonize these people by name. I would let them know that I'm going to Washington. You vote for me. I'm going to enter into the congressional record the names of all the CEOs of these health insurance companies who are responsible for the slaughter of about 55,000 Americans each year. People die because of these people. Did the Taliban, this is my other question, did the Taliban attack us on 9-11? Did the people of Afghanistan attack us on 9-11? No. No. Yeah. How, how do we allow generals like uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to testify uh, on funding the military? Because if the Taliban, uh, you know, the Taliban is a threat to our security and our safety. And if you don't fund the Pentagon, uh, they will come for us. Like they, like they did on two, you know, on nine eleven. How is it possible that nobody corrects him? That, that we have an entire, we have an entire House of Representatives and a Senate that perpetuates the lie that Afghanistan and the Taliban attacked us on nine eleven. Not, not a single Congressperson corrects them. How is that possible? Oh, God, first, 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 uh, you know, you brought Afghanistan up. Uh, it, it is it is sad as a people what we have done to that nation, what we have done to the people. We, are, we hear stories where, where parents, because they haven't eaten for days and days, uh, they, they sell their children. They sell their, I mean, it's, it's, these are stories that would make you cry. And guess what? It's my tax dollars. It's your tax dollars that did it. It is very unfortunate. And our silence. Sad. And our silence. And our, our silence is most important. David, the representation that we have takes hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, hundreds of millions. The representation, my own representative, Raja Krishnamurti, took hundreds of thousands of dollars from defense contractors. This industrial complex, the military industrial complex, is funneling in so much money that everybody is shutting up. Nobody's opening up and saying what is the right thing to say. When you and I open this mouth, we are labeled a leftist, we are right. labeled this, labeled that. Look, it's black and white, guys. What did the people of Afghanistan have to do with our security? Why did we spend, what, $7 trillion was that number? I think it was, that kind of I think that's the seven trillion is what got transferred to the richest one percent. I think I heard it was fourteen trillion dollars. Fourteen trillion, God! Yeah. I mean, imagine that kind of money. What percentage of that money actually went to the people? Why, why does it sound childish when somebody says, "Feed the Taliban," you know, drop food, not bombs? Why am I accused of being a child for suggesting that? Professor Marianne Cummings, why, why, what is the argument, the rational argument against feeding people we think are our enemies? They're not our enemies, but what, what is the, the rational argument against bombing people with food and medicine, books and teachers? And doctors. Oh, well, I mean, there's a evil argument that is like, grow up, 
I mean, this is our program. And they've got us, they've got even the left adopting this. For instance, uh, last year, they talked about uh, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and AOC disciplining their, their followers, disciplining them so they all vote for Joe Biden. I said, that isn't discipline, that is capitulation. Mm -hmm. They may end up voting for Joe Biden, but they should all be screaming, you know, like some demands, like non-negotiable demands. And we don't do that. And when you don't stand up, you get, you know, the it's it's the sum of all forces. And there to the extent that you are not pushing a hundred percent against all the money and all the, you know. People, once they get into Congress, and I will have to ask Janae this question, you get into Congress and that's all you hear is the money. You hear what the donors say through Nancy Pelosi, through the people giving you advice, like, oh, just sit tight. You can be a senator, blah, blah, blah. Um, And of course, then you do it by just going along with them. You have to push. And I'd like to ask Janae, how do you think... How do you think you can succeed where the squad appears to have stalled against changing the Democratic Party and therefore the conversation and therefore the policy? Yeah, I think um, to to uh, David's earliest point, uh, why did I pick just Medicare for all as the, as the as the signature issue for us? Right, obviously everything else being important. I think what's, what's going to have to happen is we, we we pick a signature issue and we stick to it and we bring it up every time. Build back better comps. We talk about, you know, my platform talks about um, uh, free public universities. Build back better has absolutely nothing for, for that in that. That's the one I'm going to take a sticking point and stick to it and call them out and keep fighting, keep going louder and louder and louder. And and I think people people have started respecting it. People have started voting for people who are who are, you know, speaking out loud for these things. And to your question, Marianne, about uh, you know, of this establishment, you know what? It it, it would wouldn't scare me. I am uh, you know, I'm not going there to make a living, right? If, if I lose the next year, I'll come back and right, get, get right back to my business. I'm a, I'm a technology guy. I don't think technology is going anywhere. I can get back, find a job two years from now. I can find a job 10 years from now. So I'm not worried about losing my seat. I will be loud. I will negotiate. I will, I will talk to them. I will be the, I'll be the, you know, the person who will be carrying that message. Um, that's, that's my response to it. The primary is June 28th. Yes. And do you think you will get Raja Krishnamurti to debate you, Congressman Krishnamurti, to debate you? Yeah, I, I think once we get on the ballot, uh, most likely I'm expecting it. Yeah, yeah, we all have to get people on the ballot, and that's kind of hard. It's like the the coldest freaking month of the year, trying to get door to door, and we don't. I think we have until the first week of March to get the requisite numbers. So um, I'm down here working for Rachel Ventura, who you know very well, and who will be on the show after we get her on the ballot. <laughs> so, when, awesome. And when do we, 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 we do have to wrap it up. I hope you come back 
And I hope my listeners will support you and donate money. Go to Junaid for Congress. Let me spell it. J-U-N-A-I-D for Congress.com and give him money. If you're an American citizen or if you have a green card, you are allowed to donate money to Junaid Ahmed and we want to send him to Congress. He is the Democrat we want to be. Junaid for uh, Congress.com. Give him money right now. It's amazing what or $500 can do. You don't take corporate funding. You're beholden to nobody other than your constituents. We don't need to overturn Citizens United, do we? We just need candidates like you. That's an automatic overturn. Just elect people who refuse uh, to take money from corporations. It's easier... They make it harder. They say things like, oh, if only you know, the Democrats, we just we need a constitutional amendment for to overthrow Citizens United. That's never going to happen. Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi, you need to stop taking money from from corporations. Well, thank you, Professor Marianne. You will be back later on in the show. And thank you for introducing us to Junaid. And I don't ask my listeners for much. I really don't. Please, if you if you listen to this show, if you appreciate Professor Marianne Cummings, you know that we need Junaid Ahmed in Congress. Go to junaidforcongress.com, J-U-N-A-I-D for congress.com, $5, $5, please donate right now. You'll feel good. You'll feel good. Don't have that Big Mac tonight or that cappuccino. You're investing in our future by supporting candidates like Junaid Ahmed. Thank you. Please come back. Anything you need, we're behind you 100%. Come Thank to, you. Come to office hours. We'll raise money for you at office hours. We need money is speech in this country. Go to junaidforcongress.com right now. Thank you. And thank you, Professor Marianne, for introducing us to this great candidate. I agree with thank you. Thank you so much. I agree with thank you 100 percent. I do. Well, joining us in Humboldt County is David Cobb, who ran for president on the Green Party ticket. And he is uh, also you also ran Ralph Nader's campaign in Texas. In, in 2000, I was the campaign manager for Ralph uh, in 2000. Uh, I, I managed Jill Stein's campaign. But I also want to say, David, I don't get a chance to say this often enough on your program, is remember, uh, I also uh, have lobbied elected officials. Uh, I have uh, engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience and have been arrested as well. So I, uh, I and I've created other like institutions. So I believe in both institutional power and disruptive power, resist and build. My point is, I believe that we have to use all the tools in our toolbox to provoke and win a peaceful revolution in this country. Electoral politics is one of the tools. I believe in using it. But so, too, is education. So, too, is building community land trust and worker-owned cooperatives. Like So 
I enter into this conversation, David, especially today, um, with the hope that we can do, talk about two things. One, economics and economic democracy. And two, and this is really important, like really confront lessons learned uh, here in California, watching the Democratic Party kill single payer healthcare. Because last week, you said the one thing that the Democratic Party needs to come together on clearly and unequivocally was healthcare is a human right, healthcare for all, right? I re- am, I, am I being fair? That yep. was last week, you and I had that conversation. This is the point. I'm not saying death to the Democratic Party. I'm saying those of you who are working within the Democratic Party have got to come to terms with the fact that your leadership are neoliberals. I heard the very tail end of that last conversation. Whoever that candidate was ought to be the kind of person that the Democratic Party uh, supports. But what I know with clarity is that the leadership of the Democratic Party at the national level and at virtually every uh, state committee are run by neoliberal corporatists. Let's, they let's, do not support candidates like that. Let, let's talk about how the Democrats completely dropped dropped the ball on single payer in California. There was A, B, what was it, 14 something, something, something? Well, yes, uh, I, I can get it for you, but but like- What would it have done? What would it have done? It would have literally created a statewide level uh, uh, single payer model uh, for healthcare. It would it, the frame was to basically take Medicare and do it at the entire state level. It would have uh, basically been a Medicare for all uh, campaign, right? Uh, and not just a campaign. It was actually a statutory language. Uh, and I want to lift up Ash Colra. Uh, who is a genuine progressive Democrat uh, was leading the charge, right? Uh, that that's that needs to be said and acknowledged. Um, but AB 1400 would have literally created uh, a, an entire uh, legislation uh, to. Uh, so uh, where was our vice president, who was the senator from California, attorney general? from California who claims she was for Medicare for all. She can't fly back. No, she was not only she was not only silent, but it looks like uh, from all intents and purposes that uh, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris and Governor Newsom behind the scenes uh, spike. They didn't just drop the ball, David. They spiked it in favor of continued corporatized health insurance. Uh, they did not even allow it to come to a vote. And uh, like, remember y'all, this is California where Democrats control a super majority of both the assembly and the state Senate and the governor's mansion. Wow. You cannot blame this on the Republican party wow. at all. Wow. Zero. Wow. This is 100% a decision of the leadership of the Democratic Party of the state of California. And their argument against not moving on this was nobody's paying attention. Well, they are forcing Ash Kalra, who is a genuine progressive, to fall on his sword and because they did not bring it to a vote, right? It died in committee uh, because Ash Kalra 
declined to bring it to a vote of the General Assembly. It had already passed the state Senate. So it had already passed all the other committees. The only thing that needed to happen, there were only two steps from guaranteeing healthcare as a human right under uh, AB 1400 in the state of California. One, a vote of the General Assembly, two, the signature of Governor Newsom, right? Now, I wanna remind you that this is the same thing that happened under Governor Jerry Brown when the Democrats controlled a supermajority of the state Senate, a supermajority of the assembly and the governor's mansion. It made it all the way through and got uh, all the committees in both the, 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 um, the state assembly uh, and in the state Senate under Brown and Brown vetoed it. Mm-hmm. The Democrat vetoed it. Where the is the election cycle? Where's the outrage? Go ahead. I've got it. Uh, I hope your your listeners and viewers do, because the very next session had uh, 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 the Republican Arnold Schwarzenegger in the governor's mansion. Guess what happened there? The state Senate passed it. The state assembly passed it. They forced uh, Schwarzenegger to veto it. This time, Newsom campaigned on single payer and 1400 in support with the California Nurses uh, United, CNU, uh, or uh, CNA. Uh, and the, 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 it's very clear that Ash Calra was told, don't bring it to a vote. So... Are we seeing protests? Are we seeing? Well, I'm saying this. I'm saying multiple things. Number one, protest the hell out of these corporate Democrats anywhere they are. But if you're living in California, you need to let your representative know that this is a definitional issue for you. That if you can't support single payer health care, you won't get their vote, period, full stop. Like, like, like remember, as the great political philosopher uh, Frederick Douglass said, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. And here's another thing that I tell people all the time, and that is this. Like uh, in electoral politics, if you get taken for granted, you just got taken. Right. And progressive Democrats are being taken for granted time and time again. This whole idea that Republic, yes, Republicans are worse. Yes, Republicans are neo-Confederates and neo-fascists. Yes, all of that is true. But what's the point of winning elections if your elected representatives continue to represent the interest of corporate America instead of actually working class Americans? So protest, but also get your butt into the into races yourself. If you want to run if you want to see Democrats actually change, you've got to challenge corporate Democrats. There's no other way around it. Yes, I agree with you. I really uh, am trying to get on board the let's hate the Republicans and support the Democrats bandwagon. It's increasingly harder to do this. It, it, uh, there's We're supporting these candidates who are running against Democratic incumbents. But I don't know what. I don't know. 
I, I, I think you're right. And I think Marianne Cummings is, is right. That when you're taken for granted, you get taken. I, I, uh, yeah. And I, like, thank you, Marianne, because I, I am watching it. I, I, like the other great political philosopher who I quote on this program. Sometimes I, I quote Frederick Douglass sometimes, uh, but I also quote the other great political philosopher, Lily Tomlin, who said, no matter how, cynical i get it's hard to keep up i'm watching marianne in the chat share with us that the democrats wouldn't even give Janaid access to their vote builder that should tell us something right like this is part of the problem all this focus on electoral politics without access to a mass movement misses the point that we can't actually just uh, have good candidates we have to actually have a movement that candidates who come out of the movement. And when I like, and again, I, like, you know me, David, like you and I have disagreed. We've, we fussed at each other. We've told jokes, uh, you know, together and sometimes at each other's expenses. But, but the one thing that's very clear to me is when I hear you and the P and the, the Democrats that you're bringing onto this show, I'm like, I'd vote for that Democrat. And I get plenty of greens who yell at me, right? Because I, I, I am not a partisan one way or the other. I do believe that we have to actually build a mass movement that understands that we're actually in a contest for power. And electoral politics is all against us, right? Like, but, but we have to treat electoral politics like a front of struggle. And this idea of being mealy-mouthed and not confronting corporate power and capitalism and white supremacy is the wrong way to engage electoral politics. Because even if you win, then you find yourself in Ash Calra's position beholden to you know the power structure instead of beholden to a movement. That's why, by the way, the leadership of the D Democratic Party was not just frightened of, they were scared shitless of Bernie Sanders. Right. They, they were terrified of Bernie Sanders. A, a good outcome for us would be the Democrats lose the House and the Senate in November. Biden is still president. And we see more left leftists elected in the safe seats. We lose we lose the House, we lose the Senate, but more the squad gets bigger. Yeah, listen, uh, I agree that what we need to do is is get actual leftists into power uh, uh, in elected positions of power. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, and, and, like I'm you're not going to hear me say that I want Republicans in charge of Congress. I don't want Republicans in charge of dog catcher like they, they, I feel like we have to be clear that this current Republican Party are literally neo-Confederates and, and, and fascists. Uh, and uh, no ifs, ands, and buts about that. I also don't really see the Democratic Party, though, as being the vehicle for true leftist politics. Again, that's why we should treat it as a front of struggle. Like uh, so often, uh, you know, in these conversations, I follow the uh, the chats and there's all this, you know, Green Party has no power. Well, of course not. Neither do progressives like build a movement and sniping amongst uh, our, our own base is not the way you build a movement. No. Uh, so, uh, you know, to me, I'm way more interested uh, in uh, at the local level 
where we have a lot more ability to actually win things uh, in electoral politics, but also why I encourage people to do genuine political education, to come to terms with the ecological crisis, the economic crisis, and the political crisis. We're in early systems systems failure, right? We're in the early stages of systems failure. Like, right. like and, and I mean collapse, right? Uh, and so, to me, I spend 90% of my time working on Cooperation Humboldt and Dishkama Humboldt and indigenous-led community land trust to heal generational trauma by he- healing this land and meeting our material needs for food, for housing, for employment. Like literally 90% of my time is spent there. And literally y'all, just before this call, I was talking uh, to folks, uh, progressives, about in Eureka, California, about how we can bring together progressive Democrats, independents and greens to take over our local school board. Yeah. When you sit down with people, I don't. I live in Manhattan and there are no people here. There really aren't. There's everything is transactional here. But when you talk to real people, what don't we agree on? What 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 is what what is the real argument? Oh. So it depends on which people, right? Like, I will tell you this, the, the, the Republicans have been incredibly uh, skilled at leveraging God, guns, gated communities, right? The three G's that they actually, and they exploit it. Um, it's also why, for example, and, and by the way, Nancy, the Aleppo, that was the libertarian. Jill Stein actually answered it perfectly. This is part of the point I get. I shouldn't, I should know better than to look at the, uh, at the chat, right? It, it's distracting. I should talk to you, David. Right. Uh, the, the reality is that um, where ordinary people uh, end up disagreeing on a couple of the uh, of uh, like culture war stuff, but at, but where, and that's why it's so important to understand the narrative. This is actually about who rules, who's in control. And at the end of the day, the, uh, the there is, that's why Bernie Sanders was, was, was actually building a true movement. Right. And that movement included, and I've said this before, I know it's just anecdotal, but it's objectively true. I've got cousins who voted for Donald Trump who told me I would have voted for Bernie. Like, and I'm not the only person with that anecdotal evidence. Like the the polling data looks pretty clear that Bernie would have beaten Donald Trump uh, in a head-to-head uh, and Hillary Clinton didn't, right? Like, let, let's be very clear about that. Uh, and it's also why the Democratic Party operatives were were so intent on destroying uh, uh, the Sanders campaign, just like they were intent on destroying the Nader's campaign back in 2000, because they would rather lose to Republicans than allow genuine leftists even a shot at contesting for power. Right. That's the problem. The leadership of the, the Democratic Party are part of the problem. They're not the only problem. They're part of it. 2000, Ralph Nader ran against George W. Bush and Al Gore. Correct. Did he say anything that didn't turn out to be true? He did not say a single thing. And, I, and I'll tell you another thing about 2000. I mean, he got uh, it completely Correct. Right. He was 100 percent correct. And look, I got to tell you, 
remember, I'm a lawyer because of two people, Ralph Nader and Atticus Finch. Atticus Finch, of course, is a fictional character in To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. Ralph Nader's a real human being. You know, I'll tell you so something. If you tell people about Ralph Nader, they think he's a fictional character. If you go over what he's given this world, people oh. think that must be a fictional character. Get this. And, and the thing is, they'll, the, the ruling elite learned a lesson with Ralph, too. Like, remember, they let him on the Merv Griffith show. They let him on like, you know, and like they will never again allow somebody like Ralph to have the platform that he did because he spoke plainly and simply about citizen power. He's he, he galvanized people, right? Like, like there's a reason they didn't let Ralph debate in 2000 because they were deathly afraid of somebody actually having an honest conversation about economic democracy in this country. The point about 2000 I also think is critical to make and that is in 2000, in the last month of the campaign, the Democratic National Committee spent $5 million in the state of California. And that media buy was some very sophisticated, especially by 2000 uh, standards of uh, Ralph Nader talking, right? You didn't hear what he said, but you just saw his image and it morphed into George Bush. And it ended with a vote for Nader is a vote for Bush. Now, let me ask you, in five, over $5 million. In California, which was going to go. California, he, he won by over 18% of the vote. Everybody already knew that was happening. So let me ask you, why did they spend $5 million in California instead of, I don't know, Florida or Tennessee, Al Gore's own state that he lost, or Vermont, any one of those, and uh, Al Gore wins the presidency? Answer, because it was more important for the leadership of the Democratic Party to crush the Green Party in its infancy in our first presidential campaign with, with the most trusted man in America running under our ticket, uh, articulating that all we need is to get 5% and it can shift the entire discourse to the right. left. The leadership of the Democratic Party were more interested in killing the Green Party than they were beating George Bush. That's a fact. And so earlier we were talking about Joe Rogan and this intellectual pygmy named John Stewart, who was saying, oh, don't cancel bad speech. We need more good speech. What intellectual pygmy, pygmies, frauds like John Stewart, anti-union, John Stewart, who supported Biden and not Bernie, what intellectual pygmies like John Stewart say is you have to engage with bad speech when, in fact, good speech, which is anti-corporate speech, is not heard. Correct. And again, like, like it, it brings me no pleasure, but like we have to be like really clear about the legal structures around corporate speech and political speech. And remember that. Uh, the Powell memo that we've talked about before. Remember that Lewis Powell was a Democratic Party operative. He wrote a memo for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that talked about how to save the country from the Naderites. Right. Look at read the read the damn memo, right? Uh, offer authored by a corporatist who went on to get onto the uh, who was a Democrat. Who, who wrote it for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was a Democratic Party operative. And in that memo, he literally said, we are 
I, I, I am fearful that we're losing control of the country to the Naderites uh, and the progressives. Do you know why, by the way, the ruling elite were worried in the uh, late 60s and early 70s that they were about to lose control uh, of the country? Why? Because they were about to lose control of the country. Right. Because we had a mass movement of, of ordinary people who were advocating for the environment, for organized labor, for racial and social justice. There was an actual movement that actually uh, represented that. And the Powell memo, again, authored by a Democrat for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, talked about the need for a, uh, a, uh, a counter narrative that would ensure that money is free speech. It was, and he was rewarded by being uh, placed onto the U.S. Supreme Court where he authored a series of Supreme Court decisions that gutted true political speech and created corporate speech. That never existed before. You have to be clear about that. Do you know, and it wasn't just the U.S. uh, uh, FEC versus Citizens United. That was just an icing on the cake of a series of decisions. David Feldman and and viewers and listeners, you have to understand that just 20, 30 years ago, it was a crime to use corporate money in most states to even try to influence an election, right? Like we have to fight for the narrative, but we have to build a movement. And just doing elections every two to four years and voting every two to four years doesn't get it done. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. By the way, Al Gore, people talk about what a great president he would have been. I worked for Al Gore. I worked for Current TV. And he tried to set up a left of center news network when he was uh, no longer vice president. And he ended up selling it for about half a billion dollars to Al Jazeera, to Qatar. He took petrodollars. Mr. Mr. Green took petrodollars. Uh, by the way, Al Jazeera, though, is... we. I'd give anything to have a news gathering operation in America that's half as good as Al Jazeera. Oh, my God. Or or, or BBC, for that matter. Because, look, let's say something about Al Gore, right? Remember, you know, the uh, uh, Al Gore and the, the author of Earth in the Balance. Mm-hmm. But look at the policies that he advocated for while in the U.S. Senate representing Tennessee or as vice president of the United States. And I often said, you know what? That guy who wrote Earth in the Balance, I wish he would read it. I wish he would have actually legislated Uh, as if uh, they understood what that was. Like, you know, it's not just that he was a piss poor candidate, which he was. It's deeper than that. Uh, Al Gore was a, and and still is carrying water for the corporatists. He's a billionaire. He's up like- It's for the largest shareholders of Apple. Yes, I mean, it's, it's crazy, David. Like, and this is why when Dr. Fraud joins us, you know, like like she talks all the time uh, about the need to actually build a working class people's party that has class consciousness, that understands that really what we're talking about is, and it's not just socioeconomic class, right? When, when Dr. Fraud and I uh, and others talk about class consciousness, we're talking not just about socioeconomic class, 
We're talking about who owns and controls the means of production. Because even well, like upper middle class folks who were laboring, they're still part of the working class. Right. I really, like, I don't know how you get around building a mass movement. If, if it's not a class conscious movement, it's never going to work. Right. I wish that it would, but it won't. When you, when you talk to the people in Humboldt, California, when you get behind, when you put labels behind uh -huh. and don't identify as, I would assume Humboldt has a lot of, uh, I was pretty red. You, there's some. Listen, well, it's interesting. Humboldt County is in far Northern California. So what we have, it, like we're super purple uh, overall. Now there are, there like Democrats actually control most of the county uh, and most of the urban centers, but there are a lot of very libertarian sort of pot growing culture out here. And there are a there are pockets, right? Of very uh, rock ribbed conservative Republicans. Uh, so it's a very interesting thing, but what I can tell you on countywide races in Humboldt County, we were the first county but way before Citizens United to pass a ballot initiative that says corporations are not people and they don't have constitutional rights to give money in elections. We passed the strong, and we're like 85% white. Our county, under the leadership of Centro del Pueblo, uh, an immigrant rights organization led by immigrants, uh, we passed the strongest sanctuary ordinance anywhere in the country. So what we found is that when we come together and run ballot initiatives, we can be far more left and far more progressive. The city of Eureka just passed ranked choice voting. The point is when we legislate directly using the citizens initiative process and just basically have the candidates trail our movement, we're more left and we're more progressive. And we win, including in those places where Republicans outnumber uh, 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 Democrats. We would lose a, a gun control ordinance, but on pocketbook economic issues, we win. Right, what is it about? Also, by the way, Bernie Sanders got more in Humboldt County was the highest percentage of any county west of the Mississippi. So what is it that when you're the more rural you get, the more disaffected you become when it comes to government and the Democratic Party. You just want to be because left the, alone or? No, it's because like, if you really want an answer to that question, yeah. uh, David, read the book, What's the Matter with Kansas? Right. Um, because it really does show how the Democratic Party has abandoned us. And I'm gonna say us, because I come out of rural Texas, I live in rural Cal uh, California now, the leadership of the Democratic Party have abandoned us, right? Uh, they, they, they don't have, like again, a, pro a genuine progressive populist base would actually be a winner. Remember that Kansas was bleeding Kansas because it was the site of rabid uh, uh, abolitionists. Uh, they, you know, I could go down the list of this history. Like they've abandoned rural America. So what, what, when it, if you were to push aside all the issues, what corporate America wants is zero inflation 
and to pay as little as they possibly can the workers. That's, that's what they want. When you get Joe Manchin, when you get a couple of drinks into him, he will say, if I support a social safety net, then people will charge more at work. If I support a social safety net, too much money swimming around our economy might increase inflation. My job is to protect the dollar, a sound dollar, and keep wages low. That's pretty much the debate, but they don't say that. Correct. I mean, that is the debate, right? But they don't say that, and we don't force them to have an actual conversation uh, about that because people get hung up on the D versus the R, right? Like, And to me, that's part of the problem. And I'm not blowing sunshine up your ass when I tell you this, Feldman, but this is one of the very few places uh, where there are actual considered discussions and debates that go beyond, like that talk about electropolitics, but actually go beyond just the D versus the R, right? right. D good, R is bad. That, that, that's basically what so many people are doing. The, the argument, the debate, the only debate to be had about the social safety net is, will it cause inflation? Will wages, will it force corporations to pay more in wages? That's it. That's it. And then the cruelty of it, then the delight that the sadists have in seeing people suffer, but that's not worth dignifying. Everything else is just obfuscation, getting people not to admit that they are on the side of corporate greed, that, that everything else is nonsense. Listen, again, a, a like, that's why you repeatedly hear me try to come back to building a mass movement that is both populist and progressive and a narrative, right? And again, this idea about uh, like uh, like elections are just a front of struggle, David. Like at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, law follows culture uh, and legislation follows the the, the narrative. And, and most progressives have given up on a narrative uh, of, and again, look at the polling, for goodness sakes, on the issues, right? We have super majorities in favor of healthcare as a human right. We have super majorities on issues uh, of uh, the climate crisis. We have super majorities on the issues of economic fairness. We've got super majorities. Like if you, like all you have to do is, is, is do any kind of, fair and reasonable polling. I'm not talking about push polling. I'm saying go to any uh, academic and ask them uh, to, 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 to tell you where the American people stand on issues and a progressive populist base is a winner. And it's a winner by up to 60% usually, depending on which one you do it. So the, the and what's galling to me is that Republicans are doing a better job of the narrative on populism, 
right? But they're building it around dog whistle politics of racism. And for the most part, the leadership of the Democratic Party are being either played for fools and suckers or are just holding on to their own neoliberal power. I can't tell which one. Right. But but they're certainly not up for the challenge. Well, David Cobb was a candidate for president running on the Green Party ticket, and he is a green activist working up in Humboldt County. He's a proponent of public banking. And how is that going along? We're going to start. You know, seeing yeah, you're, you're going to start to see some stuff. Remember, uh, just to, uh, I, I know that we're about to you're, you're about to go into your next segment. So I want to I'll, I'll do it quickly. Uh, public banking, we won and like I believe in cheering Democrats when they do the right thing and jeering when they do the wrong thing. So Democrats actually in the state of California created uh, a, a law, AB th uh, 357, where we were uh, able to, uh, to allow the creation of up to 10 local or regional banks. We're working with the Department of Business Organization on promulgating the rules. Uh, we, I, I suspect uh, that within this year or next, like there are several places. And if you want, what I'll do is with your permission, David, yeah. can I bring somebody on? Absolutely. Next week that, like, all right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to bring somebody onto this program to talk about public banking in California and where we're at. Fantastic. Thank you, David Cobb. Thank you. And thanks to the listeners, including the ones who don't agree with me. Who would disagree with you? Why would Read anyone? I'm sorry. Read your chat. <laughs> Who does it? Nobody could possibly disagree with you. They're wrong. Uh, amazing. In my in our chat room, we have people disagreeing with you. Oh yeah, they they think that I, I'm a left purist and that by staying in the Green Party, uh, I'm destroying the country. Like again, just read the chat. Okay. Okay. I mean. I, I enjoy our conversations. Like I, I come back every week and knowing full well that there are going to be lots of people uh, who, uh, you know. I asked the people in the chat room not to attack the guests, but. Uh, oh, they don't attack me. They they uh, uh, they disagree with me. Okay. Uh, I'm fine with that. But they're polite, like, right? They, they, yeah, they're, oh, they're okay. polite. All right. Yeah, yeah, no. They disagree with me. They don't attack. That's okay. Not personally. That's okay. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. I don't know where Dr. Fraud is today. I hope everything's OK, but we do these shows 52 weeks a year. And I think sometimes. Uh, well, anyway, let us now go to the newsroom where Dan Frankenberger is standing by. Hello there, Dan. Hello, Jag officer. Hello, Jag officer. How's the snow? I saw no snow this past weekend. Get out of here. I swear to you. I, I shovel for like 10 hours. How bad? Well, you're up in Rochester, right? Right. Here's, yeah. here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to go get my beans. And when we come back, we will be joined by Dan Frank. Where, where'd you go, Dan? Okay. I'm still here. Oh, OK. Can you turn your video on? Where I'm going to go get my beans and I'm going to have dinner while we do the community billboard. Does that sound like a plan? Fantastic. Okay, we'll be right back. The AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds. AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight. Yet AIDS lets you taste, chew, and enjoy. And the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant. 
AIDS helped me to lose 18 pounds, and it doesn't contain anything to make me nervous. Question, why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS? AIDS helps you lose weight without making you jittery. Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of wool light and a little bag of weed. Got to saw bellow novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila, in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number, in case I want to change my gender, I'm traveling light. And my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self esteem. I'm traveling light. 
got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoe shine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in L.A., and my enemies list. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us a little later on in the show, and he'll be coming in heavy. The envelope will be heavy, not light. He'll have a new song for us. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. I know we're going to look at what Glenn Costick is making, but look at this. Look at that. See that bean? I don't know. That is a white Corona bean. My friend, there's nothing better than a white Corona bean. So now that you grab your beans, what are you going to do with them? I'm going to, I've been eating the beans. It's the perfect food, a bean and some pharaoh, which the Romans marched on. They marched on pharaoh, which has enough protein and fiber to keep you going in the true sense of the word. Ooh. You know what I mean? I, nice one. <laughs> oh, nice come too. On. <laughs> nice too. <laughs> Let us. Uh, is, do we have birthdays today? Uh, we got a few birthdays, and I sent you uh, pictures, right? Yes, when, uh, I, I, I know. Okay, very good. Um, so, with the popular folks' birthdays today, we have Chris Rock. Chris Rock. Mm -hmm. Turning 56. He's not 56. 56. Chris Rock is 56. That's amazing. Good for him. Yep. All right. Um, Happy birthday, Chris Rock. You stopped teaching him comedy lessons like a long time ago, right? Yeah, he took my class. Yep. Ashton Kutcher, the actor, is Ashton 43. Kutcher is 43 years old. That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Let me see if I can guess their ages. Okay. All right. This this one is a, a trick question if we're going to go that route. Isaiah okay. Thomas. Isaiah Thomas is 45. 32. Is 30. Isaiah Thomas's son Isaiah Thomas playing? Because like, I was a Knicks fan growing up, and Isaiah Thomas used to beat us up once in a while. I, I, I got I've that been, wrong. I, I haven't been paying attention to basketball, but it says... Um, he began his MBA career with the Sacramento Kings in 2011. So I'm wondering if it's his son. Hmm. Okay. One more? Uh, Any more birthdays? Um, I like yep. this. Charles Dickens. Charles Dickens. Uh, let's see. I'm going to say he's dead. That's Mike. true. Okay. That's good. I'm going to say he was born in... 1852. 1812. All right. Really? 1812. 1812 to 1870. Hmm. Okay. And uh, he and I kind of shared a nickname in high school, Chuck's Dixon. You were Chuck's Dixon. Chuck's Dixon. We don't need to know where. Okay. Um. 
Uh, I think that's all we got for birthdays okay. today. Good job. Good job. <laughs> uh, let's see. Okay, let's do community billboard. I think we have some photographs. So far, the software is holding up. So this is good. I wanted to compliment you on something you said a few weeks ago when uh, Professor Miriam was doing the professors at Miriam. You said, I agree with what you're about to say. And I was like, oh, I like that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm telepathic, <laughs> I think. I saw I have a message from, from YouTube from, I think it was two or three weeks ago. Uh, there was a user, Chris Tarugo, uh, who donated $5 in the Super Chat. And really? he said, pretty good show. My wife hates it. He'll <laughs> ask, what's this $5 for? And I'll have to prevaricate. <laughs> that's, the, always, that's the compliment I get. As a stand-up, guys walk up to me, you are great. My wife hates My wife you. hates <laughs> That's great. By the way, thank you to Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and the Invisible Ninja for keeping the YouTube channel going. We can't do YouTube without those three. So yep. thank you. And thank you to everybody who subscribes to our YouTube channel. We're beginning to post snippets. The Invisible Ninja is putting up snippets on YouTube. So this is a, a, a drawing by Tom Weber? Yes, this is William Reed. And uh, Tom writes, here's a pen drawing I did a couple nights ago. I did it in this style just as a reminder that I can do realistic, classically rendered portrait drawings when I am so moved. And this one is of prominent Scottish Victorian age political leader named uh, William Reed. And did and, I think we got it? I don't think his I don't think last Thursday that was Ian McKellen, right? Correct. There's a, there's a little mix up with the uh, the text that he had, he had written and the image that was grabbed. So I'll straighten that out and we'll post it again here soon. OK, let's go to our next. Well, this looks good. Food. Ah, yes. What is that? Now, this is from Glenn Costick, our, uh, our food buddy there. Yeah. This is a fruit salad with grapes, carambola pineapple, mm. which I've never I've never heard of types of pineapple before, um, with raspberries, blueberries, pear, mango, and with vinegar. What's the star? It looks like starfish. What is that? Maybe that's what carambola is. I don't know. I mean, it looks like if I were to guess, I would say it's star fruit. But he didn't have that in his description. So that I'm occurs not. naturally. That's not somebody shaping the fruit, right? Right. Okay. Fantastic. And if you peel them like that, it's a real pain in the ass. But that was awesome. Nice oven. A Ooh, working like it works. oven. <laughs> <clears throat> I need an oven. This is from uh, Joel Gillespie, and this is his sourdough bread. He said, the sourdough journey continues. Here are my latest loaves. Uh, he started on Friday night office hours, which was the, the previous office hours, and baked during Saturday night office hours. Fantastic. And I remember uh, I was emailing back and forth with him, and I remembered uh, mentioning at some point that Gillespie has been mixing a bowl of gruel for 45 minutes. He just had this white paste, and he's just stirring it and stirring it. Oh, that was and, the uh, sourdough. That was the dough. Hey, yep. did you did you see Joe Thursday night? Joe in Norway? The Borscht. The Borscht? Yep. Fantastic. Hannah called it ASMR for the eyes. Yeah, that was really good. Do we Did have any ASMR on? for the eyes? Is anybody in the Zoom room preparing something that they would like to do silently while we talk? Oh, 
That's raise a good question your to hands. Put out, to, to put out to the community. Yeah, I, I thought somebody was going to cook. Joe, are you going to be preparing anything? You were a hit, Joe, in Norway. That borscht. Did you see the way he... Professor Marianne, are you going to be cooking? For, where are you, Professor Marianne? You look like you're in a... She disappeared. Okay. Did you see Joe cutting the basil, the basil? Yeah. It was impressive. You, ro you, you roll it up and you you slice it thinly. And that is... Uh, okay. A chiffonade of basil. Well, that's so, funny. Yeah, this is from Randall in Harrisburg. And he says, please have a look at the attached photo. It's from the fixed coffee shop in Harrisburg. It's called a latte from way back. Look at that. <gasps> That's a latte. They, they're able to work the cream to uh, have people lose their appetite. That's my face. <laughs> that is your face in the top of a cup of coffee. That's a barista masterpiece. That looks just like me. That's incredible. Thank you. And R uh, Randall has a message. Uh, Please, listeners in PO, PA, know that March on Harrisburg continues to fight against corruption. So please visit giftban.org and join our movement. Randall is a lobbyist, a local lobbyist. Yep, we hear from him once in a while yeah. with some events going on. Plug his perg again, please. It was giftban.org. I love that latte. That's $3 for my face in the foam. $5 for my face not in the foam. It's, hey, when is Valentine's Day? Um, I believe it's the 14th of February. It's just around the corner. That's right. I believe it's a week from tonight. You know what that means? Well... It's a time, time is running out. Time is running out. You have to buy a gift if you want to be loved. And there's no better way to get love in return by going to josephbrintonjewelry.com. This is not, we don't do paid advertisements. This is just a friend of the show who is a great artist. Look at that. Look at that jewelry. Yep, the colors are fantastic. The design is great. It's Valentine's Day, and there's some pinks and purples and hearts. This is the exact pair you need. Go to josephbrintonjewelry.com. These are made in America. Yep. Handcrafted jewelry. And if you want someone to love you, you have to give them jewelry. That's as old as the Bible. You just can't be loved without a gift, an offering. And what do we have on the Ralph Nader show this week? Um, this week we have Ralph and the boys have a fascinating and wide, wide ranging conversation with Peter Mui, founder of the Fix It Clinic, a worldwide yes. organization that holds up, holds pop-up events wherever ex where experts teach you how to repair your consumer goods, which not only keeps them out of the landfill, but is also a community-based activity that conveys critical thinking skills. Yes, fixing your own stuff. We have You're, something like that going on in our community. What do, what do with you Dave, with with Dave and PA and Andy mm -hmm. with with their uh, workshop show? I have uh, two choices. One is to fix my stuff, or not have any stuff. I choose not to have any stuff. 
Because you really you don't. Re- what what you do you really repur- need? You can repurpose things like your stove, your oven can become a closet or a Tupperware holder. Or a, a nest for <clears throat> mice. Mouse house? A mouse said? house. Uh, hmm. I wish maybe Tennessee will ban my oven instead of the book <laughs> mouse. Though. But yeah. What do you actually need? I need a computer. I need a phone. I need plumbing, food. What do you need? And yeah, books. Need to wash your clothes. And books. If, if, yeah, if you had washing a pick, your clothes is good. If you had to pick five things that you could not live without, what would it be? Yeah, some clothes. I could live without clothes. I could yeah. walk. I, I, I don't mind walking around El Buffo. Might want to go further south. <laughs> <laughs> so how many feet of snow did you end up with? Um, I think we end up with 14 inches in my area. 14 inches. Yeah, I asked you about the snow, though. I don't need I didn't ask you about your area. Boom. boom. Hang on. <laughs> I think I have something. Hang on. Oh, come on. Where is it? There it is. There you go. I thought it was going to be ding dong, ding dong. <laughs> oh, well, it's everything seems to be. I'm nervous. Everything seems to be working, but you never know. Uh, we, I don't. Well, what, I didn't what, get. I didn't get any snow. Let's take. Should we take some calls from the yeah, Zoom room? Ch- let's, let's get some hands raised. And I want to tell everybody too about uh, Valley Vox Theater. This coming weekend okay. has a show coming up where they're going to be hanging out with Rorikey and. Um, what we have here is Valley Box Theater will be showing the acclaimed three-hour-plus Warren Beatty here's, uh, historical epic from 1981, Reds, right. which we mentioned on the last show. And uh, they say our esteemed guest will be Twitter's favorite economist communist, Dr. Asatar Bar, Bear. Um, afterwards, the folks from the Weekly Marks will join Valley Vox for the live question and uh, answer with Dr. Bear. It's going to be an epic show, and you can get tickets at Valley Vox on Twitter or email valleyvoxtheater at gmail.com. And the theater's with an R-E, as always. Well, let's look at uh, the chat room on YouTube. There's some people, there's, I'm always amazed there are people watching us on YouTube. Uh, Michael says, letting mice live in his oven isn't being courteous to his neighbors. Well, maybe, maybe my mice are my neighbors. Uh we're in should, your, you, should you send them to the should you send the mice to the neighbor's house? You're giving them a place to live. I it's all, yeah, I don't I would assume everybody in New York City has mice. Everybody. So nobody talks about it. And if you just if you seal the holes, you you never see them and nobody admits it. Uh Chuck Dixon. <laughs> just bring a coffee soccer pieces. I own a non-automatic Italian espresso machine and an also prosumer Italian grinder also roast my own beans when I have time. Yeah, I need coffee. I, I couldn't live without coffee. My boss makes that, uh, roasts his own beans and bring, brings them in sometimes. It's really delicious. The caffeine content is really high. Like I drink one cup and I got the jitters. I start typing funny. Yeah, yeah. I had, a, I had a, a coffee roaster in Los Angeles. It was incredible. For uh, at-home do-it-yourselfers, it's popular to get uh, an old 
uh, popcorn popper. The, the air popcorn, poppers. Yep. Same exact yep. thing. Like you can roast your own beans for like seventeen dollars. Absolutely. The machine is seventeen bucks. Yeah. And then you buy yeah. a pound of coffee, raw beans. It's half the price. Yeah. And it smells. You got to find a place that will sell them to you. Peter Griffin says Dan has the best bong collection in the YouTube game. Are those bongs? <laughs> no, they're all decanters from garage sales. Ah. All right. Uh, somebody wants to know, I'd love to hear what Chris Rock learned from Feldman. Uh, how not to do comedy, I think, would be the correct answer. <laughs> Babe Ruth's birthday was yesterday. The babe. We missed babe. that. Okay. All right. There, we checked in with our chat room in the Zoom, not the Zoom room, on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel where they can watch us live. Yep, it's that, the truth. Yeah, we're live we on just YouTube. Had a, we just had a hand go up, uh, Dave and PA. Has, has something is Dave and PA going to be torturing any dolls for us today? Dave and PA, hello, Dave. Let's find out. Whoop, there he is. Yep, Dave and PA. Dave isn't talking. Dave, Dave's not here. Well, I'll tell you who I'm here. Oh, I'm here. How, how are we doing today? Are you going to be? Do you want to do? I was some, on the wrong. I was on the wrong mic. Do you want to do some ASMR for the eyes tonight? Uh, yeah. Give me a minute, and I'll and I'll chuck something up in the lathe, and I'll just turn something. How does that sound? Yeah, we'll just we'll we'll have you silenced, and Professor Adnan yeah. Hussein and I are going to talk, yeah. and you'll do some ASMR for the eyes. Let me move you into the. Promote to pay. Yeah, give me a minute to set up and uh okay yeah. great dan how do people contact you if you want to get anything on the community billboard just send an email to dent feldman at gmail.com and i'll get it up there thank you sir well professor adnan hussein is about to join us in a second you're listening to the david feldman show david feldman show.com we will be right back it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comics too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you. 
Yes, it's time right now on the David Perlman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank, there you go. Thank you so much, Professor Mike Steinal, who will be joining us in about an hour, hour and a half. Well, let us now go to Canada, where Professor Adnan Hussein is standing by. He is the co-host of the the uh, Gorilla History, as well as the Mudgeless podcast. We'll find out who the guests are this week. He's also chairman of the Religion Department for Queen's University in Kingston, our Kingston, Ontario, and we're going to plug Rahima a little later on, uh, my favorite food pantry in the world, Rahima.org, correct? Is it .org? That's right. Yeah, .org. R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Go there right now and donate $5, and I will pray for you. That's That's how I... You'll be in my prayers and uh, appeal to people's fears. Professor Adnan Hussein, I sent you a note to thank you. You have really, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I want to talk about Ottawa and the truckers, but Whoopi Goldberg. Without you, without you bringing Professor Gerald Horn on the show, I think I would have fallen prey to the the mob attacking Whoopi. You kind of you wrote back to me and said you think she was a little out of line for saying that. Well, she said on The View that the Holocaust wasn't about race. It was about man's inhumanity to man. And for that, <laughs> she got suspended. Uh, your thoughts? Well, I mean, I think there's been quite a lot of discussion over this week. Um, you know, there was a non-apology on the Colbert report, report that she came on to, but I think maybe subsequently she has... Uh, perhaps acknowledged um, the situation a little bit more precisely. I think it just was very much a kind of U.S. view from within kind of our contemporaries. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt. We're, no, we have this new thing. Going on. We have a new thing called ASMR for the eyes. No audio, just today we have Dave and PA torturing a, a doll so i hope do you find this distracting can can we oh i'm fine okay uh, it, it is intriguing <laughs> <laughs> well we're talking about the holocaust i guess torture you know, uh, you know makes sense so i just wanted to make sure we're okay with this but this is basically what office hours is like this is uh so joe made a borscht on Thursday's show in lieu of you. You weren't here. So your your square for the professors and Marianne was taken up by Joe making a borscht. It was breathtaking to 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 watch and talk. Okay, so I apologize. So you taught me that 
there's no such thing as race. Well, I said, I think that it's a social construct and that it has varied um, over time and place about what exactly that might mean. And that what we're most um, used to when we're speaking about race is the North American context and the invention of race as a biological uh, essential feature, sort of what you would call, you know, biological racism, you know. Uh, so that doesn't mean that there weren't ideas of ethnic difference, of religious difference, um, um, a broader sort of sense of racial diversity. But of course, um, it's the racists who believe in race, you know, most, mm -hmm. most uh, emphatically. And that, of course, is what was the, um, you know, foundation of the German Nazi party and its persecution of the Jews in the Holocaust, as well as, you know, other groups that they regarded as weakening the, you know, moral fiber of the German nation. And oh, there were whole varieties of untermenschen, of under people, of subordinate races, that is black people, but in Europe, the big problem that they saw was that, you know, there were Jews as a race um, that, um, you know, posed a problem. And it, it wasn't just in Germany. Obviously, there was anti-Semitism in France. In fact, actually, maybe one would have argued that anti-Semitism around the turn of the century was more virulent in France with the whole Dreyfus affair. Um, but there was this idea that they could not be incorporated and assimilated into European society because they were a separate people. This was understood increasingly by fascists as, uh, you know, a biological racial category of people. And as a result, they were persecuted in the Holocaust because they were regarded as a different race. Now, obviously, in the United States, um, there have been periods of time where there was virulent anti-Semitism that marked Jews out. They fit, however, more because of religious difference, I would say, partly in the same way that Catholics were also regarded with great suspicion in like the early part of the 20th century and the know-nothings and the America firsters, uh, you know, the ideological forebears of Donald Trump and, you know, th these, these folks that we're dealing with today are people who objected to immigration from Catholic countries from Eastern Europe. And of course, Jewish migration was taking place around the same time and they were uh, within this uh, group of in this case non-christians and of people who had an ethnic difference and so there was discrimination against them but it was nazism however that really um you know uh, took up the tradition you might say of european anti-semitism and made it uh, the basis for distinguishing between aryan uh, the mm -hmm. Aryan race and other uh, other groups. So when it when you translate it into the U.S. context, I think uh, from a black person's perspective, Jewish people in later 20th and early 21st century, you know, present as white. And I think basically that's what Whoopi was saying is that, um, you know, from her perspective, and especially as somebody who wanted to be 
you know, this was her other stereotype, you know, I mean, I think she changed her name. <laughs> I think she was told that it would be a good idea. Her agent said, you know, uh, you know, adopt a Jewish name. That'll be better for you than, you know, whoopee cushion, which was right. what her stage name was going to be. So from her perspective, you know, Jewish people present as white people. And so for her, it couldn't be about race because she only sees race in terms of white versus black and doesn't have a sense of the wider history of in different contexts, race has meant different things. And obviously it's not, it's hard to imagine how she couldn't be aware that, you know, the Nazi party regarded Jews, you know, as a race, but clearly that's just not part of her, her context. So I think there was a lot of misunderstanding on her part about history. But likewise, I think you can understand why she had these ignorant comments. You can put them in a context that in the U.S. situation, you know, for a black person, Jewish people appear to be white. Right? You're I teaching mean, a, a class. What What is the name of the, this class you're teaching right now? Oh, well, I'm team teaching a class with a colleague um, who's director of Jewish studies at Queens University um, on Jewish and Islamic thought. We've called it uh, Jewish and Islamic uh, parables and philosophical fictions. Okay. Yeah. So it seems to me that the Anti-Defamation League was a bit disingenuous calling for an apology and they, I feel that there was an overreaction to what Whoopi said, that it, there was no malice intended. I also don't think she hurt anybody. She wasn't denying the Holocaust. She wasn't saying it was a good idea. She no. simply said it was, a, it was man's inhumanity to man and not about race. I can't imagine any victim of the Holocaust taking offense to that. And if you do take offense to that, there was no malice intended. Now, it it seems like it's an issue of, of language, but to suspend her from ABC for that statement, that seems, uh, that, that to me, that, that creates division, animosity. That doesn't help anybody suspending her. Am I wrong? I think, well, I, I can't. Uh, I mean, it didn't seem to me that it was a situation that deserved um, the level of public comment. I think it would have, you know, been sufficient. And I think, it, you know, I think suspending her made it seem as if she said or did something um, that was uneducable. You know, like right. this position that somebody has taken um, that is impossible to change or to improve. She didn't. But, you know, really what would have been better would have been just to have a real discussion about it. Right. I mean, clearly, clearly it's getting at something, which is that there are different views and attitudes towards how racism works. We need to expand our discussion and dialogue on it. There is tension within, you might say, the progressive left about, you know, how to understand, um, you know, I mean, there is a question, you know, in American society now, are Jewish people white? Um, 
And, you know, where do you position them in discussions about various forms of racial, ethnic, religious discrimination? I mean, it's genuinely, you know, worth worth having a discussion. And instead of having a discussion, which is, I thought, the whole purpose of the view, um, you had this action being taken against her and the public dialogue was not enhanced, I think, by that act. And in terms of prioritizing Nobody. The the issues are anti-Semitism is on the rise around the world. She didn't add. Uh, she didn't throw any gas to the flames there. So she didn't increase anti-Semitism. There's a problem with Israel and the Palestinians that has to be solved. This had nothing to do with that. It 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 seems to me that it's the outrage machine. You need to be angry and heads must be placed on a stick. And I'm all for that. I believe heads should be placed on a stick, but not in this case. Uh, no, no temple is going to get desecrated because of what would be said. Am I wrong to think that if you call Judaism a race, then you're parroting what Hitler said. And so then you're perpetuating what Hitler said, because you've taught me and Professor Gerald Horn taught me that. And you've just repeated that race was set up to justify the oppression of black people. Yeah, the whole transatlantic uh, slave system, trade and slave system in the Americas uh, was built around redefining race and racial identity in particular ways. So it does have a particular history and as a result, a legacy in our society, which is what I think the issue here is. But I do agree. I mean, if you think of, of Jews, they are an incredibly diverse uh, group of people. I mean, there's Sephardic Jews, Mizrahi Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. There are the Falashas from Ethiopia. There are Yemeni Jews. So, um, you know, there's great uh, diversity among uh, Jews globally um, over such a long period of time um, that really what it is, is a transformation of a category of religious difference um, into a racial category. Right. But, but, but the idea of race is my understanding is just the mere idea of race is a fallacy. It, it doesn't exist. Right. Well, yeah, it, do, it doesn't have a biological basis. So if you think of biological race and those theories of scientific racism uh, that posited that, well, uh, race is a biological category of difference that doesn't hold up to scrutiny and the evidence where there are greater differences, you know, genetically and uh, within what are so-called races than there are between or among them. And so what it is, is a social construct. And it's always as a result about reinforcing various kinds of hierarchy through marking difference in certain ways uh, to bolster and uphold an inequitable social system of who's in, who's out, how are these, you know, how is power, how is wealth going to be distributed, you know, in a particular society. And as I've 
mentioned to you, I think, in the past is that there are forms of human support, you know, of subordination, forms of use of labor, you know, labor status uh, and subordinating labor in various different ways, you know. So, and there are different kinds of slavery, for example. Um, and sometimes they've been built on a racial dimension and other times they've been completely, um, you know, irrelevant to it, you know. Um, so, by, so by saying... It is about that the Jews are a race and the Holocaust was about race. It's not only parroting what Hitler said, it's perpetuating that belief. Well, what it is is accurately naming that fascist ideology was a race-based ideology that, you know, created a myth of the Aryan, you know, race as somehow some distinct way of mobilizing forms of white supremacy, right? You know, in order to, um, you know, assert the superiority uh, over other peoples, you know, in the globe to justify war and conquest and their enslavement and subordination. You know, so it, it it's not that um, you're reinforcing, or at least it shouldn't be reinforcing the idea that Jews are a race. What it is is naming that the Holocaust was about racism because that, while it may not be a reality, was a social reality, an ideological reality of the Nazi party. And so they persecuted people on the basis of their false idea that Jews constitute a race and are a dangerous, you know, um, you know, dangerously undermine um, the Aryan race from achieving its, you know, historic position. Right. right. That's their whole their whole idea. Do you think we're well, I know we're so quick to punish there are degrees of crimes that people commit. There was, I offended, there was, there's an African-American professor who was supposed to be on the show, I think a year ago, and she canceled because she, uh, she was an expert on minstrel shows. Mm -hmm. And she was all set to do the show. And I asked, she said, what do you want to talk about? And I wrote back to her, do you think it's possible that some people, this was when Governor Northam of Virginia got caught in blackface. And so I offended her because there was Jimmy Fallon in blackface. Then we saw uh, Jimmy Kimmel in blackface, Justin Trudeau in blackface. And then uh, this week we saw uh, Joni Mitchell in blackface of all people, Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Mm. And and I innocently wrote, is it possible that some people don't know that blackface is wrong? And th this professor said, I'm not, I'm not going to do your show. And I got really I thought, ooh, I, you know, I felt what did I, you know, but do you think it's do we punish people? If their intention is not to hurt, if, if they don't know that. Well, that, my, my or, or should you know that blackface should you know that blackface is horrible? Well, people, sh people should, you know, yeah. if they don't. I mean, I think the um, appropriate approach is to try and educate people 
people better, to make it less um, possible to justify in society. And um, I guess, you know, my concern is that we stopped making the arguments. You know, like if you really understand the history of blackface, of how it was used to demean black people, of um, what it, you know, what its valences and resonances were, uh, then one can appreciate this. And, um, you know, even people who will bridle and object to the reaction and the response, the firing, the suspending of a whoopee or the, you know, or in this case, you know, calling for the cancellation or uh, of a politician or, or some like that and thinking that um, they're being that the that the re- people who object more to the reaction than to the you know situation itself need to have the opportunity to understand right. why this is considered such a serious or grave insult and what the real history behind these things are they just see it as somebody made an innocent mistake or did something that other people consider wrong and now they're being punished for it or um you know uh ejected from the public you know sphere without really receiving the full explanation right and we're not talking about the reasons it's like you're either in the know about how horrible this is and you have the appropriate you know forms of behavior and you're part of the group that recognizes and understands culturally speaking how you should behave or you're not and if you're not then you should it's not that you should be educated so that you can join in a common culture of treating people with respect and dignity um but instead it is marking it's a new form of marking boundaries and difference of who's in the in you know the you know the the privileged um educated cultivated uh few right. um that's not advancing you know uh, real real understanding there are there are misdemeanors and there are felonies growing up uh, to this day where when i travel somebody will say to me uh why don't you Jew them down? Most of the time, I'll let it, it's not worth, I, I just let it go, you know, the, the phrase Jew them down, or being told uh, I'm cheap uh, because I didn't leave a tip. No. <laughs> but uh, to me, it's not, you know, you pick your battles. And I honestly think that a lot of people have said, uh, traditionally problematic things out of ignorance not but not with ill intent and i think we have antennae that can read where where it's coming from the thing with whoopi it just wasn't she wasn't coming from a bad place uh, and there, there. Well, I, I, in in this respect, I mean, I find myself for maybe the first time in my life, sort of agreeing with Max Boot, and I was shocked Uh-oh. Uh-oh. myself. I know, yeah. Um, and that is, why are we paying so much attention right. to, you know, what Whoopi thinks? Like, why is she influential anyway? I mean, um, she's reaching millions of people on the View. This is the this is the problem is like, well, why is it that we have such a I don't know, an unsophisticated um, and unserious uh, public media? Right. 
um, where people who don't have uh, real knowledge about serious issues talk about them all the time. Um, and then when they make a mistake, you know, everyone's so outraged by them. Right. Well, why are we even in the position where this is a popular show um, and where there isn't, uh, you know, ex genuine expertise when it comes to, say, you know, the Holocaust and the history of the Holocaust? I mean, why would you listen to what Whoopi Goldberg has to say about that and pay attention? Why is she in the position of commenting so confidently? I mean, that's what I found really quite amazing about her statements was not how wrong they were, because, you know, she obviously doesn't know the history and is looking at it very much from the perspective of her own experiences in Africa. American woman in contemporary culture and Jewish people seem white and she's tried to ingratiate herself into what she thought was an industry you know this is her other stereotype dominated perhaps by major Jewish you know agents or producers and she thought this would be an advantage for her right so she looks at it only from her own perspective why isn't she you know why is she even in this in this uh, position on ABC News it's ABC so News it's ABC yeah, News Right, right. It's ABC. Well, but I, it is exactly. It's ABC. It's an. It's a news supposed to be a kind of news program, um, and um, also she was doing so with such confidence. You know, I mean, you know, that's what seems so strange to me is how could she be so confident when she clearly doesn't know that much about, say you know, German history in the 1930s and 40s and hasn't examined, you know, what did the Nazi party actually think? Uh, what was their platform and right. ideology? Uh, it's, it's really quite astonishing that she could um, express these uh, opinions and views without a sense of humility. Um, and it's taken huge backlash and public outcry more than just one day's worth, but right. about like, you know, four or five days of sustained criticism for her to finally acknowledge that, you know, maybe she was wrong. And if she just did that, I think on the first day and said, oh, you know, I really have learned something here. I mean, people would still think, you know, she was kind of idiotic for being so clueless about right. the situation, but they might have forgiven her and it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have taken a, you know, four or five days of a lot of ink um, and, you know, blather on, um, you know, um, the airwaves, it, it could have been resolved very quickly. And I think, as I was saying, the real problem is, is that, you know, we don't have genuine expertise in right. our in we, our media. We, we I, before you go, I want to ask you about what's going on with the truckers in Ottawa. We saw some Nazi flags. We saw some Confederate flags in Ottawa, the anti-vaxxers waving Nazi flags and Confederate flags. Joe Rogan, whether or not he admits to it or not, is an anti-vaxxer. He's very slippery, but he is an anti-vaxxer. And while there may be nuance as to whether or not Jews are a race or a religion or a people, or whether or not it might be possible that some people don't know the origins of blackface, we know using the n-word is verboten now he's been caught saying the n-word on his show something like 32 times 
Uh, and he says he hopes this can be a, a teaching moment, to which I reply, nobody needs to be taught not to say the N-word. This is not, there, there are some things. That's this is different from what, law. I'm sorry, what? That's settled law. It's settled yeah. law. What do you think is the relationship between anti-max, anti-vax people, anti-mask people, and racism? You know, I've been trying to figure out exactly why this constellation, you know, is there something uh, genuinely endemic to the anti-vax and anti-mask uh, so-called, you know, freedom and anti-mandate uh, sort of movement and racism, or is it an accident of opposition to establishment expertise that whole you know like it's an anti-pmc sort of reaction anti-establishment populist anger that has fixated in various ways on you know the covid mandates on the vaccines and so on in the same way that it also taps into an anti-immigrant anti you know um anti sort of corporate diversity sort of scheme. I mean, that might be, you know, is it just that it's oppositional to all that's part of that? And as a result, it brings things that don't actually have a genuine connection to one another into the profile of the oppositional politics and cultural politics of this group? Or is there something actually connected? And I can't quite figure out what would that connection other than what I've mentioned as this anti op, you know, this oppositional anti-establishment sort of position, the crisis of, you know, expertise and, um, uh, you know, the corporate, uh, you know, the, the corporate corporatized leadership of our politics and culture that so many of these people on the right and even, you know, on the left object, uh, object right. to. Right. And finally, the, the, the neoliberals, people like John Stewart, the intellectual pygmies like John Stewart, say things like the answer to bad speech is more speech. But that's not true, is it? Because good speech, the kind of speech that's informative, that's left and anti-corporate, we're the real victims of cancel culture. You know, uh, uh, John Stewart is a Biden supporter, so that speech is protected in corporate America. But they will not amplify any voices that question corporate greed, that are pro-union, that spell out explicitly what the PRO Act would do for workers, what Medicare for all. But the only person who could do that was Bernie and he was being heckled by 15 other people running for office. This idea that good speech can be heard in America is a fallacy. Well, it, assumed, it assumed that there was just some kind of neutral public square. And so anybody, you know, democratic, open, fair, equitable market of ideas, you know, as if there weren't uh, so many other forces that uh, make it an unequal 
playing field, you know. Um, so that kind of uh, libertarian idea, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I'm not uh, the kind of person who's in favor of censorship. And um, I don't like uh, the, the, the way the cancel culture uh, seems to mobilize a different kind of politics of resentment without um, actually engaging um, in real debate and discussion. Um, because I do think that it tends to uh, favor right-wing uh, views cor or corporate views, um, militaristic or, views. Yeah, that's right. And so, the, and you see that you know, we didn't get a chance to talk about the truckers, but I mean, I think that's a great way of seeing how this uh, so-called question of freedom which is the rallying cry, you know, that they have more liberty and um, uh, to roll back these mandates that are constraining everyone's freedom, supposedly. You know, what it has done, it has completely suppressed the genuine grievances that truckers have as exploited workers, uh, you know, in Canada. And in fact, actually, it also ends up representing the truckers um, as this monolithic white male group of, of, of workers who have uh, occupied uh, Ottawa. But if you look, um, you know, in the GTA, more than 50 percent of those who do uh, both short haul and longer haul trucking are um, you know, uh, South Asians or, you know, Caribbean, um, you know, immigrants uh, who are black. Um, and likewise, uh, one of the border crossings that was closed down by the truckers convoy sympathy blockade that happened in, in Alberta. You know, most of the truckers who were caught on the U.S. side of the border because they couldn't enter as a result of the blockade were, uh, you know, Sikh and other South Asian truckers and um, they raised the very good points that they're not that concerned about the vaccine mandates. What they're concerned about is um, wage theft, uh, unsafe worker conditions, uh, increasing monitoring and surveillance by the companies that own the trucks of the drivers that make it impossible, just like it is in an Amazon warehouse to take a bathroom break because this is all being surveilled and reported. And none of these issues get highlighted in this kind of framing of this as the truckers convoy for freedom. Um, so, you know, when we talk about freedom just in that abstract and we don't bring social, political um, and economic factors to bear and just imagine that it's just an open field, uh, these abstract ideas don't have genuine meaning. I mean, you're not free if you're being exploited um, in your job in this way. Um, th so the last thing that those people who are really genuinely being exploited care about is the, the vaccine mandate. Right. They care about all these other things much more uh, than they do about that issue. But there it, it's the rage is like the mighty Colorado and the corporate controlled media, the right wing creates these little tributaries like here, critical race theory here, here, here's where you can have your white rapids uh, and here's anti masks. But the real what's really feeding the mighty Colorado is precarity that we're not allowed to talk about exactly uh, yes exactly thank you really thank you, thank you. uh go to rahima.org and give money it's it, it this is an organization this is adnan professor hussein's parents food pantry and i want to bring in peter b collins who 
exposed this uh, important charity over at Rahima.org. And we're going to do a, a benefit, but I want people to start visiting Rahima.org. Tell us about Rahima.org, Peter B. Collins, and then we'll start your segment, please. Well, I learned about it from a Facebook post uh, that Adnan and his twin sister, Sophia, um, put up around their birthdays in early January. And like you, David, I went to the website and explored what they do. And, uh, you know, they provide uh, support for refugee families uh, who have come to the U.S. and to Silicon Valley in particular. And uh, so that's pretty much what I know. Uh, I'm certainly uh, very supportive of the work. And uh, I think Adnan could give us a little more uh, about the history and the various waves of uh, immigrants to the United States who've been supported by Rahima. Uh, thanks so much, Peter, for um, those remarks and for bringing attention uh, to the work of Rahima uh, Foundation in the Bay Area. Uh, it started um, almost 30 years ago in uh, our family garage um, and where uh, my mother decided to start collecting um, food, uh, you know, clothing and other necessities for uh, refugees that were coming to the area. Um, the 80s were a time where a huge number of Afghan refugees came, uh, particularly to the East Bay. Um, and subsequently, um, there followed uh, Bosnian refugees uh, fleeing uh, the situation in the Balkans with the collapse of uh, the former Yugoslavia and uh, the ethnic cleansing that was taking place there and a lot of Somalis with the collapse of their state, um, the problem of famine, which is really a social famine. Um, they started arriving in large numbers and there was uh, very few organizations at the time that really knew how to communicate with uh, these new groups uh, coming to, um, you know, provide support in a culturally specific way. They had a lot of unique concerns about um, diet and religious practice. And um, so the local Muslim community got together through Rahima Foundation to start supporting them. And it's expanded since then to feed about 500 families monthly in the South Bay um, and to work with food banks um, for people of all walks of life, not just uh, people uh, from the Muslim community or recent immigrants. But that was the core and the foundation. And they've always kept up that, um, you know, crucial um, uh, focus of helping those who are most vulnerable uh, and most um, isolated in many ways from the services that might be available. Um, through local municipal county governments. Mm -hmm. And well, I, I'd just like to add that if you go to Rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, the first thing you see are beans and lentils, chickpeas, the food that you can not only live on, the food that will make you live longer. This is... Every penny, you can just tell that every penny is going towards sustenance, not being wasted on junk food. Uh, and I don't ask for much 
for my listeners, but uh, I, I really want to shock the system here. I, I want us to uh, send money to rahima.org. Uh, so many organizations cannot be trusted. Uh, we know this one can. R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. Uh, thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Peter B. Oh, uh, who's on the Modulus podcast? Are you still there? And who is on? Oh, well, we're going to have uh, next month coming up, uh, Juan Cole. Uh, wow. We'll be talking about a uh, book he's the editor of called uh, Peace Movements in Islam. Uh, not a topic people may have heard about or, you know, typically if they watch our debased public media, um, really imagine as possible. So he's done historical studies with a group of others, and he's going to come on to the Mudgelis and talk about it. Um, so that's a highlight to, to look forward to next month. Fantastic. He's a great, he's a great guy and a, a brilliant scholar. And I just want to recommend his website that he named after himself, juancole.com, because he and uh, he has other contributors provide uh, a real different dimension on U.S. foreign policy in particular. And he, he's fluent in Arabic. Um, he taught me how to say Muqtada al-Sadr, and the Butter Brigade, <laughs> and uh, he's he's just a very uh, approachable guy. I've uh, met him a few times in Ann Arbor, and uh, just have the highest regard for him. So I'll be looking forward to that. And a well, great, and he's been a guest on the show a couple of times. Where I've talked about Middle East affairs with him and David, and um, we'll bring him back on again soon. And Peter, you should join in since yeah. you'll have a lot of interesting questions. He's a great writer. Informed comment. He writes succinctly for everybody's. You, you don't have to be a professor to understand what what he's saying. Thank you very much, Professor Adnan Hussein. Let us now go to San Rafael, California, where Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer Peter B. Collins is standing by. And uh, once again, thank you for telling us about Rahima.org. We're doing a thing called, my daughter came up with this, uh, ASMR for the eyeballs. And this is the second time we've done it. And Dave and P.A., is making i don't know a table leg that's a, no that's a louisville slugger bat uh, that oh I, oh maybe <laughs> but it watching it it's it really is relaxing to to watch someone who can actually do something mm -hmm. have a, you ever watched late night tv in germany uh to put people to sleep they have channels that just run uh the video shot from the cockpit of a train and you watch the That's train. That's not going to put goes, my last name's Feldman. A, a German train is not going to put me to sleep. Well, but they run on time. Oh, that's true. That's, uh, <laughs> now, as, as long as we have things going on here with a lathe, uh, I'd like to let you know that my latest project here at uh, the house is to replace a toilet with a slow leak. With this wonderful fluid master, uh, it's it's the innards of a toilet, and I've learned how to do this wow. because when you buy Chinese toilets, uh, the innards often fail. 
And so one of my uh, job jar tasks that is uh, pending is to fix one of the turlets here at our house. Would you like to watch that? Sure. <laughs> I, I'm in awe of anybody who can uh, can fix anything. I, I buy solutions, just don't buy anything. I have a broken oven and I also have- Still? Yeah. David, I know. I'm thinking of getting a, a convection, like uh, like an air fryer, or maybe a pressure cooker, mm -hmm. something like that. You know, I I uh, thought of buying an air fryer uh, during the holidays, and I asked several people. I said, "Okay, so uh, I get an air fryer. Uh, what's the advantage?" And they said, "Well, you can fry things without oil." And I say, well, okay, but do I really get the same, you know, flavor and crunchiness? Uh, and most people said, no. Well, from <laughs> so what I, I, I've, I've been, been holding off on that. Here's what I have discovered. The dirty, dark secret is there's no such thing as an air fryer. It's a convection, it's a convection oven. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. But they got on the air fryer branding. There's no it, it's just a convection oven. Well, that's well, I do have a convection oven. And I have to say uh, that when I roast a chicken, for example, I get uh, real tenderness. It cooks all the way through. When you say I tenderness get, from your loved ones or the, the chicken? <laughs> no. And should the you chicken, be getting tenderness from a the chicken From, is tender. Okay, that sounds a little... Uh, it's tenderer. <laughs> Mo tender. <laughs> well, let us discuss uh, anti-vaxxers. What would you like? I'm looking for your email. What did you oh, want to Well, what I wanted to discuss is the hidden news story from the end of last week. You know, when you want to put something out, but you don't really want people to know about it. Right. Uh, Friday afternoon is when you dump documents mm -hmm. and, and things that uh, might distract the American people from the approved narrative of uh, pummeling Whoopi Goldberg, bashing Joe Rogan uh, or, you know, those kinds of things. Right. So. Um, in my San Francisco Chronicle on Sunday, buried in the front section in a news brief was a story that I found very significant. And it is that on Friday, the United States announced that it was uh, uh, withdrawing some of the sanctions on the what we call a regime in Iran. Regimes are governments that we don't approve of. Right. And, and that are targeted more or less for takedown uh, by the U.S. and its allies. So this regards Joe Biden's uh, long deferred promise to renew American participation in the JCPOA. And that's the long uh, uh, acronym for the Iran nuclear deal. And as we know, Trump uh, very uh, prominently uh, withdrew from that and then tried to hold Iran to the terms that we had walked away from. And uh, that was a brilliant strategy, I think, uh, attributed to Jared uh, Kushner, the man who brought peace to the Middle East. The Abraham so, Accords. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So on Friday, uh, and I just moments before uh, I joined you, I did a fresh search at the website of the Gray Lady, the New York Times. There is not a word mentioned about this development. So I did a search over at the Googles, and the first uh, uh, finding, the first result, was a link to Al Jazeera. And what they tell us is that on Friday, in an effort to, uh, uh, you know, get these talks moving in some positive direction, uh, a senior State Department official, now that's Tony Blinken, but under the rules of access journalism, uh, he said this is not for attribution. And so the uh, standard way to deal with that is to refer to a senior State Department official. So uh, the Al Jazeera story reads, the Biden administration has restored a sanctions waiver to Iran as indirect talks between Washington and Tehran on returning to the 2015 nuclear agreement enter the final stretch. Now, I believe that the nuclear agreement and the Obama administration's reopening of relations with Cuba were the only two real positive developments in foreign policy during the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration. And I also think that it's very important to restore this agreement uh, for a variety of reasons. So <clears throat> what this really says is that after months of saying uh, that Iran must uh, stop its nuclear enrichment before we will get serious about rejoining the JCPOA, that uh, Blinken has blinked. And the U.S. is actually uh, relaxing some sanctions that are viewed as critical by Iran to try to facilitate uh, engagement and some sort of a resolution in these talks that are underway as the Al Jazeera story said, these are indirect talks. Mm -hmm. uh, and it could lead to direct talks where U.S. envoys are actually in the room with their Iranian counterparts. So I bring this up because I think that it is an important step back from brinksmanship with Iran. And it is a model for what I believe needs to occur right now with the situation between Ukraine and Russia, mm -hmm. where the United States is big footing, not only Ukraine, but the regional players in Europe. And this, you know, many people would interpret this as a way for the Biden administration to change the subject after Joe Manchin scuttled the Build Back Better legislation after they failed on voting rights legislation and that, you know, turning to uh, a uh, hyped up uh, international conflict and inserting the United States into it is a way to distract Americans. And in particular, that applies to the Democratic base. And I know, David, you don't share entirely my views about Russiagate. But I don't think you would disagree that that episode caused Democratic voters 
who were opposed to foreign adventures that were initiated during the Bush administration and who largely went silent when Obama shifted to covert ops and drone attacks as a substitute for boots on the ground, you know, real military engagements. And the uh, Russophobia has led many Americans, uh, including, uh, I think, the majority of, of party line Democrats, to embrace the possibility of a conflict, either directly or by proxy, with, and they personalize it, to Putin, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's not about Russia. It's about Putin. And I want to point out that in recent history, the efforts to focus American policy on individual leaders, it started when the first Bush demonized Manuel Noriega, the pineapple-faced dictator in Panama. And then, of course, uh, Junior turned to demonizing not the state of Iraq, but its dictator, Saddam Hussein. And when we personalize it to the leader, to me, it is a signal that there is a scripted operation that the, uh, the oligarchs and the, if you want to call it the deep state have been developing and looking for the right opening to launch it into public view. So this personalization that Putin is the reason that we're going to risk a nuclear exchange over Ukraine to which we have no treaty commitments is strikingly similar to Poppy Bush's liberation of Kuwait. We had no obligation to launch the 500,000 troop military operation called Desert Storm in the 1990s. But we did, and that was all about oil. And that's pretty obvious to anybody who pays attention. Well, it was also about the Russia, the Soviet Union about to fall and America stepping up as the most powerful nation on earth. That was our coming out party, our victory. our what we say is now set, you know you will do what we say and the backstory to desert storm was that george h w bush when he was vice president uh helped engineer the approval of iraq's use of chemical weapons against iran in the 1980s eight-year war that uh, the Bush, uh, first Bush ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, uh, was instructed to give ambiguous comments to uh, Saddam Hussein about the uh, possible or probable U.S. reaction to it to actually induce him to uh, slant drill into Kuwait. And then, you know, there, there was uh, a, an incursion by Iraqi forces there. So we now have this situation in Ukraine. And let me be clear that I care about the Ukrainian people. And I recognize the problems that they have, that there is an ongoing uh, medium tempo war 
in the eastern half of Ukraine that is conducted by Russian volunteers and uh, paid uh, mercenaries that has been going on for some time now. And the uh, Ukrainians report their uh, troops have, have lost somewhere around 14 or 15,000 lives. So I don't belittle the nature of that conflict. At the same time, I acknowledge that Putin has been operating in a provocative way. You don't promote diplomacy by deploying troops uh, around every edge of Ukraine that you have access to. And the numbers, you know, we're told 100 to 115,000 plus Russia's superior air power uh, indicate that uh, Ukraine could not last long if uh, Russia decides to invade, to destabilize the Kyiv government, or to take Ukraine over entirely. And the U.S. sends this mixed message. For domestic consumption, we will not put American troops in Ukraine. And then for Moscow's consumption, we say, oh, we've got the meanest, most brutal sanctions all lined up. And not only will they wreck the Russian economy, and we hear Americans cheer for that, groomed by Russiagate, at least to some extent. Uh, and that is a threat that I don't think Putin takes very seriously. And so the bluster and the brinksmanship that we're seeing currently uh, I consider to be very dangerous. Well, is it, I think, is it the Mazinsky Act that, that ties up all the Russian oligarch money? What Biden seems to be threatening, I, I thought, were economic sanctions that further freeze the Russian oligarchs' offshore money. I think there's an attempt at that, but this is all for domestic consumption and headlines and you know, the threat includes putting sanctions on Putin's mistress, uh, as if she has a role in military decision making. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I want to note uh, an interesting parallel with the blunders by the Biden administration in 2021 in Afghanistan. Because we infantilized the Afghan government, which is not a world-class operation. They were deeply corrupt. They were, uh, you know, taking American money and shoving it into Swiss bank accounts. But we conducted talks with the Taliban and declared that uh, we could leave. And as you know, I supported Biden's decision to pull the U.S. out of Afghanistan. But it was based on a fundamentally flawed approach in the diplomatic arena where we conducted uh, direct talks with the Taliban that excluded any representative of the government in Kabul. And so when we was this then, Pompeo's negotiation not to attack, we'll leave if you don't if you don't attack us, we'll be out by 2021. This is what Biden inherited from Trump. Correct. My, you're right. Mike Pompeo, who wants to be president, uh, he negotiated that deal in the UAE uh, or one of the Emirates. Maybe it was in Qatar uh, with uh, the Taliban. But 
the government of President Ghani in Kabul kept saying, hey, <laughs> this is our country. <laughs> We're right. over here. <laughs> right. And you're making a deal with our enemy. And it's one of the reasons that things fell apart so quickly uh, when Biden, you know, worked. He, he did extend the date from May to August, uh, trying to use September 11th as the marker for the actual U.S. Uh, uh, retreat from Afghanistan. So my point is that now we're using this same proven failed strategy where we kind of have the uh, government in Kiev at arm's length. And we're saying, we got this. And we are speaking on behalf of NATO and claiming that NATO is in lockstep with the United States. And today, the brand new uh, chancellor of Germany uh, made a trip to Washington and I haven't had a chance yet to listen to the joint news conference with the chancellor and President Biden. He's a borderline socialist. He's left uh, us very. He, he, he's more socialist than Angela Merkel. Right. Yes. Yes. He is more left. But he is also trying to straddle the need for natural gas that flows through Nord Stream 1 and the new pipeline that was constructed with some participation by Germany, uh, Nord Stream 2. And so he's trying to balance that uh, so far in all of the military buildup provided by NATO nations to Ukraine. Uh, Germany has sent helmets. <laughs> Not guy's name helmet, but actual helmets. No, like, you know, yeah. Sergeant Schultz used yeah. to wear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was grumbling from Britain that they had to fly around German airspace to bring military supplies into Ukraine. And, and so uh, today, the German chancellor, uh, in the soundbite that I heard, uh, joined Biden in saying that we are in lockstep. Well, I'm sorry, but that is a lie. And we have seen people who question the mantra expressed by Jen Psaki, the press secretary, who basically was channeling Ari Fleischer. You remember him? Bush's, mm -hmm. Bush 2's uh, press mm -hmm. secretary. When he told reporters after 9-11, be careful. Watch what you say. Yeah. And so Jen Psaki uh, said, trust us. We don't have to show you evidence of our claims of the plan by Russia to stage uh, uh, events that then are videotaped and used for propaganda purposes. Now, just hold that thought. The number one and number two uh, purveyors of really well-produced snuff propaganda military versions are Israel and the United States. And so we are projecting onto Russia. And, and hey, it's entirely possible that Russia would stage events, even, you know, killing some Russian soldiers in order to uh, advance propaganda aims. I I'm not naive or suggesting that, that they don't have uh, motives and tactics. But what I am saying is that we're we're being told to trust the administration 
just like we were told to trust the Bush administration on the weapons of mass destruction. Then a reporter in a, a press conference with the flack over at the Pentagon was pressing the flack and saying, well, you know, you're saying these things, but you're not providing any evidence. And that reporter had to experience having his loyalty to America questioned because he challenged the what he believes is bullshit that is coming out as official statements from our government. And let's contrast this with what the uh, Zelensky government in Ukraine is saying. They're saying that the U.S. is way ahead of the arc of this. And Bloomberg News proved that yesterday because they accidentally published a headline, Russia invades Ukraine. And they had to pull it back and say, whoops, so, you know, that was just standing by <laughs> right. in, in case the news catches up with our headlines. Right. So, so we are stoking a conflict where the country that would suffer the most in terms of life and property and their sovereignty is saying, put the brakes on. We are not on the brink of war. And you are basically, you know, amping up the confrontation with Russia in a manner that makes war more likely and more likely to break out sooner. So a couple of Thank you for this. What does what, Biden and our friends from West Exec, what do they want? Do they want a threat of war so that we amp up spending on military weapons and we're selling more military weapons to Ukraine? Is the goal to create hot spots around the world that justify military spending? Or do they genuinely fear that Russia is going to invade Ukraine and have it be another Afghanistan? Because it's not going to be easy to take over Ukraine, right? There's going to be resistance, right? Hand-to-hand, door-to-door combat, I would assume. So, well, but if, if Russia launches an air assault and backs it up with a, a targeted invasion, uh, you know, the easiest thing to do would be to partition more of the Donbass and Donetsk. That's the eastern provinces of Ukraine. But uh, you, you have know, to be Ukraine, an occupy. You would have to be an occupying force in Ukraine. There aren't enough Russian speaking. Ukrainians who identify, I mean, Crimea, as I understand it, they identify with Russia, but I don't think the Ukrainians identify with the Russians. So it would be, they would be an occupying government that never, you know, that's hard to pull off, isn't it? Well, first of all, uh, I want to answer your question directly. Uh, it would be bullshit if I told you that I know what is motivating Biden's State Department and National Security Council and Pentagon. We can attribute the typical motives of, of profits for the 
military-industrial complex. But my hunch is that they are taking this to the brink because they firmly believe that Russia will not invade. And they are looking to get uh, a, a notch up, a leg up on Putin. Part of this is payback for 2016 and, and Russiagate. Part of it is a long-running rivalry uh, that came out of the Cold War. But I, if we're going to attribute things to Putin, it is that he's crafty, smart, and in this chess game, he is thinking four to six moves ahead. And clearly, his goals, they're, they're not obscure. He wants a commitment that NATO will not recruit Ukraine as a member. And the what we call defensive missiles that we have installed in Poland and Romania and perhaps a couple of other NATO countries bordering uh, Russia, he wants to ensure that those are purely defensive because the, uh, uh, the hardware that we have installed could be used not only for defensive missiles, but also for offensive ones. Right. Now, I also believe that Putin is trying to break up NATO. Uh, and that, as you know, I have a very low opinion of NATO's utility in so 2021. The, tr the Trump administration wanted to break up NATO. Yeah. However, <laughs> He then squeezed all the European nations to put more money into NATO. Right. So he did not have a consistent uh, position, right. nor was he operating from uh, 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 an informed basis. So uh, I do think that this can be uh, resolved. I think that real diplomacy uh, could sort this out. I also think that Macron, uh, the French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is in Moscow today uh, because he is up for re-election this year, he has a high motivation to uh, broker some sort of, of a deal. And I think that the U.S. should fucking get out of the way and let the Europeans sort this out. We should also acknowledge that NATO... Uh, <laughs> has diminishing value and that uh, we, we can at least cut the, the baby in half and say that we won't try to uh, induct uh, Ukraine into NATO for 10 years, maybe even tie it to the uh, length of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. <laughs> right. But uh, there are ways that we can make concessions to Russia that do not uh, damage American security interests and shift the onus to the nations that have the most to lose if there is a, a an expanded conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And that is the leading European countries. Right. Great. Before you go, uh, Putin... We've been led to believe that he's a destabilizing factor around the world, promoting authoritarian regimes. Orban is funded, or the campaign in Hungary was funded by Putin. Belarus, Brexit, we are told, uh, was funded by Putin. 
Putin got involved in the French uh, French elections, that he is using the Internet to destroy democracy or what's left of it in Europe and in the United States. Is that a legitimate concern? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And, and he's trying to keep up with the good old U.S. of A. As we support selected dictators around the world, as we, uh, you know, try to destabilize nations like Venezuela to expand our orbit and the market for U.S. products and uh, extracting oil from Venezuela. You know, there are many uh, oligarchic uh, motives for for doing these things. And, you know, uh, getting back to Putin and lessons that he has learned, he was not a party to the Soviet Union's occupation of Afghanistan. But he certainly has learned from it. And he has undoubtedly observed uh, the quagmire the U.S. got itself into and the inelegant exit that we made just last August. So I don't believe he wants to occupy Ukraine. I think that he wants to divide the Western influence, reduce U.S. clout, and try to build Russia and China up to peers of the United States. And, you know, he's working the long con. He is going to be in power one way or another for at least another 12 years. And he sees the rotating idiots in Washington as, uh, you know, opportunities for uh, his strategies. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to realize that Putin looks at Biden and says, this guy has made bad foreign policy decisions all of his political life, and he isn't about to change now. Yeah. If I were Putin and I cared about Russia, I would not want America anywhere near my country. When America won the Cold War, the fruits of victory went to Wall Street, that the reason Russia is in the state it is in, ruled by oligarchs, is because Wall Street, with Washington's guiding hand, transferred public goods to private oligarchs who use KGB money to make themselves fantastically wealthy. We are responsible for the, the plight, the economic plight of ordinary Russians. We, with Wall Street, pillaged their economy. Yes, we did. We privatized it. And uh, if I were Putin, even though um, Putin is the beneficiary, perhaps the wealthiest man in the world because of the pillaging, uh, I don't think he wants America to turn Ukraine into a NATO ally. It would be kind of like Quebec breaking off from Canada and then Russia setting up shop with the Quebecois and trading with them. That would make us a little nervous. So Yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, yes. Great so job. The, the last thing I'll say is that... Uh, 
people are free to disagree with my analysis. I, I don't have any sensitivity about that. But I want you to ask yourselves, where are you hearing any voices raising questions about what the Biden administration is doing? The Republicans in the House and the Senate are chomping at the bit to pass you know, more extreme sanctions than even Bob Menendez and the Democrats, but they're all lined up to do it too. And they're the, the only place, and this is tragic, that any opposition is heard is on Tucker Carlson's show. Now, he is not doing that because he is anti-war. He's doing it because, like Putin, it's a way to divide the Democratic base. But last week, he featured an interview with a guy I deeply respect named Dan Kovalik. And Kovalik wrote a book uh, about Russia at the very beginning of Russiagate. And he is uh, he's a former lawyer for the steelworkers in Pittsburgh and a human rights activist, a brilliant guy. Uh, and, you know, Rachel Maddow, who's now on leave to make a meaningless documentary or movie about Spiro Agnew for some reason, uh, she would never invite Dan Kovalik on her show. He is persona non grata on both CNN and MSNBC. No critical voices are permitted at a time that is growing increasingly dangerous. That's the cancel culture. That's <laughs> the cancel culture nobody talks about. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. Go to PeterBCollins.com for treasure trove of Peter's interviews, radio shows, and podcasts. Peter B. Collins is a Bay Area radio Hall of Famer and... And toilet repairman. And toilet repairman. Thank you. Uh, My pleasure. That, I, I really respect that. I, I, I always say New York City is a bunch of smug intellectuals until they need a plumber. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> they're not so smart. So thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Dave in PA is building something. We'll check in with him. It's really interesting to have that going on in the background. I should mention that this show is put together by brilliant people like Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, the Invisible Ninja, who are keeping the chat rooms going, Joe in Norway, and a, a Hannah Fartman, I believe. Let us now go back to Aurora, Illinois, where Parks Commissioner Marianne Cummings is standing by. Are you there, Professor Marianne? Here. Now, where are you? Let me try to guess. You're not. Are you? Are you visiting? Are you? Uh, I'm. You, uh, I'm in Vegas at a meeting. Wow. Yeah. I, you can't see. I'm trying to see if you can. It's, you just see the reflection of my room. There's like the, you know, the, I'm on the 25th floor here, at the Park MGM. It's really nice view for once. The yeah. Park MGM is that the MGM Grand? That used no. That used to be the old Monte Carlo, and they uh, they just uh, put it. Uh, you know, they they the MGM just took it over the property. And, Are you on the uh, strip? Yes. Oh, yeah, of course. You're on the strip. 
and you you're pissed off because you you spent thirty five thousand dollars for Adele tickets, I believe, and she canceled at the last minute. So what? You you know you've been in Vegas. You were there a couple of months ago. Let me. Yeah. yeah. Now you're. Yeah, got, there's a group here that uh, we meet. You know, we've been we we didn't meet for almost two years because of uh, you know the plague, but um, you know. Couple we, questions. I want to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but 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 you are a particle physicist. Mm-hmm. You're brilliant. Do you gamble? I worry that people like you think they can outsmart the casinos. Oh no, you you can't look. Um, there's a little machine that I play here because it's kind of fun, and I do win. I have no idea what's up with that, but you know that's just that's just me. We when I was an undergraduate in Michigan, there used to be a bunch of graduate students that would go to Vegas and actually win money back when you could kind of count cards in an elaborate scheme and. I always warn those guys like, yeah, well, you know, one of these days you're just going to get dragged out into an alley and get your legs broken or something, because that was kind of. So you're not tempted. I, I know I have a friend who is a mathematical whiz and he's got a bit of a gambling problem. You're not tempted to outsmart. No. You don't think you could like poker. You don't think you could outplay. No, no, I'm a, I suck at poker. My father was a great poker player, but I just kind of suck at it. And right. um because it's, it's kind of like not losing your nerve at key points, you know, and that's kind of it and not re- reacting to a little bad run. And that wouldn't be me. You know, it's like uh, I am not a bluffer. That is true, man. I, and I don't like losing money. I lose money. I get bored at these machines. So, right. you know, and I see, oh, it's kind of, I I remember seeing people with all their little rituals at their game. I mean, they would just, you know, kind of rub the screen and they do, they kiss the little cross that they, oh my God. It was just kind of like a religion. It was very weird. That's one of those things. I wish I played poker because I have a lot of friends who swear by it and it's great camaraderie. And my father used to play poker. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems. I don't know. I see these like when I I've got the uh, the Olympics in the background. I think you on the on the uh, big screen TV here. Um, but they had like on sports. They have these poker tournaments. I see them everywhere. I'm like, what's with that? I mean, how is what's what's even the skill? I guess there is some modicum of skill, but I mean, maybe it's just holding your nerve for hours at end. Uh, I and think not, there's people tell me there's skill in poker. Yeah. I, I don't know. There, there probably is. But there, I think yeah. the big thing, even more than chess, is not losing your nerve. Right. You know, it's just knowing you're going to lose. You're going to get a bad hand. You you can mitigate that and you don't lapse into magical thinking or anything like that. But, what are um, the casinos like? Is everybody masked up? Are they social? Everybody's dis- masked. Everybody's masked with downstairs. Um, there, uh, there are certain restaurants and, and bars open. People at the bar aren't wearing masks, but that's kind of like restaurants in my area. I mean, every all the servers and, and wait staff and bartenders, of course. And, Cigarette uh, smoke? Uh, no, not in the... I, I haven't run across... I, I know there are... there. It's weird to go to the casinos up north and uh, just walk through them and smell a whiff of, of cigarette smoke. It's almost nostalgic, you know. Yes. You just don't smell that in 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 uh, interiors anymore. But uh, I used to no, come back from Las Vegas, 
-hmm. and I, I would have a suitcase. I'd be there for a week and then mm -hmm. I would leave it in my home office and you could, the, the whole room would start smelling of cigarette smoke just from the suitcase. And then I would open it up and then we'd have to air out the room before I could wash my clothes, we'd have to air out the room. That, that's, he realized, and that stuff is going really into- sensitive to it. I remember years ago over at the roundhouse near my house, at midnight, a few uh, 50 minutes after midnight on New Year's, uh, my friend who was a bartender just started collecting all the cigarette smoke, uh, cigarette uh, ashtrays, and, and just said, wow, I feel healthier already. And that was it. I mean, they- it ended all interior, all, all businesses in the state of Illinois just went smoke free. And uh, I thought, you know, I thought that was a little much because it, the smoke never bothered me. Uh, the roundhouse has these great filtration systems. However, when I went to uh, a physics meeting in Detroit and uh, there are people meeting at the casino there, I was smelling cigarette smoke and all the way at the end of this bar. And we're talking like 25 foot ceilings was one person smoking. I had just gotten so sensitive to cigarette smoke. I just, you know, couldn't stand it anymore. Now, why are you in Vegas? No, I'm, I'm meeting with a group of people. That there's, uh, oh, it's it, a group of people I had met like many, many years ago. Um, and they're, they're political. And a lot of them were Bernie people. And now it's kind of, I think uh, Texas Tom would be interested in this group because it's kind of a political, but almost kind of quasi spiritual, but in a secular way, you know, it's like, how do we keep ourselves sane in this almost impossible political, you know, scenario. And right. it's uh, so we've been meeting and it's just, it's, it's just interesting to hear other people talk and um, <laughs> revolution. I think the revolution has to start in your mind. But, um, you know, I, I have to say that um, I, there was a couple articles I read I wanted to talk to you about. And it had to do with COVID, but mostly had to do with the structural problems in dealing with a pandemic anywhere on this planet and mostly in our country. But uh, before I, I, I get to that, um, I wanted to, because uh, I thought this was interesting, I was interested in what Peter had to say about the Ukrainian situation. Um, there is this, uh, this gentleman that's been writing in Down With Tyranny and Howie Klein's, Eric Zuss, and he's been writing about Ukraine, and I've been looking into some of his stuff, and it's just like, ah, you know, memory laned. Just to give us a little, people a little brief history, in, in 2014, there was an overthrow of the Ukrainian government that was engineered by NATO and U.S., but really engineered by this gal, Victoria Nuland, who was, you know, part of Barack Obama's uh, uh, State Department, um, who is Victoria Nuland. Well, her, her husband is Robert K Kagan, one of the original authors of the is for the progress of the new was a peanut group. Is she progress British? Is she British? I don't know if she's British, but uh, okay. she's definitely a neocon, right? right? And she had famous, remember uh, NATO at the time, the NATO countries were desperately trying to get a peaceful resolution. It was a very corrupt uh, regime that was in Ukraine at the time, but it was democratically re elected. But there was uh, 
kind of a low-level civil war that was brewing in Ukraine. And uh, at one point, you know, basically uh, Newland had famously said something about, uh, in a phone call to our ambassadors, that somebody recorded and put up on YouTube, basically, F NATO, we're going to do this, you know, and this is our guy. So they installed this government, which was even more corrupt, plus it, their security forces were literally literal Nazis in their security forces, like swastika-wearing, goop-stepping Nazis. Mm. And that's kind of, so there's been, and, and it did boil over into what I think would be called a civil war. And, uh, but people even in Ukraine were getting fed up with this government, this <laughs> current, this current uh, president. It was actually a comedian who ran as a joke. He ran to make a point and right. he got elected. So, Zelensky. you know, that. Yeah. So anyway, the the whole point of this is that, you know, we've been brewing nonsense in Ukraine. We've uh, you know, the the Soviet Union, uh, Gorbachev was uh, had an agreement with Jim Baker at the time that NATO would not move one inch to the east. And they've added 23 countries to their march. So you can, you know. Russia, as Professor John had pointed out, uh, there, there's all these bases. You can all, all you can see the outline of the Russian border with all the bases that we have, except at the Mongolian and Chinese border around Russia. I mean, it's uh, the aggressor here is us. So, um, if you really want to learn more about uh, you know the recent history of Ukraine, uh, Eric Zus Z U E S S E. Um, he has a couple of articles in Down with Tyranny, but he's written over the last few years. The other article that was interesting was one by Scott Ritter. And that one, you everyone should read because he, you know who Scott Ritter was. Sure, he and was Peter B. Collins is a, a friend of his, yes. Okay, the so, weapons Peter, so he has gotten an article, he's written an article in the uh, Consortium News, which I have taken to reading. I used to, that used to be my go-to site until Robert Perry died. But uh, I started reading again when they were the only American outlet to have a reporter in the room with uh, uh, during Julian Assange's hearing this past summer. So um, Ritter uh, is basically sort of, since he also worked with the Soviet Union, he was an expert on on Russian uh, Russian uh, cyber attacks, you know, over 20 years ago. And uh, he's giving us a little tutorial on what Russia, you know, is doing and why they're doing it. And basically the two things is that they want to demonstrate um, that, A, they could project military power, you know, as a preemptive. preemptive. But uh, the other thing they're doing is that to demonstrate the limits of what the U.S. can actually do. And, you know, this is where it gets dangerous because the limits of what U.S. can actually do might put us to a very dangerous brinkmanship where the only thing we have left is outright war. Most of our NATO allies are not on board with this. You know, there was this Minsk agreement that was done in 2015, and Ukraine has still not lived up to it. That was with Russia and, and France and, and Germany and some other NATO countries. And, you know, so our allies, except for the UK, are not really on board with this, you know, kind of saber rattling and brinksmanship. I, 
I think there's enough sane people in everybody's governments to realize like, well, and also the United States, we simply cannot project power like we used to. I'm not a fan of Bill Clinton's, but I think the kind of um, military or NATO action that he directed, you know, surrounding the former Yugoslavia was probably U.S. at its peak ability to project at least perceived power to get people to the negotiating table. Right. And that was completely wrecked by the Bush administration going in and getting us into a quagmire that to a certain extent is still going on in Iraq. And we just pulled out of in Afghanistan. Right. So both of those articles by, by Eric Zeus and, and uh, Scott Ritter are very worthwhile reading. So anyway. What do you, um, what do you think when, when Biden is alone in the situation room being told what to think? You like to think that Blinken, you, you like to think that they're, that they're thinking they're helping America and trying to promote peace. They, they have to believe that, right? They, uh, I guess on some level, they've all convinced themselves that, A, they are the chosen ones because they're in the room. So therefore, right. they and their clients and their friends getting obscenely wealthy off of the military industrial complex is, you know, what the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, deems fit to happen or something. I don't know. I can't get into people's minds. But there is... And, and you've pointed out, I don't think there's any great thinking behind this. It's just, as you pointed out, things in motion stay in motion. We've allowed a military-industrial complex to build up and build up until now it's Wall Street. It's not even the military. The military is kind of the victims of this. It's the bloated contractors. It's the hedge funds that you know invest in all of this um, saber-rattling and instability that's kind of calling the shots, and they're certainly the donors to both parties. Do you remember when um, Trump invaded Syria based on a gas attack that had been later on kind of debunked by Theater Postal of MIT, who had debunked the previous one, one under Obama? Um, Even Democratic senators like Dick Durbin stood up and said, uh, Trump finally became president today. Right. This is when I he fired the mi- he fired yeah. missiles and right. hit, hit nothing. I know, and that was funny because it was all all, all the a lot of the uh, the the Democrats were saying, "Well, he didn't really hit much." I'm going, "Oh, really? Do you wanted you wanted him to bomb a population center? Right. <laughs> you, know, you wanted how many more people? How many people minimum would have been okay for you to have died?" In that exchange, I, I was just shaking my head over the whole non, the whole thing. I mean, we've got problems to solve in this world. There, the COVID is not going to be the last pandemic, that's for sure. We've got climate crises, and then we're doing this nonsense. This is how we're grinding up our time, right. you know. And I, I, I think I don't know. I think it's it's not any grand plan from people in that room. I think it's just the forces that keep pushing us to not have diplomatic solutions that keep pushing us to maximize conflict and well you know we thought these things were all contained right in 1962 and that didn't go well right. everyone thought there was a reasonable reasonable government in uh in the ussr 
and us and that we had bypassed the worst of the Cold War and suddenly something that was seen as a minor irritation blew up into a major conflict that almost ended in thermonuclear war. These things, this is what I'm afraid of. I mean, things aren't under control as people think. And it doesn't take much for things to go totally nonlinear in these situations. So I right. wish they'd knock it off. Right. Basically. The so. uh, White House's top science advisor, Eric Lander, was forced to resign. They did an investigation. Turns out he was abusing his staff. He was demeaning, saying hurtful things. And he apologized and has resigned. Kind of shocking. Or is it that in this day mm -hmm. and age, a, a top advisor to Joe Biden would behave as badly as they do inside our vice president's office? And I mean, again, this is no great mystery. When people get away with, when people have been given privilege and they've been getting away with manipulating people, I think what happens is they don't even realize how bad and egregious they are. You know, they just, people tell us narratives to build up narratives around themselves to tell themselves that, you know, hey, I'm a great guy. And the universe has been rewarding me for the last 20 years. But so, with all um, that, I know, but in this day and age, in this day and age, the idea in a Democratic White House that's all about uh, if, if they're for, if they stand for anything, it's the civility in the workplace because they're not going to deliver, you know, what they promise, but they're they are performative. I can't imagine anybody thinking they could get away with yelling and demeaning behavior. I'd, I'd be curious to see how many people are. Well, this is not it turns out um, as the previous segment demonstrated, this is not an administration that's really big on transparency. It's like, trust us, or, you know, the experts are on top of it. And people get very arrogant under these circumstances, like our national surveillance state, for instance. Yeah. Um, and that's, um, but I wanted to talk about a little bit, because I read a couple, I, I, I read a, a, an article about, um, about Denmark opening up, even though they've been really spiking in the Omicron cases. And it's very interesting. Um, they um, had decided that, you know, Omicron is kind of, whether this uh, it remains to be seen, it is, but they've um, decided that it's impossible to spread the, the infection. They cannot, they cannot afford to lock everything down. And, uh, you know, the natural immunity from have a lot of people being exposed to it, plus they've got a relatively high vaccination rate and they're done. Um, and it was very interesting. There was uh, somebody, uh, uh, Professor Michael Peterson, he's a professor of political science, and he's a government advisor, and he was in charge of a big study about the behavior during the crisis. And he found, he said, throughout this crisis, um, he, he, has, he has found that people's primary concern in Denmark is not whether or not they get the virus. 
they just um, they just were concerned about the you know the, it overwhelming their healthcare system. In other words, they were concerned about their system. Um, they actually have what he and, and this is a great quote: "If you have a strategy strategy based on trust and solidarity." you can actually open up with this broad agreement because they made very systematically made sure that the vulnerable was protected. So the over 55s have, I think the vaccination rate is over 80%, but it's over 55, it's like 96% vaccination rate. And he said, there is there seems to be a social compact between the young and the old and the, the, the old have taken upon themselves to protect themselves, but they, don't want restrictions on the very young, particularly because, you know, schools are important. People starting out with jobs are important. And, you know, I just thought this was remarkable. By the way, it has done the best economically of all the European countries. And even with this latest surge, its death rate per million is still one of the lowest in, in, uh, in Europe and certainly way below ours. Now, they have universal health care. They have a system that everybody who is a legal resident, not just a citizen, is registered in their, in their public system. There, is some, there are some supplementary insurances that you can get, little bonus you know, that companies can offer, but they're highly regulated. So what a difference when people feel like the... the um, that their government is working for them. And, and, and as in a case like Denmark, there, there can be a real social contract. Whereas it's all, I mean, whether it was Trump or Bush, it seems like the government has been using it as a, it just has been using the pandemic to just clobber the working class, you know? And then they've allowed these new billionaires to spring up and, you know, trillions of dollars to be transferred from the bottom to the top. And you you get frustration and you get bad behavior and you get acting out. And I, I loved your interview, by the way, with uh, Juned earlier. This thank you for bringing him in. Yeah, because you know, I, I think he was right about Bernie Sanders. There's some there. There's just a universe of problems we have in our country to solve. But if you deal with our healthcare system. You start solving all of these problems. Right. You start when you start disentangling public welfare from personal gain and just outright greed, which you definitely have to do. So, you know, it's not just single payer, but the single payer allows you to take on all the other problems like this monopolization of hospital beds, like this, you know, just in time. You, you don't have any public health infrastructure at all for the next pandemic. You know, it, where hospitals are, are privatized and, and for profit. So, you know, you, I'm amazed. I, I went down, uh, I clicked on an ad for rehab just mm -hmm. to see where it would take me. And it was a rehab center in San Diego that charged, you know, $1,000 a day. It's not covered by insurance. The idea that we have, so many people addicted to drugs who are suicidal and we're not mm -hmm. providing free treatment on demand to our citizens. 
the way, one um, among the other things that's just free at the point of demand in Denmark is mental health. And, you know, so, yeah, I, Republicans refusing the vaccination rate. But right now, by the way, I told you about my zip code being like the lowest vaccination rate in the entire Chicagoland area. Well, I'm the, not the only one that noticed that. Uh, one of the, my fellow progressive of Kane County has been on this, you know, for quite a while. So we're getting together and uh, we are going to have a public shaming of the city, of our local, uh, I mean, our, our local state representatives. Like, why is this going on? We had a mayor who is now running for governor, but who ran for mayor against John Lash, who was bragging about how he facilitated the vaccination, the big vaccination portion. It wasn't really him. It was the county. But now his office, when I called starting about two months ago, oh, that's not, no, that's not our problem. That's a county problem. And then I said, well, you know, I'm just J&Q public. How about the mayor of Aurora calling up the county? Do you think that might have a little more weight? Is he even concerned? Obviously not. So again, this is where we have to start pushing the ball. So in, in, in just in general, uh, I, I don't have it with, but I was just uh, reading an article about two weeks ago and they were plotting vaccination rate, hospitalization rate, intubation, death as a function of household income. And it's still dramatically correlated. So, you know, yes, the Republicans may be making this, but it, making a big deal out of vaccination, but I can guarantee that in that zip code next to mine across the river on ruling class drive, there are all those Republicans drive. are vaccinated. <laughs> ruling class drive. <laughs> the, the old money. Yeah. But, you know, there was another thing, too, and I just want to close up with that. Um, I was, uh, you know, I had, I had talked about a while back the woman who was denied tenure over at University of, uh, University of Pennsylvania but persisted and found a way to uh, make the uh, synthetic messenger RNA dodge our immune system so that it can get to the cells. And Well, anyway, I reread that article, which was – it's in nature. It's actually an interesting read. And it was going through the history and it mentioned all these luminaries in this, you know, the people who, who pioneered this. And there are several people who contributed. But what jumped out at me this time was just at every step at this development, they were talking about the intellectual property haggles. I mean, it wasn't just individuals like jo the, the uh, Jonas Salk Institute was trying to sue this other company for property rights. It was the stuff that Robert Malone was working on. And they were trying to sue. They eventually they eventually abandoned it. But I'm going, hey, you know, when Salk and, and uh, Sabin came up with their polio vaccines, I mean, they both publicly stated, we are not we are not going to get a dime from this. We are not putting out patents on this. This belongs to the world. Um, when my uh, my friend's dad, Julius Youngner, who I think many people thought really should get all the credit for Jonas Salk's vaccine, nonetheless, he was big man on campus at the 50th year anniversary of the polio success of the polio vaccine. And he used his platform uh, to speak out about how the, the funding mechanisms on, on campuses and all these biological departments. And it seems like there's a big push in all of them to get patents on all this stuff. And he said, I have to tell you, if 
we were trying to do the polio vaccine like we did back in the 50s, we would not have been able to succeed if there was this push for intellectual property. I mean, they had big fights, you know, between the Sabine group and the University of Pittsburgh group. I mean, big intellectual fights about how to proceed. But there was never any like, no, this is our proprietary information. No, they they shared information, which allowed them and that to to uh, it was a remarkable uh, intellectual development, the polio vaccine. So we're so we're, we're coming up. Like Go ahead. No, all I can say is that we need to develop. I mean, there needs to be just more outrage. I mean, people think that this is just natural. I get paid by the government and I'm doing this thing and suddenly I get to the patent on this and then I get all the proceeds from this. And it's like that should we should start denormalizing this kind of thing. Yes, because it's no question the the mRNA technology was almost completely, I think, 100 percent to first order funded by taxpayer dollars. Why can't we get a piece of it, of, of the sales? Well, I think getting a piece of the sales means we distribute it freely. I mean, we had a chance right. again, you know, early last year. Can you imagine if we had given the the, the formula vac- the the formula for the vaccines to these uh, factories waiting all over the world since uh, since the fall of 2020 to get the, the the formula for the vaccine and start cranking out vaccines? If there, if the months of uh, February, March, and April were spent with a massive vaccine push in India, for instance. We may not have, we may not have had the development of of the Delta variant. But you know, I think that no, I think that uh, of course that was a failure of leadership. Both Trump and Biden could have just commandeered this. <laughs> There's many ways they could have declared an emergency, but they did not. And you know. so, where do you think we're, we're standing? Because new coronavirus cases are falling dramatically, uh, deaths will follow. Deaths are still up. The two-day rolling, two-week rolling average for deaths is up eighteen percent, but cases are down. So the deaths well, will go down. Uh, somebody reminded me by the way, because I'm, I'm looking at this data and it looks good. I mean, it looks promising. And certainly Denmark's uh, public health scientists have determined that this is kind of near the end of the pandemic. But there was a guy by the name of Re- St- Stephen G. Gould. Do you remember him? He was a popularizer of science. He was an evolutionary biologist. Right, right. But he spoke at Fermilab. And I remember once that thing he said in his talk, because he says it's always the age of microbes, forget the age of reptiles or mammals and microbes have dominated the earth since life began and he said a virus that kills his host is stupid so you know there what happens when you get deathly ill most viruses don't affect us from animals but occasionally they do and it takes a while and it's dangerous for us when it does takes a while for the virus to become in equilibrium and it can mutate uh, unless you wipe it unless you stop it like we did the first SARS virus or have a, a vaccine. But, you know, after a while, one of the measures of how a, 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 that, a, that a virus is becoming in equilibrium is it's becoming more, it's becoming more contagious 
and way less virulent because you know if you can keep your host alive and even well like they don't even notice that they have it then you're going to get around as a virus you're going to get around and multiply and pretty much you know overwhelm the population which appears to have happened there's a little bit of concern about a month ago that the delta and omicron may coexist but that's i mean our world in data has some really good charts if people want to check out that site before you go the new york times is reporting tonight that America's death toll from COVID per capita is higher than any other wealthy nation. United, mm -hmm. The United States, the share of Americans who have been killed by the coronavirus is at least 63% higher than in any of these other large wealthy nations. And multiple times higher than like say Denmark. Mm -hmm. And well, uh, you know, ProPublica came up with its study last year, and they estimated anywhere from 100,000 to 300,000. So far at that point of the deaths from uh, COVID could be directly attributable to lack of health care or lack of access. Um, you know, it's and nothing has changed. That's the amazing thing. We have you would not think you would think we'd have one TV news network that would, wouldn't let go of that fact and push right. Medicare for all. But how could they when all the news networks are sponsored by Big Pharma? Pfizer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, this is the problem. I, I don't think it's insurmountable. I think you get a few truly courageous people like Junaid in Congress that are willing to not have a career there like that are willing to get voted out or have all their colleagues gang up on them to not be liked. Um, and I think you could change. The tide could change very fast because, you know, people aren't doing well. I mean, whatever happy face that the White House puts on, on the economic situation of this country or Rokana, for God's sakes. I mean, the I look at the the labor participation rate. It's still significantly lower than it was pre-COVID. And it's, you know, people are, are, most of the country is getting poor. There are the top 10 to 20% are doing fabulously well. I mean, they're 401ks, they took a little bit of a hit, but they're coming back and they're not spending as much. And, you know, hey, not having to drive to work, that's good. They can work off their laptops. But I think they're in a bubble. I think the, um, you know, we the, the Democrats are going to be in trouble, and they should be. Um, I don't know how somebody like Junaid, I'd like to ask him if he and a few other progressives make it. I think, I guess there's a big, uh, isn't there a, a big primary in Texas, like this week or next week? I, Cisneros, I yeah, I think that's like the first big one. If you get a few real hardcore progressives, I think they can change things if you're willing to, but you have to resist. Again, you said things in motion stay in motion. You can't go along with the flow of the Democratic leadership and expect anything to happen. You know, you've got to confront them. You've got to cause disruption. It's not going to be pleasant. Yeah. You know? But yes. You know, right. But now, what do you think of Dave and PA? Isn't this fun to 
while we're this talking. This is fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's very relaxing. Mm -hmm. to, uh, I, I love this. And uh, anyway, Professor I like what, I love makes me want to floss. Work. <laughs> That's uh, actually fun for me to do. It, it, it's, it's somebody who can actually do something. This is somebody who who can actually make something. We saw Joe in Norway cooking borscht. This is no alienation from the final product. Uh, and you know, I've got a toilet to fix too, and it's one of these low flow things. Uh, it, it doesn't, I have to figure it out. If I can fix my toilet, I will feel like I can do anything. Hang on. I fixed my sound effect machine. The professor, Professor Marianne Cummings, Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois, Razor Girl on Twitter. When do you get back? Uh, I get back Wednesday. Okay. I hope to see you Thursday for the professors oh, and Marianne. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. Please friend us on Facebook. Follow me on Twitter. Let's go to Mike's place in Denton, Texas. Hello, sir. Are you looking at Dave and PA? Yeah, I said that it makes me want to floss for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> Get that stuff out of the crevices. Isn't it great to just watch this? It is. It is amazing. It, it, it just adds to the conversation. So I'm going to try to play your song differently i'm going to try to do this uh -oh. yeah what does that mean well that i mean? cleaned out my computer sir and yeah and i think i can you got the new song i have the new song and i think i can play it on the old software because my okay my computer okay so we can play that how are things in in beautiful texas beautiful today it was 60 we had to go out to do a thing and uh sun was shining no breeze i was going to take a little walk but i had to work on a on a little song stuff for you hey i, I brought another game oh good it goes with the song okay why don't we play that can you put let's play the song it's short okay and then we'll play the game let me tell you that how's my volume by the way perfect. is it okay perfect okay the name of the song is swine bomb boogie and in the new york times there was an article last week and i've been thinking about this song this is one of the few that's actually i've been in my head for about a week <clears throat> there was an article about this terrible problem of wild boars wild feral pigs Yes. In the in the Bay Area. Yes. And they're causing a lot of problems. And uh, I'm curious. I, I thought maybe that uh, Emil would bring it up because it's a dilemma. They're it, they're they, hunting. They them, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's been big in Texas for forever. But in uh, in. Uh, but anyway, let's let's play the song. And then I have a game that goes with the song. Oh, good. OK, let me make sure before we play it. How does this okay. sound? Let's just see. I know. I want to do a test. I don't. Well, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. That sounded okay. Hang on. What is that? Nothing. I just. I want to test this. I just want to make okay. sure it sounds okay. So that sounds okay. You can it hear sounds that. Sounds good. And this. Uh, 
okay. Well, why don't you play the song and well, then we I, can tell if it... I wanted to make sure that we could enjoy the song. <laughs> okay. Well, if it sounds crappy, I'll wave it off and we can do it the other way. Right, here the we go. Way. Okay, here we go. It's called Swine Bomb Boogie. Correct? Porcine hysteria in the greater Bay Area. We heard about it on CNN.com. I guess they're calling it a swine ball. We've been infested by feral hogs. They messed up my lawn and they ate my dogs. They're taking over and they're out of control. We're gonna organize a swine patrol. We got a swine bomb. You're doing the swine bomb boogie. These hogs are smelly and they make nasty sounds. Some of them weigh close to 800 pounds. Now you tell me if you think I'm mistaken. I think that sounds like an awful lot of bacon. These critters are mean, they can tear into you. Here's what they say you're supposed to do. Get on your car or climb up a tree. Cause pigs can't climb, at least that's what they tell me. We're in a swine bomb. Pigs can't climb. Doing the swine bomb boogie. Pigs can't climb. Folks are getting guns and shooting them on sight. I doubt if Peter thinks that's all right. All my life I've been for gun control. Now they done put me on swine patrol. Pigs can't climb and white men can't jump. All we can do is a bumpity bump. Can we chill these pigs out with some smooth and metal jazz? Round them all up and send them to Alcatraz. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. Outdone yourself, Professor Mike Steinel. 
you have well, you don't want yourself. you don't want to go the other way do you you don't want to undo yourself <laughs> you that is i'm gonna play that again and by the way we played pigs for love earlier I, too. you know what a coinkadink i know I, 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 was, I was i monitor the show david so that i have somebody i can get i need to i need to kind of gauge your level you know of what you're at you know to come in. i don't want to come in like this i don't want to come in too hot uh -huh. or too cool i want to be just right <laughs> now are they really 800 pounds some of them can be they they um went on a air they were on an airstrip they have been found to be that big that's pretty large wow you ready to play no yes I, you know what i can't play i what, can't the buzzer well no pink floyd they had a whole album about pigs but i can't play it because we'll get dinged oh well i need to listen which what's it called <sighs> i haven't heard it in it's really about pigs the whole thing yeah wow yeah it, it, i don't know i don't know a lot of their music i i kind of got stuck in jazz for a long time i was a pop guy in high school you know i had a rock and roll band and but um anyway dark, so we but you've heard dark side of the moon right i heard that yeah we you know what's we amazing that about that album what you go two or three years, you know, it comes up on your playlist and you go, ah, come on, how many times can I hear dark? All right, I'll listen to it. 45 minutes later, you, I know, get up, yeah. you get up off the couch and you go, that is. All know. great things are like that. Amadeus. How many times have you seen Amadeus on TV? And well, I'm just going to watch a little bit. Right. And you're stuck to the end, you know? Yeah. You just think it can't be. Roxanne, can't be the movie Roxanne does. I think that's really good. I said to I said to Steve Martin, and I'm name dropping, that movie's unfair. Because he was so great. It's unfair that somebody can be that great. <laughs> Roxanne, that is he wrote that and he was a his performance was absolutely amazing in that. One of the most he's, underrated he's terrific. performances. Yeah. And Fred Willard's great toast. I'd rather be with you people than the greatest people in the world. <laughs> it's the greatest toast in the history of... <laughs> that, is, that is so funny. It's such a great line. I'd rather be with you people than the greatest people in the world. It's unfair that somebody can be as talented as Steve Martin. It's unfair. A thing popped up on Twitter today of him playing a beautiful banjo piece. Yeah. It's about 30, 40 seconds long. He's he's a great banjo player. Very it's not like a corny, it's not like a dueling banjos. It's got some really interesting harmonies. It's yep. not like, like bluegrass at all. It's it's more like a partida or something, almost classical. It's, it's terrific. Well, you're unfair. Nobody, I mean, you're, you're music and... You're you're writing uh, murder mysteries and anyway, uh, let's do the whatever. quiz. Let's do the quiz. Okay, know your swine. For those just who were just listening, I'm showing behind my background many different kinds of swine. David, I think you're a porcinophile. A porcinophile. You're a lover of pigs. Yes, I am I'm a pig a, for love. A pig for love. You, I mean, you made me. You held a gun metaphorically to my head and, and, and berated me until I finally wrote Pig for Love, which I need to remix. By the way, the, um, 
I don't know if you hear any different, but I'm learning Logic Pro. And uh, whew, it's but this next this last mix, I'll be interested to see what it sounds like on the podcast. But uh, did we just lose Dave in PA? No, okay. he uh, he's got a he's got a doll there. He's put something on this doll's face. We lost him. Got a pee. He's got, oh, he's Dave got a in PA. Now it's just he's Dave peeing. P. No A, just P. Okay. Okay, so I'm a porcinophobic. I'm a little scared of these guys. But anyway, um, boar, hog, and pig. Now, I know these are probably things your ex-wives have called you in the past. But what are, what are the actual differences between boar, hog, and pig? I, as somebody who has, I never eat these animals, boar, <laughs> hog, and pig. I'm... I'm going to guess that a boar is not domesticated, that a boar kind of goes wherever it wants. I would assume that a hog is. Uh, you can give yourself the bell. You got your bell. Is that correct? That was correct about the boar. Yes. And nobody, as my listeners know, I'm an expert on all things boar uh okay hogs so and pigs what's the difference hogs and pigs i would assume that a hog is uh, a farm animal and a pig a, a one would be for factory farming and one would be for just farms and pets like a pig is a pig you can keep in the house a hog. It's just a matter. It's actually just a oh, matter. Oh, ask of me the size. question. What, what's, what's the difference between a hog? Ask me. What's, ask what's the difference between a hog and a pig? <laughs> Two drinks. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Wow. Wow. That's really sexist. <laughs> what? What? That's not sexist. Two drinks. Yeah, it is. Of course it is. <laughs> oh. Well, they're actually all part of this. Suidae family, Suidae, and uh, the difference, a hog is just a big pig. Once they get over 100 pounds, you call them a hog. The big thing with um, about the boar is that they have fur, and, and pigs don't really have fur. Now, let me ask you this. Okay. Okay, you ready for your bell and your yes. thing? Okay. So I got that wrong. A you hog is a, a big yeah. pig. That's basically it. Okay. Okay. Uh, get this ready great. for the I love bell this. or the... I love are, this. Are pigs or boars indigenous to the United States? Are bigs, pigs or boars indigenous to the United States? I'm going to say no. That's right. Give yourself the ding. Yeah. Uh, because you don't really hear of... Native Americans or Aztecs or Incas uh, cooking pigs and boars. Okay, very good, David. Now, hogs were introduced. Uh, they were domesticated. Hogs were introduced by uh, a, number, a number of people. Um, who in this list introduced them? Um, in a, uh, uh, Hernando de Soto, the... Uh, the uh, well, not, I'm going to say not Columbus because he was Jewish. So I'm going to say Columbus did not bring pigs to the New World. Buzzer. Buzzer as in 
or you're wrong you're wrong columbus yeah. brought actually so it's gonna be a trick okay question. i'm sorry go ahead go ahead DeSoto, Columbus, Cortez, and Sir Walter Raleigh all brought hogs to the United States. Um, well, Columbus brought eight pigs on his first voyage when he landed in Cuba. Hmm. Uh, DeSoto brought hogs to Tampa. Cortez introduced hogs to New Mexico in 1600. This is all around 1600. Um, and Sir Walter Raleigh brought sows to Jamestown Colony in 1607. Interesting. Okay. For companionship right. or bacon or both? Well, Columbus brought them for a food source because they knew, and then he let them go. And he knew that they, they breed like crazy because they can have as many as litters up to 17, huge litters. So they can multiply. That's the problem with this, this swine bomb all throughout the United States is a problem with, and they're very destructive animals. And they, okay. They, uh, but they're very smart. Yeah, they are pretty smart, I Pigs guess. they're smart. Yeah. Okay. Okay, what city was nicknamed Porcopolis, Porcopolis in the 1800s? Philadelphia? Cincinnati? Chicago. Well, I was going to read all four. Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Chicago, or Indianapolis. Do you say Chicago? I'm going to say Chicago. You are wrong, sir. <laughs> all right, let me guess. Hang on. Say, okay, what year? What, what are we talking about? 1800s. The 1800s. The choices are what? Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and Indianapolis. Well, I, I'm going to say Philadelphia. That's wrong, sir. I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back to saying Chicago. <laughs> no, it's Cincinnati. Cincinnati. In 1840, there were 1,200 workers killing and slaughtering and uh, butchering 450,000 hogs each year. It's amazing, huh? They know they're being slaughtered. They scream. I've never heard one. I've never witnessed that, but I, and I don't plan to. So that's good to know. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was my wedding night. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how that got in there. Okay. Now, wild boars didn't get here until the late 19th century. Interesting. Which state was the first to host wild boars? South Carolina? California or New Hampshire? Hmm. Which state was the first state to wild boars? What year are we talking about? Uh, this is around the turn of the 1900. The 1900s. I'm going to say California. That's wrong, sir. Uh, All right, actually, sir. New, New Hampshire. New I'm going to say New Hampshire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's a lot easier when you're giving me the answers. <laughs> New Hampshire. Okay, presently, how many states have wild boars and how many don't? This is changing. It's a moving target. When you say just roaming freely. Yes. I'm going to assume all 50 states have wild boars. Nope, not yet. Maybe soon. 35 out of 50. 35 out of 50. Interesting. Up north, uh, on the coast, they go both ways. And and like North Dakota, South Dakota, I don't think they're up there yet. You know? Maybe they live quietly. Maybe they, nobody, know, like Letterman, 
has a place. They're, they're passing? Are they passing? Yeah, like Montana. Or, or they, yeah. Hey, was, was Columbus really Jewish? They think he might have been Jewish. His diaries were written in Hebrew, and 1492 was the year of the Inquisition, so you never know. Hmm. These, these animals carry a lot of, of uh, diseases. Which one of these diseases do they not carry? Uh, I'll read the whole list, so wait. Leptospirosis, toxoplasmosis, brucellosis, trichinelliosis. <laughs> That's, I don't think I said that right. Salmonella, hepatitis, or facial chlamydia. It sounds like everything they found in my shorts. That sounds like everything the doctor found when he tested my shorts. Well, facial chlamydia. Uh, yeah, no. that's not, they don't okay. get that. So give me them again. Oh, you don't care. Uh, let's yes, go I do. I want to get, hang on. I, let me see if I can get this. G give it to me again. Well, I can't say all of these. Leptospirosis. Leptospirosis, I believe, <clears throat> was the owner of a Greek diner in Chicago that he loved my act, leptocirrhosis. Uh, lepto, I'm going to say that. Yeah, lepto. You call him Lepi, right? Lepi? Yeah. Good yeah. old Lepi. I'm going to say leptocirrhosis is something they carry. No, they carry all of those except the chlamydia. There's only no. one that they didn't carry. But that's lepto was an intro. I can't remember what the, that's a prefix for. <clears throat> yeah. What, what are the, what's the other diseases? Toxoplasmosis. Toxoplasmosis. Yeah. Bursillosis. Well, toxoplasmosis is what cats give you, too. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And I think you, it's, you can get it from birds. Yeah. It makes you crazy. It's in the lungs. It gets to the lungs, I think. And that's histoplasmosis. And it goes I thought the I brain. had that once. Go, I lived in a band and, and they put me. I slept in the attic that had been <laughs> full of birds at one time. Right. And I developed a lung condition. That's back in the good old days. when you. Well, it's acting up. <laughs> I love that one. That's a lot of birds. That's a lot of Oh, you remember that. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. a soundtrack from The Birds, right? Right. The Alfred Hitchcock classic. Yes. yes. Okay, here we go. <laughs> which, two, which two states have the largest wild hog populations? I'm going to read four states. Two of them take the lead. Okay. Louisiana, Mississippi, Florida, or Texas? Well, it's got to be Florida. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to say Texas. Yeah. Yeah. We, we're, we're number one. <laughs> this, I would think the Gators. I, I would think the Gators would get them in uh, Louisiana. Okay. Here we go. What is the most significant predator of feral hogs in the United States? Mount three, three things. Mountain lions, alligators, or dogs? Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> He's obsessed with bacon. Give me that. Give me that again. What? what, what? Mountain, lions, Mountain lions, alligators, or dogs? In the United States. Yes. Well, I'm not going to say alligators because alligators. So, it's limited. To oh. Oh, okay. Right. Well, they, what do we have in Florida? Crocodiles? No, no. I'm just saying that you don't have alligators. Alligators aren't as prevalent as mountain okay. lions and dogs. Okay. Okay. Uh, mount, I'm going to say mountain lions. 
Actually, it was a trick question. It's it's humans. I said that. <laughs> I'm going to give my Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> I, I think I said that. You said Jim Gaffigan. He's a human. He, well, he is. I mean, it, it was a subset. Okay, California has 58 counties. How many have wild boar populations? Uh, well, I'm going to say Beverly Hills because Rob Reiner lives there. <laughs> um, let's see. 58 counties total. 58. That's rather small, I thought. 58 <clears throat> wild boars. I'm going to say 57. Ooh, 56. You're very close. Give, me, give yourself the bell. I, I would assume it. they're everywhere except Los Angeles County. I mean, you, I, I, Los Angeles. Oh, San Francisco. Can't, where, they, they're up in San Francisco, but I can't. Yeah, imagine. They're, they're bad in the Bay Area. But I can't in imagine the them being. In like the city of San Francisco, I can't imagine. They, they're very bold. They will come. There was a herd of them on the street in uh, in some town. I can't remember, like that. I like Santa Clara or something like that. And are they violent? Well, here's the question: um, How many people have been killed by wild hogs in the U.S. since they've kept records since 1825? Well, I mean, are you talking about heart disease? That you get from eating bacon? No, actually killed, like attacked and killed by a wild hog, a feral hog. By the way, some of these animals are are um, domesticated pigs who have escaped, and then they breed with the wild boars, and they have all sorts of, you know, they they interbreed, so they have, uh, and uh, people haven't been good over the years about keeping their their hogs in place. Yeah, watch your hog. You know, watch your hogs, man. Watch your, keep your hogs to yourself. How yeah. many pe how many Americans have been killed by a wild yes. pig? Yes, since, since when? Eighteen twenty-five. Since eighteen twenty-five. Well, see now, honestly, if you get killed by a wild pig, you're want to you're going to keep that to yourself, <laughs> right? You're not going to want anyone to know. Nobody's, no, you're not. You're right. Well, how does a wild pig? It it can't. It has tusks, very, yeah, very sharp tusks, and it and it. Um, I'm going to take those pi those pigs behind me were freaking me out. Um, I stopped it. It can't eat you. It can't bite you. It can. They they're omnivorous. Yeah, they'll eat. They'll but eat their teeth. Meat. They can sink their teeth into you. Oh yeah, you see? Did you see those pictures? Those teeth they have. Ooh. Well, <sighs> so I'm going to say four people have been killed by a pig. Wow. That's very close. Only five. I, you know They're what? Really I'm giving myself. Yeah. Because I don't think the, the fifth guy who was killed by a pig. <laughs> the jury's still out on what. That's really that's what we know of. Nobody. Yeah, nobody I mean, knows. I mean, some people disappear and then they just, you know, get eaten by a pig. Yeah. Only five. Yeah. Well, yeah, pretty well. I, I enjoyed your rant today about the uh, trucker uh, blockade. They are our lifeblood. If we can, without tr without truckers, thank you, by the way, without the truckers, we're nothing. I wrote a little song for you that I'm going to play live. I called, oh. I, I want a president 
who's a trucker. Okay. You want to hear it? Of course. Okay. It's a blues. I should have warmed this thing up. That was not good for our plan. All right, here we go. I want a president who's a trucker with a left wit leftist manifesto who's a gourmet in the kitchen and does a nice thing with pesto. They need to be pro-choice and agree to tax the rich. Gotta be smooth like Obama when they make their socialist pitch. I want a president who's a trucker with a left-wing manifesto. Gotta be a good salesman for Medicare for all. Fearless like Bernie and no dust capital. I want a president who's a trucker with a socialist ideology who's got a lot of street sense and a degree in anthropology. They gotta be anti-gun and anti-gerrymander. Don't have to talk that fancy as long as they speak with candor. I want a president who's a trucker with a socialist ideology. They gotta be a good salesman for Medicare for all, fearless like Bernie, and no discapital. No I got a president who's a trucker with the leftist manifesto, who's a gourmet in the kitchen and does a nice thing with pesto. Can't be an anti-vaxxer, really should be boosted, fearless like Bernie, and not anti-gay, got a president who's a trucker, with a leftist manifesto, he's gotta be good a salesman for Medicare for all, fearless like Bernie, and no das Kapital, I'm kinda messing it up. That's all I got. You're a ge- you really are a genius. Now, it when does ch- your- choke me up? Kind of choke me up. When does your uh, new book come out? Oh God, I'm just waiting, man. I've I've given them everything I'm supposed to do. When does running pop- the changes? Because we should mention that Professor Steinell, besides being a composer, jazz trumpeter was a member of the University of North Texas Jazz Studies faculty from 87 to 2019. And you have four books out about jazz, The Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble, 
Volumes 1 and Volume 2, building a jazz vocabulary and running the changes. Where, where can we buy these books? Where can you? What? You know what? Go to go to Penders.com in Denton, Texas. That? How do you spell that? P-E-N-D-E-R apostrophe S. PendersMusic.com. And, and they'll help you out. Song and Dance, the Mike Steinel Quintet featuring Rosanna Eckert is out on Origin Records. It's, it's my music. This is the kind of music I listen to. I love it. I love your stuff. All right. You're the best. And Hey, why don't you play, why don't you play that song again from earlier? I'm going Just to. do the boogie. It's yeah. a short one. And then we'll play. Yes, absolutely. Here we go. Swine. It's three minutes long. We need to, if Liam McEnany's listening, this is three minutes long, Liam. Three minutes long. <laughs> Which is uh, his uh, sex life. This is uh, <laughs> Swine Bomb Boogie. Swine Bomb Boogie. We got porcine hysteria in the greater Bay Area. We heard about it on CNN.com. I guess they're calling it a swine ball. We've been infested by feral hogs. They messed up my lawn and they ate my dogs. They're taking over and they're out of control. We're gonna organize a swine patrol. We got a swine ball. Swine bomb boogie. These hogs are smelly and they make nasty sounds. Some of them weigh close to 800 pounds. Now you tell me if you think I'm mistaken. I think that sounds like an awful lot of bacon. These critters are mean, they can tear into you Here's what they say you're supposed to do Get on your car or climb up a tree Cause pigs can't climb, at least that's what they tell me We're in a swine bomb Pigs can't climb We're doing a swine bomb boogie Pigs can't Folks are getting guns and shooting them on sight. I doubt if Peter thinks that's all right. All my life I've been for gun control. Now they done put me on swine patrol. Pigs can't climb and white men can't jump. All we can do is a bumpity bump. Can we chill these pigs out with some smooth and metal jazz? Round them all up and send them to Alcatraz. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. We're doing the swine bomb boogie. We got a swine bomb. Swine hogs all 
You are oh, David, you're very amazing. nice to say that. Oh, you're so generous. You really are. Thank you. I love you. Thank you so much. For I love you, too. Right Thank back you. at you. Thank I'll you. be seeing you soon. I Give hope. my best to Nadine. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. We will be back. Keeping with the theme of today's show, we will be back. <laughs> I'm a poor scene gourmand of the art of romance. I'm a maestro of the boudoir when I take off my pants. All of this is true, all of the above. I wouldn't lie to you, cause I'm a pig for love. Appetites rapacious, but my capacity is dim. I seem so audacious, some call me Gentleman Jim. When all is said and done, and the push comes to shove, I'm second to none, cause I'm a pig for love. suspicious please pardon me if i'm somewhat repetitious like a hand in a glove i'm a pig for love yeah i'm a pig for love Pig for love. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. We're all pigs for love, aren't we? Let's love each other. That's the, the solution. Give each other unconditional love. I want to thank the people who uh, help make this show possible. A lot of people help make this show possible. But uh, the Invisible Ninja, who is doing a great job, 
monitoring the chat room for YouTube, as well as Sarah Bush and Andy Brown, Joe in Norway, I believe, of course, Hannah Fartman, and of course, Dan Frankenberger. I might have left some people out, but they really uh, help keep this thing moving along, and I'm very appreciative to uh, to them. We had a great office hours and hours, 24 hours of office hours. Please come to office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. We start at 8 p.m. I'm available from 8 till 9. If you want to talk to me about the show, if you have some suggestions, complaints, I will listen from 8 till 9 every Friday night at 8 p.m. Go to my website. All you need is Zoom and a phone. If you don't have Zoom, you can actually call in and I will talk to anybody who shows up if you want to ask me any questions and then, or tell me something. And then starting around 9.30, the community takes over. Lectures, conversation, arguments, organizing, activism, music, and uh, movies. We're showing movies and clips, and we have teachers and activists and musicians, comedians, silly people, who artists who paint for us. Uh, join the community. You will meet better people. Uh, you will meet a better class of person by coming to office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. I promise you, you will meet better people. Okay, I want to thank all our guests. Jason Miles, check out This Is Revolution. That's his podcast. He will be back next week. Junaid Ahmed, he's a candidate for U.S. House of Representatives in Illinois' 8th Congressional District. Thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings, for bringing him on, and hopefully he'll be back. David Cobb environmental activist. Dr. Harriet Fraud just contacted me. She is fine. She had a patient who was in crisis and she could not make the show. Professor Adnan Hussein, thank you, host of Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless podcast. And please go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org. I'm holding back a sneeze. Rahima.org, donate to his parents' food pantry. Uh, Peter B. Collins, go to peterbcollins.com. Professor Marianne Cummings, and of course, Professor Mike Steinell. What a great crew. Thank you to everybody in the Zoom room for showing up and participating in the show. Thank you to Dave and PA for the ASMR for the eyeballs. That was fantastic. Thank you. It was fun watching all that. If you would like to join our live studio audience, our virtual studio audience, go to my website to sign up. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Please subscribe and give us a good review. What do they say? Smash the like button, smash and subscribe. We also have a YouTube channel. Thank you to everybody who uh, is in the chat room over at YouTube. I appreciate it. I'm looking at you people now. 
Uh, good job with the pretend anti-elitism, Feldo. Pretend anti-elitism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, what else? Subscribe to our YouTube channel. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comments too. To tell a dirty joke, he knows quite a few. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for right. Some days he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears all right, buckled in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Yes, it's time right now on the David Feldman Show. Get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming away. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Democracy, not oligarchy. <laughs> Today, we say to the private health insurance companies, whether you like it or not, the United States will join every other major country on earth and guarantee health care to all people as a right. is a human right, not a privilege. And together, we will pass a Medicare for all single-payer program. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump.